You can't have a new year without a top five, so I'd better do one before the Earth halts in its orbit around the sun and plunges us all into eternal winter. As always, only games that have been reviewed in Zero Punctuation are in the running for the top and bottom five. That being the case, bear with me a moment. Undertale is a good game. Etc, etc. Right, now we've got that over with. Look alive, because here come the fives, Clive. Dragons are the midwife of new ideas. You get a new idea, best to do it first with dragons, so people don't get scared off. Then if that works out, you can put your new idea in whatever horrible setting your disgusting mind can conjure. Heartening to see that process in action this year, as Dark Souls begat Bloodborne. Dark Souls gameplay in a glistening wet orgy of Lovecraftian horror, you gotta love it. And then you gotta launder your bedsheets. Might ruffle some feathers here, because this game was perfectly functional, but I feel the need to take a stand against games that think a handful of mindless multiplayer modes is worth exactly the same retail price as four full-length retro games plus the pizza afterwards. It was going to be either Evolve or Star Wars Battlefront, and Star Wars clinched it for the slightly patronising attitude of we all know you nerds will buy anything with a Wookiee in it. You know what, before we move on, good games yay, bad games boo is all very well, but what about the third category? For the first time, I'd like to introduce a third top five list, celebrating the games that did nothing interesting, took no risk, pushed nothing forward and which would generally to the year of gaming what Martin O'Malley was to televise debate. Without further ado, here's my fifth blandest game of 2015. Hmm, what's that? Jim Sterling just did something like this. Well it's a good thing everyone knows that I write these a few weeks in advance, isn't it? Otherwise they might have accused me of ripping him off and made complete fucking fools of themselves. While it has its moments, Batman Arkham Knight made its mistake when it thought, how can we enhance our characteristic stealth action adventure for the last instalment? Oh I know, let's take out some of the stealth action adventuring and replace it with Tonka toys being smashed together in the clumsy fists of an idiot god. While I did have some issues relating to questionably necessary monsters, insofar as it can be said that monsters are ever not questionably necessary except on the front of a box of sugar puffs, there's more than enough to recommend in Soma regardless. It may now go down in history as the second best atmospheric narrative horror game with philosophical themes set at the bottom of the ocean with an existential plot twist in it of all time. Speaking of questionable necessity, mainstream culture has gradually been coming around to the idea that video games probably aren't all murder porn aimed at the high school massacre demographic, but this was not intended to be taken as a fucking challenge. The game that strutted about in its big black controversy knickers dropping embarrassing turds from its leg holes conveniently named after the reaction it provokes, Hatred, although after release they should have renamed it Dispassionate Ridicule. Everybody's gone to the rapture, or as it might as well have been called, everybody's gone to the toilet on the reasonable assumption that they won't miss anything. I'm all for doing new things with interactive story, but after you throw away traditional ideas of pacing, challenge and coherent narrative, you are actually then supposed to replace them with something. Over the years, AAA gaming has been trying to pummel us into accepting that we have no choice but to have graphics like Rembrandt had sex with industrial light and magic, and that means we have to sacrifice the kind of in-depth detail and storytelling we used to have in our open-world RPGs. But then Witcher 3 replied, Oh no you don't, you just have to work until your bollocks drop off. I for one appreciated CD Projekt Red, hope the reattachment surgery goes well. Have you ever wanted to be a giant all-powerful monster? 
What about a giant all-powerful monster wading through knee-high runoff from the dog food factory? What about a bloke dressed as a giant all-powerful monster attempting to navigate a discount furniture warehouse wearing really uncomfortable shoes? No, didn't think so, but here's Godzilla anyway. May it return to its thousand-year slumber at the bottom of the ocean just in time for another BP oil spill. A textbook case of a franchise in holding pattern while it figures out what to base itself around now it's taken out the fun bags, Rise of the Tomb Raider. I look forward to the next instalments, Beginnings of the Tomb Raider, Induction of the Tomb Raider, Tentative Steps into Pubescence of the Tomb Raider, after which of course comes the reboot. You know I don't ask much of games, just a good central mechanic and a game world roughly 180,000 light years in diameter. What I like about Elite Dangerous, title drop, is that it's not insecure like some of these other jerks. It's not worried you'll piss off if you can't explode something with lasers every four nanoseconds. Kick back, fly around, be alone with your thoughts in the depths of the infinite, then when you do explode someone with lasers it still feels special. Wouldn't you agree, Mr. Dissipating Remains of a Pirate? Number two worst is not only a barely playable, unfinished, horribly designed litre of cold wee-wee, but one that got poured down the trousers of one of PC gaming's oldest franchises, soaking the knickers of its proud legacy of one, arguably two, sort of good games. Alone in the Dark Illumination. I can only presume they made it multiplayer-focused on the principle of a problem shared being a problem halved, but even if you split the cold piss between you, you're just ruining two pairs of trousers. What rundown of mediocrity would be complete without a visit to the series that must now legally credit the Microsoft Word Find and Replace tool as the lead designer? With Syndicate, Assassin's Creed has dribbled its way to a standstill like a camel with a leaky hump, and not the good kind of leaky hump. No sense being coy, it's Undertale, the darlingest of 2015's indie darlings, which I haven't reviewed properly because it really is best experienced from knowing as little as possible, not unlike a leaky hump. The basic appearance hides a deep narrative that manages to be funny and touching without horrifically derailing itself, as well as the kind of unique and deconstructive gameplay that actually makes an impact on the medium, unlike the following. Well, in fairness, it did have some impact, that being the impact of Sony's hand against its forehead as they muttered, Christ, what the fuck were we thinking? Where do you start on The Order 1886, the werewolf game with like three werewolves in it, that took all the potential of its setting and fired it out of drab, tedious cover shooter gameplay, with a plot that just sort of gave up and cut off halfway through? Well, I don't know where to start, but I know where to stop when the hacksaw blade gets lodged in the pelvic bone. Poor old 343 Industries, they tried so hard to make Halo 5 interesting. They played up Master Chief being hunted for crimes, and then his crime was like one notch below an unpaid parking ticket. They bring Cortana back to life, and that had all the impact of finding a rotting Malteser under a beanbag chair. There's only so much you can do with the material, I suppose. It's like trying to paint a masterpiece with used bathwater on a canvas of dryer lint, in a house made of bog roll. In Swindon. Well, I hope we all had some nice holidays. I didn't, because I spent part of them playing Devil's Third. At least I think I did. I also locked myself in a bathroom and ate an entire pound of brandy butter, so it's possible I hallucinated it. It's one of those games I have difficulty believing was made as part of somebody's conscious decisions. It seems like the sort of thing that is spontaneously generated when enough shitty games rub together, like how the brewing process spontaneously generates Marmite. Anyway, it's a Wii U exclusive, which I'm not sure is the right word to use. It implies that this was something so enticing that Nintendo wanted it all to itself, when one suspects it was more of a letting an orphaned puppy in out of the rain and letting it chuck 
stuck up all over the hearth rug scenario. One suspects the only reason it's on the Wii U is because it's too last gen to hack it on any other console. It's certainly not a natural fit for the Wii audience, since it's sweary and violent and probably won't get any of its characters into Smash Brothers. I know I've been wrong before about that, but this time it's not about tone. It's about sucking shit harder than a colonic irrigation. The quickest possible description for it would be poor man's Metal Gear Solid. And I mean really poor. Like the kind of Metal Gear Solid that was brewed from ketchup packets in a prison toilet. You know how Hideo Kojima's approach to including real world politics and history in his games is to read the first line of the Wikipedia page and then get bored and set a whale on fire? Devil's Third somehow does even less, and seems to have gotten its understanding of the world from what could be barked at it through the door hatch as it was past its morning bowl of gruel. How's this for let's charitably call it misguided? The main character is an inmate in Guantanamo Bay, which in this reality is an underground prison by way of beyond Thunderdome, populated exclusively by white American Metallica enthusiasts. The protagonist is a stock muscle-bound stoic called Ivan, who's Russian because of course he is, who is enlisted by the American military after a terrorist group sets off an atmospheric EMP blast that shorts out all the world's electrics, except for all the lights and basically everything else. But it throws the entire world into chaos. No really. We'd be happy to show you some of that chaos, but there's just no time. There's an inexplicably never-ending supply of terrorists that need murdering. The terrorists are part of an organisation called… seriously? SOD. Ivan himself was once a sod but switched sides, having made it through training and induction without realising that terrorist groups kill people. I guess he was sick that day. He must slaughter his way through a parade of former comrades, including the biggest sods of all, the boss fights with poorly explained superpowers. Someone clearly put a lot of thought into the backstory of these lads, and Ivan's prior relationship with them, but in their frothing excitement absentmindedly forgot to actually tell us most of it. Some of the loading screens try to pick up the slack though. Did you know that Pancake Dave gets his powers from the legendary martial art named Raymond Strawberry Trousers? Thank you for letting me know loading screen, but since I killed Pancake Dave three missions ago I'm not sure why you brought it up. Anyway, I should probably tell you what genre of game Devil's Third is. Well, you can't pin it down as simply as that, it drunkenly meanders between several different rooms of the gameplay house, like it just got in from a bender and can't remember where it left its kebab. It's a hack and slash shooter, military horror, character drama, bad fashion sense simulator, making the classic mistake that a bit of everything creates some kind of sumptuous buffet, when here in the real world one does not put cola cubes, live bait and mini baby bells in the same pick and mix bag. Clearly not enough of us game our lives in the trenches of right to hell retribution for everyone to learn that a brawler and a shooter don't get along in the same space. Both sides of the conflict swiftly discover that attempting to sprint across open ground screaming with sword upraised isn't doing much more than letting armed enemies use your jiggling uvula for target practice. One might reasonably ask why you would ever not use a gun, when the auto-target snaps like a hungry shark as long as you aim roughly at the suburb your enemy is located in. The game does have big tough melee dudes that can soak up a lot of bullets and I have fond memories of standing on top of things they couldn't climb, my gunshots forming the gay ribbons of my throbbing maypole as they dance joyously around, impotently menacing the walls of my unmoving plinth. Incidentally, you can climb up some of the walls in Devil's Third, but not all of them. And the best way to figure out which is which is to kidnap one of the developers and hold a gun to their head. Failing that, there's only the scientific method of hurling yourself at every wall you come across like you have fundamentally failed to grasp the concept of a glory hole. But I digress. Why not just use guns when you can mow down an entire column of advancing sword-wielding enemies before they can even begin to regret their choice of villainous specialisation? Well, for one thing, ammo's hard to get. Not that it's uncommon, it's lying around all over the fucking place, it's just hard to get. Because the collision physics are so wonky you have to do a little Mexican hat dance around it before the game wakes up and registers you're trying to pick it up. And the other thing is that only melee attacks increase your power gauge, which lets you activate your Rage of the Gods mode, which presumably in some way helps. It doesn't seem to increase your survival chances if you get caught in a brisk shower of enemy lead, so I'm guessing it ups your damage a bit, which I might have appreciated if most enemies didn't die in one quick volley to the head region. What a bunch of pussies. And also if the game had better AI than a Tamagotchi on low battery 
battery mode. The NPCs are still mastering the difference between empty space and large immovable heavy objects. So the gameplay in Devil's Turd feels like Space Filler, a linear string of combat arenas where the enemies seem to have been placed with all the planning and careful thought with which a custard pie is placed in the vicinity of somebody's face. Never evolving because health regenerates and the best weapons are available from the word go, so all you can do is slop around for five hours like a fat prick in secondhand bathwater. But I think what ultimately condemns Devil's Turd, I said it again in case you missed that incredibly hilarious joke the first time, is that it's complete nonsense! First you're some Duke Nukem-esque lone hero in sunglasses and only missing the singlet because it burst off you in your last flexing session, then suddenly the game is pretending to be a modern military shooter and you're in a unit of American soldiers you're apparently supposed to care about, but whose members come and go like the Megadeth lineup. Then mutant monsters show up for a bit and things turn Resident Evil-y before the soldiers all piss off and the game turns into a World War II shooter for like five minutes before the monsters show up again, all over the place doesn't do it justice. That implies there was only one place for it to be all over. This is the Bukaki shoot that got cut short after the participants drowned. Oh boy, I love reviewing new Mario RPGs. Taking another opportunity to bang on about how they'll never be as good as Paper Mario the Thousand Year Door never fails to thrill me on an almost erotic level. This time, however, I can do it with added relevance, as Mario and Luigi Paper Jam, that's Mario and Luigi Paper Jam bros in the European regions, I wonder if they need to specifically confirm that they're brothers so we don't look for other explanations for why two grown men with German porn star moustaches would spend so much time together, is the crossover between the Paper Mario and Mario and Luigi series is that nobody asked for. Why am I reminded for the second week in a row of an orphaned puppy being let in out of the rain. It's like Nintendo found Paper Mario stuck to the underside of their jackboot one day and they've been trying to think of somewhere to put him ever since. They're making him share a bunk bed with the runty little brother, which is at least an improvement on the Paper Mario sticker star situation when he was being kept in the septic tank. Just re-release Thousand Year Dawn, Nintendo, for fuck's sake. I promise not to give you more shit than you're currently getting. The premise of Paper Jam is that a magic book gets inevitably disturbed and a swarm of paper characters descends upon the Mushroom Kingdom and everyone gets to meet the alternate paper version of themselves. It's like a stationary-themed remake of invasion of the body snatchers. Thus is the stage set for a Mario and Luigi game to make its usual two jokes. One, let's all laugh at Luigi for having emotions, and two, boy howdy that princess sure gets kidnapped a lot. Only now it's two princesses, and there's a scene where they're stuck in a cage together where I was absolutely convinced they were about to start lezzing up. So it's another episode in the great Saturday morning cartoon of Mario's live defeat Bowser's rescue princesses, maintain always the status quo, just with a bit more paperwork than usual, hem hem. How the crossover works is that Mario and Luigi contribute the mechanics, visual design controls and general style from their games while Paper Mario is also there. He's not much more than another tag-along to extend the miniature snake of characters you're parading around the world, and to make it even more difficult than it already was to get all of you to jump onto something. They do include a button to make all three jump at once, but that jump isn't high enough to reach most ledges or bonus blocks for no particular reason besides fuck you. Mario and Luigi never spending any time in Paper Mario's world feels like a curious missed opportunity, especially since the last two M&L games have been all about the dual world thing, and especially especially since Paper Jam is straining so hard to think of new ideas you can practically hear its hernia plop rhythmically in and out. Pressure to perform on stage at the Great Spelling Bee of Creativity, Paper Jam wets its knickers and runs crying to the Mario Comfort Zone, or rather zones. Everyone sing along, Grasslands Desert, Ocean Jungle, Ice World, Fire World Boss. In fact, those are literally the areas we visit in order of progression. It's like a Minecraft map where the biomes are only 12 foot across. I think I've said before, it's always a shame when a Mario RPG goes back to formula, when they've been at their best when they indulged ideas outside the everyday kidnap, murder and arson of the Mushroom Kingdom, i.e. climbing up Bowser's rectal passage, and Paper Jam is about as back to formula as it gets, to the point that it's 
seems to have formula instead of a plot, by which I mean all the usual suspects are arranged in their usual places and then proceed to move about like turds around the floor of a flooded bathroom until events meander their way aimlessly to a climax. So we chase after Bowser and fight underling after underling, the princesses resist each other's womanly charms long enough to plan an elaborate escape that is immediately foiled, so one wonders why the game spent so much time building it up. Another inoffensive corporate stooge gets elected to the White House and the world continues inexorably to turn. Every now and again the game remembers Mario RPGs are supposed to be the wacky crazy ones and has characters act out a faintly desperate little comedy skit for our amusement, but it's not the lack of comedy that's the problem, it's the lack of drama. A fairly large portion of the game is spent rescuing paper toads in a variety of hide-and-seek style minigames, but they're just in a flap because they're in a world that can't be threatened with safety scissors and there's nothing specific that they need rescuing from. You could argue that there is afterwards because we immediately sell them into slavery, but more on that later. The main challenge of the game is for me deciding what part of it got the most tedious. For most of it I thought the paper toad gathering was going to take home the gold, but then towards the end I think the combat started putting a very convincing case forward, as I braved a seemingly interminable sequence of boss fights that required me to spam my special attacks, all of which take about half an hour of minigames to pull off, and which do fuck all damage if you get the timing wrong because your brain is squeezing the drips from every gland it can reach just to keep you from passing out. Most of the special attacks were either copy-pasted from previous Mario & Luigi games or are similar enough that it makes no odds, but just as the game occasionally remembers Mario RPGs are irreverent and proceeds to embarrass itself on the open mic circuit, it also occasionally remembers that Mario RPGs are experimental and pulls out something like the card battling system, which is too grand a name for a secondary item menu whose contents you don't get to choose. Cards range from the acquire a number of coins equal to your star points divided by your level plus the current market value of nickel, sort of useless, and good ones embodying the eternal gaming paradox, useful, therefore never use. Lastly, most notably, we have papercraft fights. Every now and again the whole turn-based combat 2D RPG thing nips off to the green room for a Gatorade and a wank, while we play a totally disconnected 3D fighting minigame in which characters fling oversized cardboard facsimiles of themselves at each other. It's like trying to play air hockey on a table on which some people are trying to fuck. Like all 3D gameplay in the Soviet dystopia of 3DS world, the one analogue stick per citizen policy means that seeing where the fuck you're going is a decadent capitalist luxury, and for no particular reason you need to do a little rhythm game to get your weapon energy back. Maybe it was some legal necessity like the live music in episodes of The Young Ones, or maybe something ordered by the Un-Nintendo Activities Committee. You can wade ankle deep through shredded cardboard in your sick Thunderdome Bloodsport arena, but you've got to have a little sing-along in between to balance it out. Anyway, the real question for me is how they built these things. All I know is we rounded up a bunch of paper toads and sent them to work in the weapons development lab. Where are they getting all the cardboard for- OH MY GOD YOU MONSTERS! You may have heard, as I did from the gratuitous Stabbing Murder Quarterly Digest, that Assassin's Creed is being put to bed for a year so it can stare at its bedroom ceiling through a film of tears and wonder if she's ever coming back. And I was all like, a AAA game publisher acting with a modicum of self-awareness? I'm pretty sure that was in the Book of Revelations somewhere. I'm totally on board with this plan. Fuck, I'll come and tuck Assassin's Creed in if it wants, lay down the rubber sheet in case Assassin's Creed 3 shits the bed again. Of course, within days of saying there won't be an Assassin's Creed game in 2016, Ubisoft perjured itself by releasing an Assassin's Creed Chronicles game, but I guess as an episode 2D Assassin's Creed, it hardly counts as an Assassin's Creed Assassin's Creed, but more like one more bedtime story before we put the light out. And now I've said assassin so many times, the word's gone weird on me. It's got two asses in it, fucking crazy. Ass ass. Sounds like what you'd call somebody's bottom after it got bitten by a radioactive donkey. Anyway, two episodes of Chronicles are out, with a third penciled in for February, I think, and the reason I've chosen to cover them is because I realised after the one-two snorefest of Unity and Syndicate that one of the main things dragging down, I'm bored of saying it now, stabbing enthusiasts' dogma is all of the stuff that isn't stabbing related. If I 
were interviewing murderers to find a suitable candidate to shift my ex-wife, it would be of little interest to me whether or not they had any experience in real estate development or collecting the 20 hidden snotty handkerchiefs. What murderer's ideology needs to do is get things back to basics and focus on the ideological murdering. What better way to do that than with a linear 2D platformer? To get so enthusiastic tearing out features that you also lose a dimension somewhere along the way. The first one was set in 16th century China, the second in 19th century India, but it hardly matters. They're both the same plot as usual, assassins and templars both chasing after another magic MacGuffin, shit gets stabbed. So if you are fielding suggestions, Ubisoft, how about a plot that's actually based around how the two groups differ ideologically, rather than yet another gritty violent remake of It's a Mad 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 World? I mean the whole Sasso Tempo conflict is just he said she said at this point. All ideological movements with no specific end goal inevitably descend into just another group with no purpose except to sustain its own existence and shun the opposition. That's why debating on the internet is like trying to headbutt a brontosaurus to death. Unity sort of gave the game away with its star-crossed lovers plot, showing that Sasso's and Tempo's could find a lot of common ground if they got round a table and maybe organised some kind of good-natured sports day, but I digress. Chronicles is a stealth platformer somewhat reminiscent of Mark of the Ninja by way of Prince of Persia, so has boiling things down to this level helped get Executioner's Catechism back on track? Has it Brontosaurus, bollocks? I think the problem was the same one I have, making Bolognese, in that they didn't boil it down enough. Trying to keep a three-way gameplay thing going, balancing pure combat, stealth assassinating, or pure stealth, which is hard enough to balance with three dimensions to play with, in two it's like a chimney sweep trying to juggle. The combat really is spectacularly bad. Enemies run up and don't so much stab you as wipe their swords on your midriff, and for most of the game can kill you in two or three wipes. Meanwhile, you can block or you can do a roll thingy to get on their other side, in case your midriff has been wiped enough and you feel it's time you're back at some attention as well. What, you think you could use it to run away, there's only one direction to run in and everyone's got projectile weapons. The button prompt for dodging projectiles is about as reasonable as a hungry shark. The question is, Mr and Mrs Chronicles, what reason is there, when an enemy spots me, to not just lower my weapon Obi-Wan Kenobi style and let them curb stomp me back to the last checkpoint? The game hits the autosave button every three steps, like Michael J Fox with a TV remote, so I'm not going to lose more time than I'd lose trying to combat my way out, plus the game looms over me constantly with a clipboard, making it abundantly clear with every checkpoint how many points are getting deducted for every time I don't perform up to the standards of Batman in the last ten minutes of a Batman film. And let's not forget, as I've implied up to this point, the act of playing the combat on a moment-to-moment -moment level is about as fun as trying to free your genitalia from the workings of a grandfather clock, which may imply that the stealth is more fun than prizing the shreds of the tattered chamois leather that was once your nutsack from between a pair of merciless steel gears, but I assure you no such implication was intended. The enemies have visibility cones the length of your average high street, which have a tendency to suddenly appear or swing around without warning as a character slightly off-screen turns around or unexpectedly comes through a door, so all all in all, besides a few somewhat open-ended levels, there's not a whole lot to recommend the core gameplay. Of the two episodes thus far, I think I prefer China over India, but then I am a communist. The combat is marginally worse because the block move requires two controls for no particular reason unless Ubisoft have shares in a thumb injury clinic, but as we've established, getting into combat at all is fucking up, so it doesn't matter so much. China's a bit more focused, with more nice straightforward get to X and stab Y missions, while India has the Assassin's Creed 3 problem of being 99% tutorial, because every other level introduces a new gameplay gimmick that will immediately afterwards get dropped like a sex offender from a parent-teacher association. It's also got a great big curry-scented stiffy for timed levels, most of which also obnoxiously demand perfection, but at least they mainly have the decency to just kill you when you fuck up. They don't try to convince you you could escape from your fuck up because it wants an excuse to beat you up in front of its girlfriend. And finally, you know how Assassin's Creed games always have the in-game encyclopedia to fill in details on characters, places and history? Well I think they must have fobbed that job off onto the intern this time around because the writing's atrocious. It can't seem to get through a paragraph without at least one run-on sentence, and the mix 
of tenses make me unmixedly tense. One entry I noticed at one point included the phrase way too dangerous. Who the fuck wrote that? The girl from Clueless? Yeah, so like, there were Templars and they totally did bad things and stuff. A highly subjective gripe, I know, but I don't think this industry can afford to let writing standards slip any lower. They're already wheelchair accessible. So in summary, Ubisoft is correct in thinking that Sasso Credo needs to go away and think about what it's done. But my question is, now we've had a Revelations and a Chronicles, could the series go on long enough to eventually use all the subtitle cliches? Fingers crossed for Assassin's Creed Armageddon. I'll freely admit that I wasn't expecting much of Xenoblade Chronicles X. Firstly, it stuck an X either side of its name, like a Counter-Strike player with divorced parents, and then I assumed it was a JRPG, with all that that brings with it. Over-reliance on visual spectacle, horrible gameplay, and incredibly contrived plot. Reading a summary of the previous game, presumably Xenoblade Chronicles W, certainly didn't help. Everybody lives on two giants, and there's a sword that predicts the future, and it was Earth all along. What?! But I have to admit, there was something refreshing about Xenoblade Chronicles X. For one thing, it freely admits that the spunky teenage girl character is 13, which does make it a little bit creepy that you can dress her up in swimsuits, but I respect the game for not chickening out and claiming she's 18 in the English translation. It also has a refreshingly straightforward plot. Aliens have blown up the Earth because aliens are bastards. The only surviving human ship crash lands on an alien world, sets up a colony and must gather the fallen bits of the spaceship from the four corners of the planet, or humans might finally die out. Gotcha. A nice solid maypole for all the plots, subplots, and character arcs to dance around. That said, the effort to make sure the plot leaves no one behind starts to wear on me quick, like when they mention the Earth getting blown up like 19 times in the first hour. Then there's a mission early on where your support characters go, wait, we should be careful, there's a strong monster ahead. Usually these kinds of monsters are not very strong, but this one is quite strong indeed. I see, so we should be careful and prepare ourselves for a fight against this strong monster. Sorry, are you really taking five fucking minutes to explain to me the concept of elite monsters? Why are you banging on about this when no one's yet told me where I get my giant robot? Anyway, X-Blade Exicles X is technically a JRPG, but it's more accurately an open world game of the kind somewhat peculiar to the Japanese, like Yakuza or Deadly Premonition, in which the player character fills the dual role of stolid adventurer hero type and unpaid counsel surveying officer. Yeah, Western open world games love to make you map out the territories one by one, but only the Japanese open world game will make you catalogue every enemy, conversation, random pickup and blade of grass before it deigns to admit itself to be 100% completed. Xenoblade Chronicles X is a Xenoblade Chronicles exponentially dense game, whose dialogue wastes so much time establishing the patently bloody obvious that it forgets to tell you about half the fucking gameplay mechanics so you have to figure it out yourself by holding your nose and diving into the horribly designed interface. For example, once you map out a region, you can optimise the probe networks to either mine more fuel or earn more money. But I quickly had more of both than I knew what to do with, so I gave less of a shit than the CEO of a major pharmaceutical supplier. You invest in weapon and armour companies to expand their stock, create and upgrade weapon augmentations, which is how you're supposed to use all those random twigs and solidified bunny farts you pick up in the overworld. You're supposed to be upgrading your weapon attacks and skills from the menu, and you have to do that for everyone you take on as a party member because apparently no one can pull up their big girl petticoats, unless you specifically tell them to. It's all very unintuitive, and you get to do all of this while listening to the same four or five music tracks until you want to find whatever hip-hop artist coined the practice of going, uh, uh, yeah, in place of lyrics, and push a small volume of Shakespearean sonnets down his windpipe. The combat reminds me of Dragon's Dogma, in that you can hire other players' avatars as NPC support. They aren't being controlled by another player, but then they don't need to be. The combat could be done just as well by a fucking adding machine. It's very memorpagory. You've got a suite of attack icons, and it's mainly about using them in the right order to maximise efficiency. Here's one that staggers the enemy, here's one that does extra damage to staggered enemies, not exactly particle physics. But while technically real-time, it's totally numbers-based, so attackers do the Final Fantasy thing of vaguely waving their weapons
weapons in the vicinity of the attackee, and whether or not they appear to be close enough is a supremely academic matter, which makes it hard to run away from battles when you stumble onto something 30 levels higher the size of the double-decker bus that just ploughed through the brick shithouse, which happens all the fucking time because the relation between the levels of monsters and at what point in the game you access the areas they hang around is an estranged one at best. Putting a level 60 elite monster in the middle of a linear path you're forced to go down for a level 20 story quest is a total Richard relocation, that is to say, dick move. So far I'm probably giving the impression that I'm down on this game, but I played it for like 30 hours, so either there's something I like about it or I'm severely mentally ill. Let's not dwell on that. The scenery is nice, and you'll have plenty of time to appreciate it as you sprint around it trying to find the path that takes you to the next fucking probe. I like that there's a minimum side questing requirement for the next story mission so you've got a chance to explore, and I like how the side quests usually have a narrative aspect that fleshes out characters and aren't just filling out checklists. Might have been even better if most of the characters hadn't been boring assholes, and the ones that weren't boring hadn't been more irritating than a mouth ulcer during a sherbet lemon eating contest. A bit of interpersonal conflict between main characters wouldn't have gone amiss, but nope, it's just cartoonishly evil villains and everyone else lives in a great big Mormon Boy Scout camp. Oh thank you for teaching me this lesson in duty and friendship, licky licky botty botty. In fact, you know what, the main thing that kept me going was seeing how long it was going to take before the game would finally give me the fucking giant robot advertised on the box. For most of it, it was like I was hinting to my parents what I wanted for Christmas and the game was just going, well maybe if you're very good, the giant robot fairy will visit someday. You want to know how long it took? 24 hours in, 6 or 7 story chapters. Fuck me, the Spanish Inquisition wouldn't tease you for that long. It came without warning. Hey, said the commander dude out of nowhere. Isn't it time you had your giant robot license? To which I replied, yes, fuck, yes, fuck, fuck, yes, fuck. Fair enough, all you have to do is complete eight side quests. You know, I understand the principle that satisfaction grows the more work we have to put into it, but at this rate the giant robot could have been made from chewed up Lego and my spooge would still have blasted my trousers off. But I powered on through, I did those quests, I killed the monsters, I scoured the land for the fetch quest items, I worked every shaft and tickled every ball, and finally my hard work paid off. 25 hours and I had a giant robot to call my very own. Gleefully I took it for a spin around the overworld, leaping, dancing, turning into a car, stepping on the toes of a level 60 elite monster, and getting destroyed in one hit. Well that was an anti-climax. Nope, wait. This is an anti-climax. The Witness is a new game by Jonathan Blow. Ironically, it sucks. <laughs> Obnoxious laugh. It's a first-person puzzle game inspired by Myst, in that you're a faceless dork on a mysterious island that was bought by the Disney Corporation in the 70s, but they never quite figured out what they were going to do with it. So now you roam the partially constructed castles and pirate ships while occasionally sitting down to fill out a puzzle from the back of a cereal box. Of course, the thing about Myst and the walking simulator genre is that there's usually some kind of story going on to make you want to keep going, and I'm not saying The Witness doesn't have a plot, but if it does, it's like a single balloon tied to the corpse of a sperm whale. I didn't finish if it's anything like Braid, Jonathan Blow's other game, the story bits that tie everything together and reveal what the point of the whole thing was probably come at the end, but I wouldn't know. Hold up a Mars bar at the far end of an obstacle course of broken glass and pictures of my parents fucking, and I won't care if it's the most sumptuous Mars bar the factory ever crafted. By the end I'm just gonna walk straight past it and knee you in the fucking bollocks. The game boasts over 500 puzzles, and I very much believe it. What it fails to mention is that these are over 500 iterations of the same puzzle, which involves drawing a line around a grid in order to satisfy a variety of esoteric conditions, which the game is frequently very bad at explaining, because I guess written instructions are the shackles of the man, man, but if you do figure them out then they guide you through the paths of the mysterious overworld which is, let's be fair, very pretty in a hotel room artwork with the saturation turned up sort of way. There's a bit of an invisible wall pandemic, but there's a bold use of contrasting colours and I like the water effects particularly. The trouble is that most of the puzzles don't integrate with the lovely environments at all. Yeah, you can dangle your feet in this babbling brook and enjoy the sunlight playing off the flowers, but at some point you're gonna have to get up and gormlessly stare at a piece of graph paper 
paper someone nailed to the wall and figure out how to draw a line that separates all the coloured squares, creates a space shape like a Tetris block, and disappears up the bum of a cartoon horse. It's like wandering around Disneyland with a book of word searches. Oh, the mean old puzzles hurt Yahtzee Boo Boo's fragile little gamey brainy Wayne. Perhaps he'd be more suited to the kind of puzzle where you only draw straight lines connecting a shotgun barrel to a foreign insurgent's left testicle. Hey, twat finder general, I solved the puzzles, I just wasn't having fun doing so. I completed the whole island, turned on all the laser beams, opened up the mountain to what I suspect was the final climactic area, and then the game threw 15 more line drawing puzzles at my face and frankly fuck that. Congratulations on getting through that bowl of dog food, player. Here's your reward, another helping of dog food. And another thing, whatever visionary artistic benefit one gets from a complete lack of music, a small amount of testing should have revealed probably wasn't worth it. Silence is good for atmosphere building up to a certain point, but the silence in Witness starts weighing on me like a granite fizz, and not in a fun Silent Hill oppressive sort of way, more the if I don't alt tab out and put on some music or a podcast, I am going to fall asleep so hard that the space bar will get embedded in my face like an impromptu Groucho Marx disguise. So in summary, get the witness if you genuinely can't ever do enough cereal box maze puzzles. Personally, I'm more of a junior jumble man. So speaking of jumblies, let's go about as far along the tone spectrum as we can for our next game. Hey, Yahtzee, said Steam towards the end of the week, do you remember that announcement trailer you saw a while back for a game called Bombshell? I do indeed, it was one of the worst trailers I've ever seen. I think they made it by gluing poser models together with cold spunk. Oh, well the game's out now. P.T. fucking keen! Bombshell is a top-down shooter with a somewhat retro air to it, published by 3D Realms of all people, the Duke Nukem lads, so maybe one could think of this as their penance for all those female characters in Duke Nukem whose sole contribution to the experience was breasts optionally attached to their bodies. Because Bombshell has a female protagonist. Way to prove those feminazi haters wrong, 3D Realms, although just to be safe, maybe you should play up the fact she's a woman another six or seven million times. Bombshell champions the strong female character in that utterly cringeworthy way that makes me slightly nostalgic for PC gaming in the 90s. So of course she's an unflappable badass who's effortlessly better than all the boys, and bubbles constantly with non-specific rage, and the fact that she's a woman is the central if not only element of her identity. The single fact that tells you everything you need to know is that she uses a rocket launcher called the PMS. Wow, that's some next level shit there. Suppose we should be grateful it wasn't hot pink and fired Sex in the City DVDs. Anyway, Bombshell journeys through a portal to an alien world in order to save the president from invading aliens. Better keep that Oscar for best screenplay on hand. The president's also feeling and identical in personality to Bombshell because coming up with one strong female archetype used up half the budget and Bombshell's tits took care of the rest. But let's get off this topic because I can sense the gender politics vultures circling and frankly I couldn't give two sucks on your mum's fat titties how positive a role model Bombshell presents for young women with rocket launchers if the game's fun. And it isn't. Again I found myself reaching for the alt tab to find a podcast, although in this case it wasn't for lack of sound, it was to drown out the fucking awful quips Bombshell throws out on a per second basis. How many aliens does it take to change a light bulb? Ooh I think I I know this one, Bombshell. Is it the same as the last 27 times you asked? You twat! It also helped pass the time when I was plodding through samey maps tracking side quest objectives because the game persists in the delusion that it's an RPG, even though the weapon and stat upgrades are less significant than a pubic louse in a cancer ward. I'd suggest skipping the side quests, but unfortunately the map doesn't differentiate between which vague indicator marks the main quest and which the optional ones, so get ready to backtrack like a politician suddenly noticing a live mic. As for the action itself, if you shoot monsters they usually respond by falling over, so that's one star at least, but the game has a strange obsession with making you jump over instant death chasms, which in a top-down isometric perspective incorporates a high-stakes game of guess the distance. The interface layout is horrible with the extremely vital health percentage that tells you when you're about to die, tucked away in tiny whiny font between your cup size and tampon inventory. I think the moment I knew my opinion wasn't going to change was after I died a few times to a boss monster with a strong resemblance to a huge spiny tentacled cock. Maybe that's just my interpretation, but I think it's a point against the game if it can't even distract me from the phantom penis monster. Monsters. 
Gravity Rush is a game first released in 2012 that at the time nobody played. Oh, don't be so hyperbolic, Yahtzee, you know full well it was a PlayStation Vita exclusive. I beg your pardon. Gravity Rush is a game first released in 2012 that at the time nobody played except for some mad people. I did hear the game was alright, but I wasn't gonna buy a fucking PS Vita to play it. That'd be like adopting an incontinent chimpanzee because you fancy the lady who comes around to change his nappies. Thankfully, a remastered version of Gravity Rush came out last week for the PS4, which I very much appreciate because I'm sick of all this mad people privilege in modern society. They get all these exclusive games, they hog all the fun medications, and there seems to be a whole bunch of them running for president at the moment. Anyway, Gravity Rush is a sort of Japanese take on the superhero sandbox genre, and broadly resembles what you'd get if Infamous had been directed by Jean-Pierre Genet. It is also probably the only game you'll ever play in which the central character is a flying homeless person. If not, then it's definitely the only game about a flying homeless person who dresses like a slag. In a weird fantasy floating city where constant magic storms and attacks by weird blobby monsters are doing catastrophic things to house prices, a strange girl wakes up with no memory and equipped with the following things. A magic cat made of Vegemite, the ability to manipulate gravity in a small area around herself, and a renaissance fair burlesque dancer's outfit. She sets out on an epic quest to discover the truth about herself, which she abandons almost immediately because she got distracted by a shiny object. Seriously, the plot must have been written by the kind of person who gets bored halfway through reading a stop sign, because it feels like the game brings up a new plot thread every ten minutes and never ties any of them up. By the end they're all left swaying in the breeze like the phrase of the poorly knitted sweater the main character sorely needs to put on. I'll spoil right now that we never find out who the fuck the amazing homeless stripper is, or where she came from, and she doesn't seem to care. Her first priority is to set up home in a sewer tunnel, and then start hanging around in the car park of a home depot looking for odd jobs. She does some work with the police, the army, she becomes a maid at one point. Is this a story or a series of contrived excuses to put on fetish outfits? Oh, I think you know. As I said, there's monsters, we never figure out where they come from. Wait, this one was trying to protect someone, is there more to them than meets the eye? No, move on. Look, there's another homeless stripper with gravity powers, perhaps she knows who we really are. She doesn't. Oh. Well, did we both get gravity powers from the same source? Probably, who cares? Now there's a mysterious master thief antagonising us who seems to know something about our past. Oh, he's dead. Never mind. Oh no, the city's been taken over by a fascist military state. What could their sinister plan be? Is it to weaponize the mo- It's to weaponize the monsters. How did you guess? Other than it being the video game fascist military state default setting. So the final climactic showdown is with a monster that was introduced two minutes beforehand. But wait, the deposed fascist military leader knows something about your past. Great, what is it? Hey, we've got to leave something for the sequel, haven't we? I do find the characters and setting endearing in a City of Lost Children with the anime turned up to a billion kind of way, but the story's all set up and no payoff. It's like trying to masturbate to the first season of Lost. How the flying works is that you push a button to shift gravity to the direction you're looking in, so you don't so much fly as plummet in specific directions. Whatever surface your nubile young body smashes into at terminal velocity becomes your new floor, which can get slightly annoying if you hit a lamppost or something and end up tightrope walking over the abyss that is Main Street. Though frankly, if you do hit a wall, you're doing it wrong. Despite the main title image being of the heroine standing on a wall, there's not a whole lot of tactical usage to standing on walls, unless you're trying to teach the third person camera the essentials of ballroom dancing. It's a lot more expedient to keep switching gravity before you hit things and stay in the air. But having said that, the gravity switching controls could be more efficient. In fact, they could be precisely 100% more efficient because you have to press the button twice to change the direction of gravity where I feel once would have done. The first press cancels all gravity and puts you into hover mode, the second picks the new gravity. It's like having to stop the car and put it in neutral before you can change gear, and your car dresses like a whore. The combat is, well, it's certainly there. Monsters appear usually for flimsy reasons and you have to hit them in the traditional obvious glowing weak spot. Again, remaining on whatever currently passes for the ground is a mugs game, because hitting the weak spots calls for accuracy that is found wanting in standard kicks and jump kicks. I just stayed in the air and used the gravity shifting dive kicks, speeding towards targeted weak points, missing and disappearing over the horizon as if only just now realising that I didn't put my trousers on this morning. The combat works when it becomes this sort of aerial ballet about finding the right angle of attack, but fails to develop from there. None of the bosses are particularly hard once you have the dive kick down. There's a couple of super powered attacks that range from more damaging 
interesting version of dive kick to complete waste of energy that would have been better spent flicking bogeys at the enemy. On that note, you can also throw physics objects, which is the most pointless and awkward to use ability of them all, don't even bother. There are some challenges based around it, which are like asking a butcher to challenge himself for five minutes by replacing his knife with a drinking straw. What's worth noting about the combat is that monsters never show up in free roam, only at predetermined points in missions. It's almost like the combat doesn't integrate terribly well as a core mechanic and is being thrown in as an arbitrary challenge whenever we remember we're supposed to be a video game. At the end of the day, Gravity Rush can't boast great design nor much of a sandbox given the shortage of missions and that you could drive around the whole world in ten minutes, and that includes the break for sandwiches, and even then there are entire sections of the world the game will do maybe one thing with and forget about, possibly because the game had to keep cutting its arms and legs off until it could squeeze into a handheld. But there's a certain charm to it, the story element feels like a basket of individual kittens loosely tied in place with string, but the highlight of the game is a mission that starts with an innocuous fetch quest and turns into a years-long odyssey to the end of the universe, and a game with tighter control of itself probably couldn't have done that. It's like Willy Wonka fucking nails the childlike wonder thing, but you wouldn't put him in charge of the company's sports day. So a couple of years back there was a game I quite liked called XCOM about aliens in the process of conquering the Earth. There's a new game called XCOM 2 about aliens having already conquered the Earth, now we just need a prequel about the aliens getting ready to conquer the Earth, cancelling the newspapers, locking up the house and putting on their space wellies, and the verb to conquer will be fully conjugated. Twenty years have passed since the last game, the Earth has come under the control of an oppressive alien regime fronted by a dorky human collaborator, and when the silent protagonist gets released from suspended animation, the resistance can finally get started, because no one was willing to get off their arse and defend themselves without the presence of this one gormless mute. But enough about the plot of Half-Life 2, let's talk about XCOM 2 instead. The game opens with a tutorial mission in which the nameless, voiceless, faceless commander is rescued from the alien's CRISPR drawer, but I thought the commander was me, the player, the one giving the orders. So when the game goes, the commander's being held captive in an alien fortress, I reply, no, I'm not. I'm sitting on this couch scratching my balls and eating a zooper duper. Soon enough we get back into the XCOM groove with a base, a research budget, and an elite fighting unit consisting of a handful of untrained part-time gym teachers in second-hand body armour. And since no one had ever heard of Dropbox in the first game, we have to research the monsters and alien weapons all over again, even though this could have been done at any point in the last two decades by looking out of the fucking window, or at the owner of the boot currently stomping on your face. You might think this is starting to sound like they made XCOM again, with just enough veneer of originality to call it a sequel, in which case you're mostly right. Well, done, here's your slightly incomplete trophy. You might also think that since I liked XCOM 1, I'd be perfectly on board with XCOM Another One, and now you're not so right, better give me that trophy back. The risk-free, copy-paste sequel carries risks of its own, for what was good and exciting when it was new sparks quickly and fades over time, whereas what's bad and annoying sticks around, like an unemployed couch-surfing friend with access to your Netflix account. The game still features that annoying, constant sensation that every decision we make has in some way fucked over our entire game forever, and I swear the random number generator has it in for me. These 95% chances to hit melee attacks seem to miss a hell of a lot more than 5% of the time, and now my melee guy's out in the open, standing next to an angry monster and forgot to bring a change of tighty whities But let's focus on the differences. There's a bit more of an emphasis on the character editor that lets you create a pool of wacky funsters for the game to randomly pick as soldiers and VIPs, which I suggest using because the random characters the game creates on the fly don't seem to have any sense of fun at all. There's all kinds of funny hats and Dame Edna spectacles to go around, but all the game produced for me was dudes with male pattern baldness and ladies with granny haircuts. Loosen the fuck up, guys. Our comrades in the field are dying for your right to dress like a complete tosser. Secondly, you don't have access to the whole world from the get-go. You have to gradually expand your secret underground resistance, whose headquarters are in a very secret and underground giant airborne helicarrier, so UFO invasions aren't a thing anymore. They'd be a bit redundant at this point. Now the random missions are all aliens are being dicks somewhere, time to load up the circumcision wagon. What's new to the turn-based combat missions is that there's a stealth element now. You can be a bit less cautious advancing forward because aliens don't immediately know where all your troops are because your last guy with a turn left noticed two fifths of a sectoid armpit through the image of a window reflecting 
deflected off the tears of a dying sparrow. Now your troops are in a concealed state until they get within a certain distance of the enemy, because let's not forget that we're a sneaky guerrilla resistance group now, as we put on our suits of armour and get helicoptered into the middle of a busy pedestrian precinct. It's just a one-time thing though, the moment one of your dude's elbows pokes into range, the aliens go back to knowing every tree, ice cream van and public convenience your lads are hiding in. Might have made some sense to go back into concealment mode once every alien in the current vicinity is dead and the rest are all across town at the company picnic, but apparently not, I guess the enemy remotely inform each other that you're around or something. Excomma here, that's a bugger. Hmm? Can we come over and help kill them? Love to, but we just started the barbecue and you're a whole hundred yards away. The concealment thing doesn't make a whole lot of sense in certain timed missions. Recover the contents of a box in enemy territory within eight turns or it'll detonate. Hold on one second there, Charlie. We start this mission concealed, so the enemy don't know that we're here, but they rigged their own stuff to explode regardless. Do they just like keeping the storage guys on their toes? It seems like there are quite a lot of timed missions in XCOM 2, and they never fail to annoy because it's taking away what the stealth offers, the chance to take your time and be a bit more thoughtful with your approach without a little monkey banging symbols next to your ear because the bananas aren't coming fast enough. But let's save some negativity for our next steaming hate fuck. I quite like some of the new base management elements, especially how the engineers can be individually assigned to specific rooms, because it reminds me of playing FTL, a slightly more fun game. I like how the map exploring and rookie training facility makes it feel like we're less reliant on the twiddle our thumbs and hope for the best management strategy, but I still somehow feel less engaged by XCOM 2 than its predecessor. Part of that might be the sloppy second sequel syndrome, but there are other things that bug me, such as the bugs, the graphical glitches, the shooting at what is blatantly a different enemy to the one I said to shoot at, the weird lag that has no business existing in a game that isn't online, nor in orbit around one of the moons of Saturn. But I think what bothers me most is that the premise is fundamentally poorly thought out. Verisimilitude is a word that comes to mind that's quite difficult to spell. The role reversal of the aliens in command and the humans being the insurgents is not reflected in any significant gameplay change. It's still us the humans getting sent out to hunt down the creepy crawlies, and the notion that aliens are accepted by the masses as benevolent overseers while mostly consisting of hissy monsters is pretty absurd. They make a big thing of how they use armoured soldiers that pass for human to hide their true nature, but the effort seems kinda wasted the first time you see them on patrol with monsters. I just don't think people would accept a giant snake as the new local constable. Good morning, PC hissy. <laughs> I'm very well, thank you, PC Hissy. How's the brood? I'm not saying video gamers have become a sedentary bunch, but 20 years ago simulators were forgetting a taste of life as an Olympic athlete or daring heroic pilot, whereas now most of them seem to be about being someone who's capable of getting up off the couch and bumming around the house. So let's talk walk-ing simulators. Let's not fall into the trap of saying walking simulators keep popping up because they're lazy. Actually, they're a bold new form of storytelling that are coincidentally much, much easier to make than a game with actual gameplay, in the same way that it's really easy to make a bread sandwich. Let's do something we haven't done in a while and put the two most recent walking simulators head to head. Firewatch, a dramatic character-based experience set against the backdrop of watching fires, and Layers of Fear, a spooky horror set against the backdrop of horrific spookiness that just came off early access. Quick question, who the fuck buys a story-based experience on early access, getting the whole thing spoiled for you while it's still crap? Um, it's about supporting creators, Yard, so you wouldn't understand. Now excuse me while I eat this handful of dry spaghetti. One. Premise. Firewatch follows the adventures of Henry, a stubby Zach Galifianakis lookalike who takes a job as a lookout at a national park in order to escape from the difficulties of his life and forms a verbal relationship with his supervisor as a mysterious intrigue develops. Meanwhile, the premise behind Layers of Fear is, isn't it a shame Silent Hills got cancelled? It's essentially the playable teaser for Silent Hills stretched out to an entire house, not just two rooms of it. You're a tortured artist alone in your spooky mansion and it's swiftly hinted there was a wife and child at some point. So yeah, you probably murdered them or ate them or strapped them to the couch and forced them to watch televised snooker until they lost the ability to reason. And that's why you're now haunted by visions of men wearing very tacky waistcoats. So if we're rewarding points, I'll give the first impression prize to Firewatch because it's not immediately clear what it's building up to. If you're in for horror or drama or just two middle-aged hairy outdoors people sexting each other all summer, whereas Layers of Fear immediately looks like we got on the Haunted Mansion ride at Disneyland. 
2. Walking. Wouldn't be much of a walking simulator without it. We're saving the sitting on the couch simulator for when the average BMI goes up again. So Henry's task is to wander around the park, completing the objectives that his boss gives him, which range from go to a place and look at a thing, to look at a place and go to a thing. But that's only if you're one of those tiresome squares who see life as nothing more than a to-do list. You can also explore the park freely and look for secret things, which is the to-do list for cool people. The main purpose of walking in layers of fear is to bum around the room inspecting the furniture until something spooky happens, after which you leave the room by the door you came in, except now it leads to a different room because illogical architecture is spooky. Well, before it's happened 90 bloody times anyway, and then it just becomes the new logic. And it would have been spookier if the doors went back to being sensible, because then I'd suspect they were up to something. Still, I did notice that our protagonist walks with a limp, which was a neat little background storytelling detail, but then I wondered why I was noticing something like that, and concluded it was because I'd explored 300 identical drawing rooms and was more bored than a lesbian at a sausage festival. 3. What grudgingly passes for gameplay Both Layers of Fire and Fear Watch make the usual half-hearted burbling sound that walking simulators make for want of a challenge, that being FIND ALL THE DOCUMENTS the kind of challenge one can enjoy at a fraction of the cost by spending the afternoon tidying your home office. Firewatch spices it up with find all the conversations, as you eagerly radio in to report every bit of scenery and discarded rubber Johnny. Otherwise, Layers of Fear's main challenge is to summon the courage to keep playing in the face of an endless sequence of cheap jumps and scares, which aren't difficult to predict after a while. There is no end to the game's fascination with making things happen behind you. At one point the words don't look back appeared on a wall, then there was a creepy noise behind me, and I could almost smell the game's disappointment as I ignored it completely and kept walking. Firewatch Watch's more open-ended presentation lends itself to orienteering gameplay, which became a lot more interesting after I found the option to turn off the map marker showing precisely where you are, but I only found it during the second run-through, and by then I'd bummed around the park enough that it was as familiar to me as my home office, although with slightly less organic life growing in it. 4. Payoff Firewatch's dialogue-based storytelling did draw me in, there's a lot of character to it, and quite a lot of variation based on what order you do things and how much about Henry's personal life you reveal to the voice in the box. It must be jolly complicated, as evidenced by the occasional fart, like when the lady started yelling about finishing her crossword halfway through the deepest point of the scary intrigue, but I found myself disappointed by the explanation of the mystery at the end. Oh, all mysteries are disappointing once explained, Yahtzee. That's why no one listens when you explain that the Loch Ness Monster was your granddad doing the backstroke with his knob out. I know, but it didn't help that the main explanation was given on a a very poor quality tape recording so I could only make out half the words. That's part of the reason I went through it a second time, to put the fucking subtitles on for that bit, and also to see if the actual events of the plot change at all if you pick different dialogue choices and actions, the short answer being like, fuck they do, so the overall payoff is a profound feeling of anticlimax. Meanwhile, in Layers of Fear, it turns out your wife's dead and you're probably in hell or something. Bloody typical. Am I right, fellas? 5. Conclusion The problem with Firewatch is it's the kind of game where I'll say I don't like it because X, and everyone will say X is the whole point! I'd say it looks alright and the dialogue is strong if occasionally hovering around the city limits of sarcastic clever clogs Joss Whedon Town, but I left feeling underwhelmed because nothing much happened and what did happen didn't mean anything, and they'll say ooh that's the point, it's a meditation on the futility of escaping the petty miseries of modern life. Yeah, but I could get the same feeling from immersing my head in a bowl of water and my doctor told me to stop doing that! As for Layers of Fear, like PT, it's not much more than a show case of spooky set pieces, but PT never claimed to be a complete game. Makes me think of Evil Within, you try to make an entire game out of a delusional nightmare sequence and it gets boring because it never lets up and the nightmare becomes the norm. Bid us to sit down and pull the chair away as we do so, but don't keep doing it. Do it once, then apologise, let us sit for a while, wait till we're calm, then throw spiders at our face and burn the house down. That's what I do and I've never heard complaints. No coherent ones, anyway. 
This really is one of those occasions that highlights the gulf between video game critics and their audience, besides the fact that we're immeasurably sexier. I could sit here on my sexy ass complaining that Ubisoft have hacked out another addition to one of their franchises that plays pretty much the same as the previous, only now it's wearing a different hat, but most people seem to think, who cares? It's not like we're under obligation to play every game that comes out and disproportionately demand novelty, for the sake of getting through another week without jamming a steel bracket through our eye sockets and turning ourselves into a human co-track. That's a small, admittedly sexy minority of weirdos. Maybe Ubisoft are just catering to normal, boring, attractive people who like Far Cry just fine as it is but could go for seconds. The thing is, hypothetical speaker, that if it's just Far Cry you want then Far Cry 3 has yet to be topped and hasn't gone anywhere. It's even got quite a good plot, the occasional titty. So there's got to be some shriveled part of you that expects novelty or they wouldn't need to keep bringing out new ones in different settings. There, I win the argument, now piss off, you're getting straw all over the place. Far Cry Primal, aka the land before plots, turns the Far Cry modern person in wilderness connects with violent primitive inner self thing on its head somewhat by being about a violent primitive outer self in the wilderness connecting their big heavy club with the skulls of rival tribe members. Set in Central Europe in a time when the world was a lot smaller, judging by the way it can be an entirely different fucking season if you walk north for half an hour, our hero is Takar, a nondescript caveman who sounds a bit like Adam Jensen reading aloud from a Scandinavian phrase book. His entire tribe is wiped out by a vicious saber-toothed tiger and he finds himself in a lush new territory in which he must unite the scattered remnants of his tribe and genocide the fuck out of the other two tribes that are trying to claim it, who don't deserve it as much as our tribe because of self-evident reasons. I suppose I can't hold out much hope for identifiable characters when we're dealing with a cast of Neanderthals who will never know the pain of soft toilet paper tearing halfway through the wipe, but you're in the wrong place if you're looking for an engaging plot, or indeed any plot. You might think the shit I've described so far constitutes a plot, but you'd be wrong. The killer saber-toothed tiger that sparks off the adventure we kill later on as one of the big hunt missions without even much prominence. I ousted both the rival tribes, who I'll just reiterate we aren't given much reason to oppose except that they'd also quite like to survive the winter, but the game still didn't end. This is the game that Ubisoft sandboxes have been tacitly threatening to turn into for quite some time now, one where all sense of structural progress is kept as vague as possible for want of turning the game into a platform for a series of disconnected events and repetitive challenges. I suspect because it's easier for the inevitable fucking DLC to slot into like a bloodstained erection. But you know what, I'm with you Ubisoft, who needs some uppity creative trying to dictate to me how to experience their creation? I mean where do the creators of Breaking Bad get off telling me I should watch season 1 before season 2? Oh because I quote, won't understand what's going on, you don't know me! And who does this Shakespeare motherfucker think he is, putting the pages in numbered order? I am the master of my domain, I choose to shuffle them all up and read the text from right to left. Maybe I'm experiencing sandbox fatigue, but when upcoming characters and plot elements are given away on loading screens and by looking at the locked items on the upgrade menu, something's gotten fucked up. Anyway, it's Far Cry, so you know what that means. Animal hunting and assaulting enemy camps. There's a pretty big emphasis on crafting, the mechanic which is to modern games what influenza was to the early 20th century, but perhaps it's fitting since you're a caveman and crafting is their whole thing, besides swinging clubs and putting their dicks in things. You pretty much have to pick up every resource you see if you want to stay on top of all the hut building and weapon improving. Incidentally, I'd recommend turning off gathering animations, because the first person camera lurching down to pat dead cavemen on the body starts to give me a headache, but maybe sometimes I don't want to run around body patting, maybe I just want to ride my saber-toothed tiger through a forest. Oh yeah, you can tame animals, which is sort of the compensation for not having guns, because rather than sniping all the guards from a nearby hill you just deploy a giant bear and throw bees at the survivors. You don't fuck around in my hundred acre wood. Hey, remember in Far Cry 4 they had those hallucinatory missions where you played a primitive warrior with animal friends? It's the same thing they did when they threw the ship missions into Assassin's Creed 3, where it was totally vestigial and barely connected to the rest of it, but also a secret proof of concept for Ass Creed 4. Ubisoft games all sprawl over each other now like an incestuous farming cult. Anyway, as tends to be the case with Far Cry, the variety of approaches means you'll inevitably gravitate to one that totally breaks the game and boredom swiftly follows. For me, it was throwing berserk bombs from my scouting owl. The enemy can't do shit about your scouting owl because their huge neolithic foreheads means they can't look up. Once you unlock the ability to drop bombs from your owl, you just find a guy in the enemy stronghold with the shield icon that indicates he has boosted health to a frankly ridiculous degree, drop a berserk bomb on him, 
then find a nice bush to hide in while the enemy work things out among themselves. Get it right and you'll only have to deal with one very tired elite enemy with 400 spears stuck in his bum. I stopped playing Far Cry Primal because nearly all the missions were done except for three hunts against special super predators and great big loincloth displacing bollocks to those. I went into the first one and spent half an hour doing a giant scale join the dots puzzle looking for the fucking thing. Use your hunter senses to pick up the beast's trail. I'm trying objective list but it would help if you'd stop turning my hunter sense off every five fucking seconds. You're like my dad with the fucking thermostat. Anyway I found the killer tiger and the fight began. After several rounds of traps, spears and throwing smaller tigers at it, it had lost an entire third of its health at which point it went bored now, took its ball and went home. Better wait till the following night to continue this, advised the game. Be fair, he needs some time to think about his choices in life. Three times this happened before I finally wore him down, but it was worth it because then I could tame him. Just wait till the enemy gets a load of this monster, I thought, before I unleashed him on one of the dudes with the shield icons who killed him in three hits. You know, Mr. Tiger, I took a risk hiring you, but you're just not living up to the potential you showed in the interview. I only stabbed you 97 times for God's sake, some companies don't go below 100. Stardew Valley is a retro-style farming simulator recently released on Steam that's somewhat reminiscent of Harvest Moon. Oh sorry, I read that wrong. Stardew Valley is Harvest Moon. It murdered Harvest Moon, stole Harvest Moon's skin, and befriended Harvest Moon's parents under the guise of consoling them in their hour of grief. Same visual style, same tile-based crop growing, same animal rearing, same day-nightfall season three-year cycle, same relationship mechanic where you seduce the local hotties by sprinting up and shoving berries in their face twice a week. It is one of the 16-bit Harvest Moon games, if it were quite a bit bigger in scope and had a crafting element. And you know what that means? Time to smelt some fucking iron. If I gathered up all the iron I've ever smelted in crafting games, I could build a giant statue to the god of wasting my fucking time. Also, Harvest Moon never had pixel art, that blended multiple sizes of pixel resolution, which never fails to look like a packet of fried bumholes. Maybe I'm a little bit bitter because I somehow clocked up 50 hours on this game in the course of one week and I could have used some of that time to do chores or eat food. You see, Harvest Moon was always good at hitting my addiction receptors. It's probably something to do with following a daily routine in the service of gradually building up to bigger and better things. Or maybe it's the way little hearts appear above a cow's head as we stand behind it making very suspect gestures until white liquid squirts out. The scope of Stardew Valley is a bit intimidating at first. You're given a field full of weeds and sticks and told that your first job is to introduce yourself to all 28 residents of this maze-like town who are all in different locations and constantly moving. But think of it as a game world that you grow into. Don't worry about making friends with all 28 of them straight away. For one thing, only 10 of them are on your knobbing radar. Calm thy trousers, Don Juan. Just clear a little space and try to grow some parsnips, and the next thing you know, 50 hours have passed and the missing persons bureau have written you off for dead. If you are a 100% completion natter, then you're going to need a spreadsheet and a lobotomy, but I just took things as they came, did enough to make progress, and concentrated on seducing the one girl in the next field over who was happy with being given flowers I found in the dirt outside her house. Mind you, I was only doing it to tick marriage off the checklist. There's not much that differentiates the town's eligible spunk receptacles besides hairdos and what two-line dialogue they quote day after fucking day. Why do people only like us more if we give them material goods? What is this, village of the ultra-capitalists? Can't there be characters who grow to admire us from afar for our firm outdoorsman's physique and faint smell of cow plops? Stardew Valley got me temporarily hooked, but then so did Crystal Meth and I'm not entirely sure I'd recommend either. The gamepad support is for absolute shit. In Stardew Valley, I mean. Gamepad support for Crystal Meth was perfectly alright after the day one update. And the controls are overall kinda wonky, keep something handy to bite down upon for the first time you accidentally plough a 10 day old patch of 11 day melons. It's frightening how a routine and the promise of eventual almost certainly disappointing reward can condition one's mind. A duck feather probably doesn't sound like treasure but when it's the only item I need to complete a special item collection and I've got a coop full of ducks staying stubbornly attached to their feathers for 5 fucking 
seasons, this is probably the environment in which duck religion starts. So let's move on to the diametric opposite of half to you, Moon Valley. It's an entirely new gameplay concept. You murder instead of befriending everyone, and it was finished after about two hours. Super hot. A first-person arena-type shooter in which time only moves when you move. Which is an immediately intriguing idea, isn't it? So it's a shame I have to start qualifying it now. Time does move a little bit. So even standing still you're in trouble if bullets are crawling towards you in their bullet wheelchairs. Still, you don't want the pace to drop completely, I suppose. Super hot reminds me of Hotline Miami. And Hotline Miami would have lost something if you'd been able to stop dead in the middle of a frenzied death battle to have a quick sandwich and a poo. Where Hotline Miami compensated for its massively unfair combat with the ability to die and respawn approximately four times per second, super hot slow time thing allows for taking a thoughtful pseudo-turn-based approach. A touch I particularly like is that at the end of each level you see a replay of how your performance looked in real time. Shame that they felt the need to cover the screen in garbage and mute the sound with the computer voice reading out the name of the game over and over again, like they programmed a robot with Paris Hilton's entire vocabulary. I wonder if the sheer spectacle of things is inherently lessened when, as with all first-person games, it feels like we're controlling a tall cardboard box balancing on a Roomba. But on the whole, it's a neat gameplay concept. I wouldn't say the game as a whole does it justice. You exclusively fight uniform untextured red mannequins in white rooms. It's like being in an advert for a stain remover that specialises in menstrual fluid. And what passes for a story is over in under two hours. There are challenge modes after that, but I've established to my satisfaction what a dying red figurine looks like, thanks. The aesthetic deliberately goes for the retro computer look, so the menus are all in ASC2, and there's added scan lines, bloom and curving at the edges to look like it's on a CRT monitor, a style that is just now veering over into being prevalent enough in indie games to start trying my patience. I didn't buy a flat screen TV to be constantly reminded of the obsolete shit it's supposed to have replaced indie gaming, that's what we elect new presidents for. The story is told partly through a fake instant messenger, during which we are expected to pretend to type in order to make the protagonist's dialogue appear. There's something faintly pathetic about that. It's like the audience participation at the Christmas panto. We all know damn well the forthcoming events will not change whether we yell he's behind you or not, but you're going to hold everything up until we say it, aren't you, you fucking cross-dressing bitch? The plot is we play a big nerd sitting in front of a computer playing games. Whoa, slow down, Super Hot. Give me a chance to get into character, who gets sent the hot new game by their online friend and the barriers between game and reality start to break down as a mysterious force within the game begins to mess with you, in a rather weak source and desperate manner. Ha ha we're in control now, you cannot escape. Press escape and see what happens. Could I just play the next combat mission, please? Hit escape, you prick! Alright, fine. Ha ha ha, it didn't work! As cat with mouse, I toy with thee. Now I'm going to make you quit the game and restart it again. What now, bitch? I don't know, maybe I'll get some work done. Wait, come back! You're not as clever as you think you are, super hot. Undertale pulled off the quit and restart gag because it had earned it. Without that, it's just annoying. Meta-narrative style fuckabouts is like the backstroke. If you start doing it before we're immersed, you just look like a twat. Whenever a new Tom Clancy game comes out, I always have to double-check his Wikipedia page to make sure he's still dead. He's prolific for a corpse. Still, it explains a few things. You'd have to be pretty fucking brain-dead to think The Division was any fun. Arf, arf, heyo, games journalism, etc. Division is a third-person cover shooter set in a near-future Manhattan where there was a total breakdown of law and order on Black Friday. No change there, then. On this occasion, however, a terrorist released a weaponized virus and the resultant pandemic has reduced New York City to a post-apocalyptic gang-terrorized quarantine zone. Which, on the bright side, might finally bring down the average rent. We are a member of a secret government agency called The Division that consists of agents secretly inserted throughout the general population for no particular reason. Now being activated to go into ruined Manhattan and jolly well sort it out. Because it turns out Wayne LaPierre was right all along. The only thing that can stop a bad roving pack of murderous thugs is a good roving pack of murderous thugs. So let me see if I've got this straight, the corpse of Tom Clancy. We're a member of the secret police under no official scrutiny or accountability, and our job is to go into an area of civil unrest and murder dissenting citizens without trial. And it's not set in Stalinist Russia. Now we can take these back to the people, said my earpiece friend after a supply recovering mission. Sorry, which people were those again? Presumably not the people in whose corpses I now stand knee deep. Oh right, 
actually meant the real people, the ones that bowed and scraped when the government assassination squad showed up. See, the premise would have worked perfectly well if we'd just been some random citizen doing our bit to take back the city, Charles Bronson style, baby. The only thing the secret police thing adds is to make us less relatable and give hard-ons to the paranoid authoritarian lot who want to believe that the government will finally sort out those intimidating young people who stand around outside their house talking loudly. I wouldn't normally pick on it for the dodgy ethics, because when it comes to modern shooters, and especially ones with Tom Clancy's corpse rot about them, that's like picking on a rhinoceros for being shit at kayaking. I'm only airing this out because the game's all so pillow-smotheringly dull. For a start, as well as being another Tom Clancy coffin belch, it's also a Ubisoft sandbox, and you know what that means these days? A big splattery face full of samey missions with a flimsy overarching plot as detached as the chocolate top from a badly made caramel slice, and all sense of progress is conveyed solely through incrementing numbers. It's very much the gameplay that Borderlands refers to as shoot and loot, and which I refer to as shit and piss. So you have to take five minutes after every mission to make sure you've equipped the most optimal knee pads, bunny ears, and nipple pasties. Oh, that reminds me, what is the fucking point of cosmetics when every single outfit conveys the same overall look? You will never not look like a gap year backpacker got dragged through a climbing gear warehouse. But what specific fabric of murky orange parka and barely visible undershirt do you think best conveys your quirky individual personality? If you ask me, the overt RPG mechanics make the game even more frighteningly tone deaf. I mean, there are moments when certain characters beam down from Planet Sensible and call out the whole unaccountable secret police thing, and the game does present it like he's making a valid point. But then the cutscene ends and we go straight back to, oh boy, time to fight some level 20 disenfranchised citizens. Watch out for the elite enemies, they get more health from being extra disenfranchised. The tone's all over the place. One moment you find an audio log of someone using the mummified corpses of their children to get the campfire started, the next you're talking to one of those wacky section commanders who all have a single hilarious personality quirk, like they keep talking about their TV career or how they used to work at the zoo jerking off polar bears. It's a big fat indicator that the game had nine different writers who spent the whole dev cycle locked in different toilet cubicles. But just to repeat myself, they could have crafted all the dialogue by cutting lines out of old episodes of Masters of the Universe and it wouldn't have mattered so much if the core gameplay was fun. And it really, really, really isn't. Would you like to go to a place full of naughty men and shoot them all, or stay in one place and wait for naughty men to come to you and shoot them all? Don't worry, there'll be plenty of opportunities to figure out which one you prefer, and after each samey shootout you can trudge down empty streets for five minutes having a really good hard think about it. Normally I'd say that it's one of those bad sandboxes where the open world adds little beyond a tedious between mission commute, but then I tried to imagine the game with the commute removed so it was nothing but the missions back to back, and concluded it probably wouldn't have improved matters after I woke up 12 hours later. Moving up and shooting the baddies trundles the gameplay along like a fridge on a tricycle before an elite enemy shows up and the game flow stops, lies down on its side and starts to gently dribble on the carpet. Fighting elites is an absolute chore. Their health bars are so massive they have to turn themselves sideways to fit through a standard doorway. I'd rack up ten headshots as they nonchalantly stroll towards my position and there'd be nothing to show for it but a slightly ruffled moustache. And if elite enemies are a chore, elite snipers are ten days chained to a sewing machine in Beijing. I swear they can get a bullet out before they've even finished standing up properly. So either they're cheating or the speed of light has gotten as tired of this bollocks as I am. Can I digress for a moment? Well, fuck you, I'm doing it anyway. I'm getting kind of sick of the style of visual interface wherein GUI text is presented as some kind of physical object in the world, appearing on top of and angled alongside the object it's indicating. Because it means I can't read the fucking things if my character's standing too close, and I'd have thought stay within my field of vision would have been the first thing a young text box learns at readability school after the location of the fire exits. Blimey, that was petty. But I have nothing more to add on the division, because I stopped playing it halfway through. Maybe it comes alive at the end when you and the gang leaders compete in the big tap dance contest, but I'll never know and I don't care anymore. I can't remember the last time a game left me so paralysed with boredom. The remainder of the game stretched away in front of me like an endless swirling vortex that absorbed all joy and interest from its surroundings, so I tried to put on some music but Guns N' Roses just put their instruments down and had an earnest conversation about civil engineering. The division gave me a priapism and a week-long bout of constipation. I was bored stiff and bored shitless. Remember how a while back I said we should stop using the phrase Dark Souls clone? Just like I once said we should stop saying Grand Theft Auto clone and then Sleeping Dogs came out and I had to say spoke too fucking soon. I've got nothing left if I can't call Sultan Sanctuary a Dark 
Souls clone. If it put a banana on its head, I could call it that game that's got a banana on its head, but until that day, let's stick with Dark Souls clone. Games like Bloodborne and Lords of the Fallen are certainly Dark Souls-esque, but nothing less than clone feels adequate for Salt and Sanctuary, the only main difference being the paltry fact that it's a 2D platformer. That sounds like a pretty fucking significant difference to me, Yarty. Well, of course you'd think that voice in my head. You're obviously a technically minded sort, or you wouldn't keep trying to get me to buy knives. A third dimension does not a Dark Souls make. Dark Souls is in the tone, the muddy visuals, the grim futile atmosphere of an anxiety dream of a medieval knight with galloping syphilis. There are plenty of gameplay differences, and there's the fact that Dark Souls never had a super deformed character art style reminiscent of an edgy webcomic from the early 2000s, drawn by someone who wasn't very good at anatomy, but considered it very important that there exist a picture of furry Jesus Christ trying to free his knob from a stillborn fetus, but despite all that, there are moments when Sultan Sanctuary could almost be a direct 2D adaptation of Dark Souls, with the names changed into slightly shittier ones. Quick example, Blight Town was a good name for a ramshackle colony on a poisonous bog. Mire of Stench? Not so much, because it's kind of redundant and immediately reminds me of that David Bowie film. Anyway, in Sultan Sanctuary, you are drowning in semen. Oop, my mistake. In Sultan Sanctuary, you are a drowning seaman, who wakes up after the traditional impossible opening boss fight to find themselves on the shore of a mysterious haunted land consisting of fragments of dead civilizations crammed together like six piglets in a duffel bag. Populated by the undead and the occasional top half of a person grafted onto something that isn't one of the very small number of things it is appropriate for the top half of a person to be grafted onto. You set off to find the princess you were supposed to be escorting, but the game puts very little effort into pretending that that is the actual plot, so we set off to explore the open-ended landscape and gather salt from our enemies, which is different to souls, because you can't put souls on your chips, but otherwise it's just as useful for upgrading your character at bonfires. Whoops, I mean sanctuaries. When you die, you lose all your salt, which is a bit counterintuitive because getting killed makes me pretty fucking salty, and also a percentage of your money. Ah, there's something different. In Dark Souls, you charge everything to your souls account, whereas in Salt and Sanctuary, money and salt are separate things. I'm not sure why, though, because the only things money can buy are low-level items that stop being useful about 30 seconds into the game, and you do all your weapon upgrading with salt and with specific items of vendor trash that dying enemies puke out like reverse vacuum cleaners. So every time I died and the game waggled its finger informing me that it was taking a percentage of my cash, I'd be all like, oh no, please don't. I hate having to manually pull my trousers down. Another difference is that you can populate sanctuaries with NPC vendors and must decide if it's worth giving up a precious blacksmith token to be able to get your sword upgraded at the summits of Mount Bumfuck. Except there's also a vendor who lets you teleport between sanctuaries, so just put one of those in as many places as you can and stick all the other vendors in one or two of the nice sanctuaries with the affordable beachfront real estate. Now, you understand I'm not complaining that a game is reminiscent of Dark Souls because me and Dark Souls is like your mum and pies, but certain important things are lost in the shift to 2D. For example, Sultan Sanctuary could really do with a fucking map. Dark Souls can't have one because there's too much verticality, but it also doesn't really need one because it's got the scenery porn thing. Better look around and figure out where I am. Oh, I remember now, I'm in a fantasy nightmare world, and I'm making my way towards that vast brick phallus in the distance. Gosh, can't wait to find out how many things want to murder me there. You don't have that in 2D. In 2D what you've got is, gosh, I can't wait to see what's past this 20 feet of stairway I'm currently looking at. In Dark Souls, whenever I walked to an old bonfire, I never had to wander about a few minutes trying to remember where the fuck I was in relation to everywhere else. So map, please. You don't have to be a pushover about it, make it kind of abstract or fire scorpions at my mouth every time I look at it. Combat obviously loses some complexity in 2D, but Salty Sancho admirably recreates the most important characteristics of Souls combat, by which I mean dodge rolling behind people as they attack always works, and the hitboxes are absolutely fucked. Where the combat rubs up against the border between Dark Souls Town and Symphony of the Night Bill is when you get hit by a heavy attack and your character goes flying gaily across the screen like a happy little tear gas canister at a protest against police brutality, which wasn't that annoying in Symphony of the Night because there was no fall damage, but guess what there's gobs of in Salty Sancho along with a platforming emphasis that means you're never more than ten steps from a death drop. Again, kinda like your mum and pies. Of all the many times that I died in this game, about 60% of them were from being knocked off a ledge, and 30% were from failing to grab a ledge because the PS4 analog sticks misbehaved. But Salty Sancho's flinging fuckery was also its downfall because the final boss somehow managed to clip me into a wall in such a way that it couldn't hit me, but I could hit him, because I was using a greatsword about half the length of my dick. I then beat him with ease, thinking to myself, well, I was probably just about to win anyway. And that, people, is how easy it is to fall to the dark side.
side. Mind you, some of the flying bosses fucked me up by initiating their attacks from off-screen, so I guess we can call it even on the naughty cheating front, Salty Sancho. On the whole, I seem to remember enjoying my time with Saltine Crackers, but then I've never been the same since the stroke. As you may have noticed, I have trouble moving past the Dark Souls comparison, so it's possibly struggling to find an identity. The cartoony art style is pretty appropriate since the game as a whole feels like a big-headed chibi version of Dark Souls, Marlon Brando midget style, with its smaller, kinda samey environments and more frequent boss fights that make it feel thinly spread. I don't know how much of my absorption came from the game itself and how much came from it reminding me of my happy place, but who gives a shit? It's Dark Souls, with Symphony of the Night plugged into the gaps and I like both games, so I'm having a blowjob while snacking on fun-sized Mars bars. It seems that episodic games are just something we're gonna have to learn to live with now, like climate change and the unskippable advert odds are good you just had to endure. I'm resolved to try to stop reviewing new ones based on their first episodes just because I'm unwilling to wait months on end before I start belittling them. I mean, who knows where King's Quest is at this point, maybe it's moved on to ripping off all kinds of films other than The Princess Bride. And much as I'd like to discuss the first episode of Hitman, and the fun to be had trying to furtively drag a naked pool boy into the toilet stall before a guard can show up and completely spoil the romance, I'm the kind of guy who likes to immerse myself in a game for 20 hours until either it breaks or my catheter does, so giving my impressions at this stage would be like filling out my massage therapist's customer satisfaction survey before I've even had my happy ending. So let's belittle an episodic game that actually finished recently, Republic. And having gone through the whole saga that took months if not years of build-up to reach a conclusion, I can authoritatively declare it a resounding eh. But then what can one expect of a game that can't even spell Republic properly? In Republic, we play as ourselves, using our aging gaming computers to hack into the network of a sinister facility which we view exclusively through closed-circuit surveillance and phone cameras, an immersive and innovative narrative device that brings back happy memories of Night Trap on the Sega CD. And just to continue the comparison, your job is to spy on girls and make sure they don't get grabbed by creepy dudes in black. Well, a girl, named Hope, as in I hope I don't get molested by creepy dudes in black today. Hope contacts us with her face a little unsettlingly close to the phone camera so we can get a really good look at how many corners were cut in the eyelid animation department, and begs us to help her escape from an oppressive regime where she is due to be mind-wiped for reading some state-censored dirty books or something. As we guide Hope through what everyone keeps referring to as a totalitarian nation but which looks to me more like a single facility with about 30 rooms, we piece together the full story of the place, the individuals involved, and their sinister plan to imprison teenage girls and spy on them reading dirty books, which is not as self-explanatory as it sounds. It's an all-star voice cast, David Hayter, Jennifer Hale, Dwight Schultz plays the villain, there's no one quite like Dwight Schultz for playing characters who seem like they could sorely use a good hard cock up their ass. Characterization's really rather strong, even the monsters have a touch of humanity about them, in many ways the most human are the most monstrous of them all. There was a point in Ripai Blunk when I realised I was into it, and that was the ending of the third episode. Hope realises she unknowingly betrayed a friend as she receives her first glimpse of an outside world and there's this powerful mix of emotions that overwhelms her, and that got me. I was in then. Sadly, I was out again by the time I got to the very end. Out, then in, then out, then nary a chance to shake it all about. See, before the third episode, the gameplay had been getting tiresome. The stealth action part of the promised stealth action adventure involves clicking on a bit of wall to make Hope go to it, then clicking it a few more times till she realises she's supposed to use it for cover, the silly moo. Then you use the cameras to scout ahead and make sure her path is clear of guard patrols. I've spoken to people who said they don't like stealth gameplay because it's boring. It's sitting in a hole with a thumb up your butt, waiting for a guard to turn around. Where's the big cock action? to distract me from contemplating my empty existence. Obviously, I burned them to death, but dash it if Repube-like didn't remind me of that argument. Cause the guards amble along their predictable patrols like a slug trying to decide what videos to rent out, dated simile. Then you can buy some special powers that make their routes even more predictable and the slugging even more sluggish, there are tasers and pepper spray lying around everywhere on the off chance they spot you, and even if you've run out they just take you to a cell in the next room and leave the door unlocked, bending over backwards to not leave the crap outs behind, it's like a wrestler having to pretend to lose to a cancer kid for the Make-A-Wish Foundation. But then episode 3 had that end 
ending and a puzzle involving gathering dirt on guards to get them away from a door that I thought was kind of neat. Even if the same result could have been gotten by just pulling a fire alarm, but that's adventure games for you. Alright, colour me intrigues, Repob Lark, what's next? I'm glad you asked. Here's a fourth episode where basically nothing happens, and a final one in which about 19 different things get tied up in a very small space. Oh dear, colour me outtrigued again, and then colour yourself with the puke green taint of failure. Honestly, I didn't get what was going on by the end, and it seemed like events were coming out of nowhere. That's probably because a full understanding of the plot hinges on patiently listening to the approximately 900 billion hours of audio logs, a lot of which can be missed. One particular set of audio logs is on cassette tapes that you can't listen to unless you find a stereo. It's like your dad making you find the stick he's gonna beat you with. I'm not gonna stop playing for half an hour to awkwardly stand by the stereo like a giraffe on an ice rink, feeding it tape after tape. I've got a lot of small walls I need to crouch behind. Call me an overstimulated millennial, but I prefer an audio log that you can have running over gameplay. If we're sitting waiting for patrols with thumb up butt, it gives us something to listen to. There is the possibility they'll get drowned out if something interesting happens, with any luck. One rather mystifying collectible side quest involves collecting floppy disks bearing the logos of popular indie darlings like Shovel Knight and Gunpoint, and the inevitable attached audio logs consist of a character gushing about them. Seems a bit counterproductive to pause your game to tell the audience all about another game they could probably be having a better time with right now, but perhaps there's more behind this. Gaze at the Steam Store page for a Ponklong, and you'll find it makes a special point of mentioning that it was made by industry veterans who worked on AAA titles, like Metal Gear Solid and Halo. Now, if you'd decide that as a sensible person would, that the AAA industry is about due to suffocate to death on its own farts, and that it was time to flee the sinking ship stroke farting bottom, and seek refuge in the more creatively rewarding sphere of core indie games, perhaps you'd see the value in trying to ingratiate yourself with your new chosen clique. In practice, however, it evokes the one desperate dweeb at high school who hangs around the cool kids. Hey kid, jerk us all off. Can do! Does this mean we're friends? Not until you eat this ladybird. So I guess my advice is, play as far as the third episode and then lower your expectations into a shallow grave in the woods. Everything's ready for Dark Souls 3. I've erected a new wall to bang my head against and refresh my stash of chewing bricks. All I have to do now is sit here wearing these hype-deflecting blinkers for about two more weeks and distract myself by attaching a honey badger to my bollocks. But the union says the honey badger has to have a lunch break every eight hours, so while it's away I might as well pass the time with a game that's a couple of years old now, but has been on my catch-ups list for precisely a moment such as this. Shadow Warrior. Not to be confused with Shadow Man, A Shadow's Tale, Shadows of the Damned, Shadow of the Beast, or Shawaddy Waddy, nor indeed to be confused with the Shadow Warrior that it is a remake of. A late 90s build engine shooter from the Duke Nukem mold, and you know what that means violence, endemic key hunting, and a questionable attitude towards women. But in this case, also with more than a spicy hint of casual racism. I ain't no Tumblr tot getting my pronouns in a twist over cultural appropriation, but when a bloke with a comedy English accent runs around with a samurai sword, screaming about how his name means penis, you've gotta wonder how it would fly at a summit of the United Nations. So the remake takes quite a few liberties with the plot of the original. I'm not entirely certain the original had a plot. The only thing I remember clearly from it is a naked anime babe doing a great big farty dump. Our protagonist, Lo Wang, is remodelled as a quipping, egotistical, bungling badass with an only slightly less silly accent, and so brings to mind the comedy Asian bloke from the Hangover movies being cast to understudy Bruce Campbell in Army of Darkness. He's sent by a shady boss type man to acquire a magic sword from some other gang leader type, but Wang doesn't have a name that means cock for nothing, and soon Acquire has turned into steal, kill everyone, burn house down. However, the world is soon hit by an invasion of genocidal demons, and it becomes clear that there are darker forces than the shady boss man with an interest in the niceties of magic sword ownership rights, and Wang sets out to finish the job and get the sword to his master. Somewhere along the way this turns into kill his master and eventually kill the lords of Demon Town as well, and I'm not entirely certain where the changes happened. See, the the recurring issue I had with the plot is that the game seems to think Wang is undergoing a character arc, and speaking as the guy who spent eight hours inhabiting his skull, I beg to differ. By the very end, it's making out like he's finally become a noble warrior hero, but no transformation was in evidence around the end of the previous episode, but one, in which he blew up a ship while his allies were still on it for basically no reason, although it's refreshing to be on the other side of a stock totally illogical betrayal for once. So, Shadow Warrior is a first-person shooter that got recommended to me as like Painkiller but with a plot, which isn't a great recommendation because as pretty much everything with the Painkiller brand on it beyond the first one demonstrates, trying for any plot more complex than 
than you man kill demons grunt grunt fire hot, more often than not is the metaphorical handful of sand in the fleshlight, but Shadow Warrior does indeed boast fast paced arena horde fights that would be reminiscent of Painkiller if Painkiller had had maybe one tenth of the monster variety. There's a bit of a focus on melee sword attacks, which has the usual issue that close combat in first person has, best demonstrated by strapping a GoPro to the head of an excited dog in a room full of unshredded tissue paper and trying to follow what's going on. This is compensated effectively for by being able to propel yourself around the battlefield with powerful rocket farts, and your special sword attacks can be a pretty effective last word, the word being argle spurt spurt thump. It's just weird how you have to pull them off with Street Fighter combos. Tap forward twice then hold attack for the lunge. Is there any particular reason it couldn't have been tap forward once then hold attack? And that's still a bit much to spontaneously lever into the middle of a fast paced monster fight when I've already had one bum cheek bitten off. Mind you, it seems we've got plenty of bum cheeks to spare, because I only died like once in my entire playthrough and that was from falling three feet into a place I wasn't supposed to be in. The health kit fairy has thrown herself into her work to get over a bad breakup, and on top of that you have the power to clench your asshole and get a bunch of health back whenever you want. I think Shadow Warrior suffers from a bit of the too many upgrades syndrome. You buy magic upgrades with special gems, skills with XP, and gun upgrades with good old fashioned money, and almost none of them evolve the gameplay in any way. It's all shit like do 10% more damage to lower demons. What the fuck constitutes a lower demon, Charlie? You mean the less respectable ones, or the ones that are under 5 foot? There's also a combat rating system where you get stars out of 5 based on… something. I never figured out what it wanted from me. Nuke the whole battlefield with rockets, 1 star. Make an effort to use every weapon, every spell, and kill at least one guy by tweaking his nipples, 1.5 stars. Turret section where I take down the fire button and zoned out for a minute, 4 stars, great job. Wouldn't it be funny to have a game that claimed to be rating combat skill but was actually throwing out random numbers? That'd infuriate the perfectionist lot, wouldn't it? And I'm not saying Shadow Warrior has done that, just that if it did I probably wouldn't notice the difference. So despite not being based around praying on your knees at the chest high altar to the god of cover shooting, the combat's nonetheless clunky, probably too many weapons. I never really figured out how the heart worked, and the flamethrower is as much use as blowing raspberries at a cigarette lighter. Also, not a fan of the level design. I can tell the game's over long, because it's working its limited art assets till you could get a cricket bat down their bum holes without touching the sides. Take a drink every time you see an arcade cabinet. One of the characteristics of the old Duke Nukem 3D style shooter and its peers was that each map was a distinct location. Level 1, the train station. Level 2, the shopping mall. Level 3, the domestic violence shelter. Meanwhile, the entire first episode of Shadow Warrior consists of about 500 copies of the same house that all for some reason have the same Ikea cabinets. Secret hunting was also a big thing in the original Shadow Warrior, but if you're gonna bring that back, maybe don't discourage exploration by putting invisible walls all over the place, especially on objects that even Professor Stephen Hawking could have jumped on top of. You know what, now that I've written all this down, I don't think Shadow Warrior was much good. Occasionally decent combat and dialogue, blighted by overdesigned, dull levels and poor plotting. Still, a must play for people who like games where the main character's name means penis. Once you're finished with Solid Snake and Jet Set Willy, Every foreskin fumigating time I have to play an Xbone game, that dusty rectangular turd has to make an adventure of it. I thought I'd get clever this time and put the disc in a few hours before I intended to play it, only to switch to the Xbone after lunch and find it saying, Disc doesn't ring a bell. Take out, put back in. Oh, that disc. Suppose I better install it then. 1%, 2%, 47%. Phew, that was tiring. Think I'll stay at 47% for the next three hours. I still can't think that the concept of an exclusive game can possibly be long for this world of competitive big money entertainment. Here's a game that costs us millions of dollars to make. Let's restrict its potential audience and handcuff it to an incontinent element elephant seal for literally no reason except that the elephant seal says we can ride around on it if we take our shoes off. But anyway, Quantum Break is an exclusive title for X-Bone and Elephant Seal that comes to us from Remedy, the creators of Alan Wake. Alan Wake then Quantum Break? Are you guys writing a fucking limerick? Quantum Break is a fluffy wuffy contemporary sci-fi yarn about time-travelling digitised actors. Our hero is Jack Joyce, fat-faced everyman, who returns to his hometown to assist an old friend with a time-travel experiment, despite having the scientific background of a plate of pork chops. But nobody relates to scientists, why do you think Marty McFly had to do all the legwork? Naturally, something buggers up, Jack's mate 
Snake disappears, reappears 17 years older and evil, and Jack gets time-based superpowers which he has about 24 hours to play around with before the universe explodes. On the run from his former friend's new evil megacorporation, Jack must overcome a rapidly splintering universe and his own big, fat, stupid, stupid head to find a solution. The villain is played by Aiden Littlefinger, who plays him very well, except for the pre-villain phase of the character, because he constantly comes across like he's waiting for the chance to lick the back of your head. He really is the actor for whom the word snake-like was invented. He certainly uses his tongue like a snake. He sticks that thing out so much it should have its own IMDb page. Maybe his tongue in particular makes me unsettled, because I remember all the shit it got up to in Queer as Folk, and I chose the words of that sentence very carefully. What I haven't mentioned yet is that Quantum Break is a revolutionary hybrid of video game and live-action TV show, meaning that between every gameplay chapter you're obliged to watch a 20-minute video of the internal politics of the evil megacorporation, which seems to involve an awful lot of punching security guards and running very urgently down corridors. Now I'm not one to piss in something just for trying to be different, hell my kitchen sink is the same every day and I still piss in that, but having already restricted the audience to expo owners, i.e. Pillocks, we're now pairing it down further into the Venn diagram overlap region of Pillocks who equally enjoy video games and TV shows. Well I suppose if you're just into games you can always skip the video bits, as long as you also overlap with Pillocks who like not having a clue what's going on, and games that are over in five hours. Serious question Remedy, are you sure you wouldn't be happier making TV shows? You've clearly got a fondness for sticking video content in your games, usually on passing TV screens up until now, and American TV networks do seem to greenlight shit like what you make at a rate that must be measured in nanoseconds. I ask, because it feels like every time a gameplay section starts you can almost hear the game heaving a reluctant sigh. Time manipulation in action games is nothing new, bullet time has been with us for ages, which Remedy should know because they invented it, but very few of Jack's time powers are actually time related in any practical sense. What are you talking about, barks the game? You've got your time stun, your time dash, your time shield, they've got time right there in the name, what more do you want? Time shield? It just stops bullets, it's a Mario star in a pretentious haircut. Look, this is my time handkerchief, woo, it uses the uncanny power of the fourth dimension to stop flying bogeys and occasionally spunk. There's something terribly token about the combat gameplay, you only need to look at the upgrade screen to get that impression. A grand total of three upgrades per power, and most of them are make effect last slightly longer. At other times gameplay consists of very singularity-esque environmental puzzles where the solution is always press contextual time power button to remove obstacle. Look, if you want to base your game around linear story then more power to you, or perhaps I should say more time to you, since time is power, as the slightly baffling tagline tells us. God knows linear story focus is becoming a rarity in AAA gaming these days, where all anyone seems to want are sandboxes and chrome-plated hamster wheels, but you do have to at least acknowledge the whole interactive part of interactive storytelling, or you might as well just make TV shows. Very much like Alan Wake, when the game isn't trundling out another roomful of knob jockeys for you to punish, you go through linear narrative areas in which it becomes extremely clear what sort of player the game would prefer to have, the kind that is content to walk slowly alongside NPCs as the NPCs tortuously deliberate on when to open the door to the next room, and who meekly sit with head bowed and hands clasped waiting for the current dialogue to end before proceeding. And if you don't want to play like you're trying to wing it through a puppet show you don't have the script for, then things swiftly go awry. For example, I'd enter a large area and start exploring it for collectibles and upgrade tokens for my token upgrades, but the game attempts to continue the conversation I was having with an NPC even after I move out of earshot, so I find myself making random witty rejoinders to the crate I am trying vainly to climb on top of. I turn on a radio, listen to the DJ for a bit, get bored and keep exploring the room, find a document that Jack comments upon, accidentally activate the TV that plays a five minute video, then the NPC starts nagging me to come over and press the continue plot button. Four dialogues now layer over each other, it's like my brain is trying to simultaneously pat its head, rub its tummy and read aloud a passage from Ulysses. Quantum Break wants to be judged on its story. Fine, it's okay. Jack Joyce starts to annoy when he still hasn't accepted that history can't be changed, even after I, every single NPC and Hitler's dead dog have figured it out, but on the whole the story was well told, and I know it was because I still basically understood it by the end, which is more than I can say for Alan Wake. It's at the point where story intersects with action game that we find buttons pushed through the wrong holes and bellends caught in zippers. Doing a live action companion series on the side might have been a better idea than putting them together in the same space. Switching between live action and 3D rendering can be a bit jarring as the characters toboggan gaily down the walls of the uncanny valley. Oh no, the time fracture has gotten worse! Every single person on Earth has had a stroke!
Let me say right out of the gate that you can call me Billy Blue Biased Bollocks on this one. If you're looking for a fresh perspective on Dark Souls, you can hop off to Jimmy Neutral the Sexless Gamer's YouTube channel so he can whine about getting murdered with knives over and over again as he scratches the disappointing little nubs that one day, God willing, will become his balls. I haven't got the slightest idea what Dark Souls 3 would be like for a newcomer to the series. I imagine it'd be like meeting your girlfriend's family in Newcastle. You get talked out like you're supposed to know what they're on about for an hour and then get brutally killed with sticks. But Dark Souls is my comfort zone. It's the big squishy armchair full of lost pocket change and razor wire that I can always settle into whenever I'm bored, stressed out, coming down from a bad trip, or being held captive by Syrian revolutionaries. Actually, it came in handy that time, because the Syrian revolutionaries had been having a terrible time with the Hydra until I showed them where to get the rusted iron ring. The point is, this is all coming from a fan, so expect me to complain about how formulaic it's gotten while simultaneously bitching about everything that's different. Dark Souls wouldn't be Dark Souls if it wasn't as open and transparent with its story as a cocaine dealer in a police interview room, so let me provide a little cheat sheet here. The world of Dark Souls is caught in an endless cycle of fire and dark, and each game takes place in the final days of a dwindling age of fire. Someone must either link the fire to postpone the inevitable, or just toss it all in and get a dark age going. Sort of like the choice between a Clinton and Trump presidency. In Dark Souls 3, however, all the lads whose job it was to oversee the linking process have buggered off to a man, having perhaps reached the reasonable conclusion that we're three games in now and the whole Age of Fire, Age of Dark thing doesn't seem to be working out. Maybe it's time to hang the stupid business and try an Age of Spiders or an Age of Meringue. Consequently, people like you have risen from their graves as unkindled to jolly well talk some sharp pointy sense into them. Being unkindled is not quite the same as being undead, as you were in the last two games. Firstly, you use embers rather than humanity to get out of a diminished condition after death, and secondly, that's it. So the game can witter on about how the stakes have totally been raised because you're called something different and you spend the game descending from the final castle area rather than ascending towards it, but the fundamentals are all in their usual places. It's Dark Souls, you explore themed areas in states of advanced decrepitude, chew on a boss fight or two, then move on to the next. First impressions were good though. Dark Souls 1 provided a nice balance of the two major food groups, dudes in armour and fucked up monsters with hammerhead sharks instead of toenails, and I talked shit about Dark Souls 2 for getting kinda tubby on the generic dudes in armour diet, so when Dark Souls 3's introductory boss fight was against generic dude in armour number 8047, I was lured into a state of eye-rolling resignation that swiftly ended after I got him down to half health and a giant black monster bogey the size of a minibus burst out of his nostrils and slapped me about like I was a stress ball and it had gone three months without masturbating. That rather sets the tone for what will probably turn out to be Dark Souls' final instalment in which the decrepitude is decrepting it up even more than usual, the enemies rife with physical corruption and body horror, kinda like the visual theme Bloodborne was going for, and incidentally isn't it impressive how From Software can trot out these massive open world games with such suspicious frequency? I ain't judging, I've been using the same imp graphic for eight years, but I do get a sense that Dark Souls is repeating itself quite a bit. Yes, like everyone else, when Sigmire showed up I had a happy little trouser accident, but only until I thought about it. As we all should know by now, a good sequel jumps off from the original, a bad sequel wallows in it. Dark Souls 2 jumped off, now Dark Souls 3 has jumped right back on again, tunnelled back into Dark Souls 1 and gone to sleep. It's like they ran out of new stuff at some point and filled in the gaps by carving off some chunks from the great big ball of Dark Souls and Bloodborne that now floats around the office occasionally commanding them to kill. Here comes a statement that will nail the end of my willy to the mast for all to come and pluck like a banjo string. I prefer Dark Souls 2's level design. I think it had more creativity. There is such a thing as too many cathedrals, Dark Souls 3. Are the undead hordes known for holding a lot of royal weddings? Another thing I found weirdly irritating was that I could just could not find any weapon that was better than my starting longsword. I don't comb every rancid bum crack of these games for the sake of my cardio. I'm looking for better items and equipment so I can piece by piece replace myself with Dark Fantasy Robocop. And I was doing my my best to get into the spirit of things, by the end I had a bottom drawer full of upgraded boss weapons I'd used for all of five minutes each. Oh boy, this giant demonic axe that looks like a KFC zinger patty tied to the end of a whale's knob sure looks like the business, and then I'd take it out for a spin and discover that it was indeed the business as long as the enemies are polite enough to not stab you 19 times while they're waiting for your character to go through all 12 steps on the mandatory pre-swing checklist. Turns out some cues have been taken from Bloodborne's combat style where being able to hit faster is more important, and a lot of enemies can only wave back and forth in stunlock like an arthritic belly dancer while I dick slap them left and 
right with my whippy little longsword, appropriately upgraded with the titanite that the game showers you with like it's being plumbed through the hot taps. Oh yeah, there's a magic meter now, that's a new thing. So now you can actually cast Soul Spear more than three times before needing a lie down and a Gatorade, but it's telling that the manner in which this bold and unique franchise has chosen to innovate is to do a thing that every other RPG does. Frankly, I'm lukewarm on Dark Souls 3, which is ironic for a game that's mostly about setting yourself on fire. My first run didn't seem to take as long as in previous games, and the final boss was squitted out like an early morning fart, but then that's practically traditional at this point. And after the usual trip to the wiki to populate the traditional laundry list of shit I missed, because if you need everything to be signposted then you can sod off back to Google Street View, it turned out I'd missed quite a few things, so maybe I'll feel different after I've had a chance to play it to death, which I will inevitably do, because it's Dark Souls, and I will take whatever I can get in every slack unlubricated hole, but I'm given to understand that From Software are declaring this the last one, and that's certainly what it feels like, the last weary sigh before it lays its head down for a well-deserved sleep, followed by an idle midnight wank when the DLC comes out. You know, Yate, I don't think you've ever given the new console generation a fair chance. What do you mean? When I get together with the X-Bone and the Piss-Poor and rhythmically smash their heads together while screaming, why are you holding us all back, you bastards, you bastards, you bastards, they could change my mind in an instant. All they have to do is explode and stop blighting the universe with their presence. It's always been the lack of backwards compatibility and the utterly callous disregard for gaming history that gobs in my porridge. It's like they burnt the house down for the insurance money and then spent it all on an overpriced chrome refrigerator to live in instead. And it leads to awkward situations like the one Insomniac Games found themselves in, with a movie of their long-running Ratchet & Clank series in the wings, they must have jolted awake one morning and gone, ah, all the games were exclusive for PS2 and PS3, so all our new fans who come in from the movie with shining eyes and fat wallets can't buy any of the fucking things without a time-travelling pirate ship. We'd better slap something together for the PS4, sharpish, which was quite an impressively long statement for every single member of a dev studio to make in unison. So now we have the inevitable reboot with same name, Ratchet & Clank. And this is new ground for me, the series has passed me by up to now because I'm not a nickel baby boo-boo who wants to play games about fuzzy animal characters with a permanent case of DreamWorks eyebrow. I didn't even know there was a film coming out till the game discreetly mentioned it, immediately, at full volume, and then twice more on the box blurb. But the same box blurb promises that the game is equally enchanting for both fans and newcomers to the series, so that's alright then. Ratchet and Clank is representative of the ever-unspecific action-adventure genre, a cartoon sci-fi knockabout that's like the fifth element had a baby with bookie O'Hare after spending a little bit too much time hanging around dodgy internet communities. An evil organisation plots to unleash an army of killbots on the galaxy, but a rejects killbot, that's Clank, escapes and crash lands in the back garden of a fuzzy and highly marketable wannabe space hero. That's Ratchet. Ratchet agrees to fly Clank to the big city planet so he can warn them about the incoming invasion, and by the time they get there the invasion's already started, so so much for that. Note that this leaves Ratchet and Clank with precisely zero purpose or particular reason to stay together. I've had longer taxi rides and didn't end up forming lifelong partnerships with the driver, and I suppose this is the inherent problem with an attempt to swiftly re-establish the canon of the previous 47 games in one go, that we seem to be skipping quite a few steps. The bond between the two leads is treated as something automatic and preordained, not least of which by the fucking title of the game, rather than developing naturally over time. I'm willing to bet that that was more the case in the original Ratchet and Clamp because people liked that game, and we would not now be getting a film if people hadn't liked it. Thus is exposed the inherent paradox of this reboot. Explain to me the logic of a reboot attempting to bank on nostalgia for the very games it is attempting to erase from canon. It constantly references the old series, there's even a side quest around collecting trading cards of characters and weapons from previous games, so essentially the game is saying, hey, remember how much better we did this the first time around? Good, now forget all about it. Speaking as a newcomer, without the context of the established canon, Ratchet's a boring little shit. The term Mary Sue comes to mind like the face of an irritating relative. The perceived need to hurry the plot along means that he's barely got his trousers on before he's getting hailed as a galactic hero and everyone wants to be his friend, except for the one guy who betrays him for literally no reason, except that he's jealous of how totally bloody great he is. I really got a sense that the character was facing adversity. There's one scene after the villains blow up a planet where Ratchet immediately runs home blubbing because he failed one fucking thing in his glittering three-hour career, and that lasts for all of a 15-second cutscene before he gets back in the saddle. Incidentally, after the planet explodes, there's a rather hasty line 
line of dialogue to the effect, Lucky the entire planet was evacuated in the 14 minutes of advance notice we were given, which screams last minute change to me. What made you chicken out of depicting implied genocide, lads? Were you afraid the kiddiewinks would be influenced into building planetary death ray cannons? So about that gameplay, it's third person action adventure with a little bit of everything, bit of combat, bit of platforming, bit of puzzles, a surprisingly faithful callback to the era of the original game in the PS2. Still to my mind the high watermark for consoles and may my nadgers get slammed in a car door if tisn't so. It made me slightly nostalgic for games like Psychonauts and every single 3D game Rare ever made. What really surprised me was how difficult the game could get. Have we become so softened by the ongoing blandification of AAA games that smash the autosave button like it's a virgin bumhole in a prison shower that we can be thrown by perfectly straightforward combat mechanics? I really start to miss the concept of dodge rolling when I see an enemy bullet closing in and my best defence is hoping that I'm already moving out of the way. Mind you, there are some things that stopped being prevalent for a reason, such as interrupting your shooty platformer for a difficult five minute laser directing puzzle that brings the pace to a screeching halt. Thankfully there's the option to skip those, but not without admonishment. Are you sure? You'll never get the achievement and gain true fulfilment in life. Weapon variety is the big selling point, and varied they certainly are if leaning a bit too hard on the wacky humour, like the gun that rather inefficiently turns enemies into sheep that just doesn't have the lasting humour value of that gun in Painkiller that pins enemies to walls and makes all their arms and legs fall off. I don't like how weapons level up with use, because it results in the scenario wherein after working long and hard to max out a weapon suddenly you don't want to use it anymore, because you don't want to waste the experience when your butane-powered dogshit cannon doesn't yet have the diarrhea bonus. All in all though, there are certainly worse distractions on the road to the grave, but the quality of Ratchet and Clank in itself is almost made meaningless by the circumstances surrounding it. If you were already a fan, then I'm all but certain you'll have played better ones, and if you weren't, and you do like the game, then where do you go from there? Gosh, I'd quite like to play the rest of the series now. Well you can't, hardy ha ha, film coming to cinema near you. So working our way back to where we already were before you fucked it all up is what you call progress, is it consoles? No, it's what we call let's buy another yacht. Nintendo, you're making this way too fucking easy for me. What should we go with? Star Fox Zero Interest? Star Fox Zero Gameplay? Ooh, Star Fox Zero Punctuation, that's the thing we're currently doing, isn't it? Nintendo have done it again! Oops, sorry, wrong emphasis. Nintendo have done it again. They've made one of their layabout children who hasn't worked in decades come up from the basement and sit at the dinner table with their new stepfather hardware gimmicks, whom Nintendo hastily married in a Vegas shotgun wedding during a time when they were feeling low and vulnerable. Perhaps Nintendo still imagines that they can find some happy middle ground where both the hardcore retro fans and the casual motion control twat badgers can all play together in harmony. Blissful, highly lucrative harmony. Unfortunately, Nintendo are fucking kidding themselves if they think they can please everyone at once. You can try, but you'll just end up with very sore wrists and a very dry face. But we get ahead of ourselves. Star Fox Zero is a reboot of a franchise that hasn't shown its face in over ten years, in which science fiction space battles are enacted by characters in theme park mascot costumes who inspire varying degrees of irritation. Sort of like the logical place George Lucas would have taken Star Wars to if he hadn't been given the restraining order. You are Fox McCloud, fearless cardboard cutout protagonist type, and only Fox in the rather narcissistically named Star Fox Squad which also consists of a frog, a rabbit and a bird, presumably in case Fox gets hungry during a long space mission, because he certainly doesn't keep them around for their combat skill. They're out to save the universe from the evil armies of a giant monkey from another dimension, for you see all great science fiction has at heart a relevant contemporary message. In this case make sure not to run out of tasty bananas. The game is an arcade space shooter with the emphasis on arcade. Some of the levels are on rails, demanding that you dodge incoming obstacles while not knowing what direction the rails are going to move in, so that's an adventure in blunt force trauma to the face, and some of them are free roam, to use the phrase generously, as the free roam area is about the size of a cruise ship on bathroom, and you'll only know that you've flown out of bounds when the game wrestles control from you and makes your U-turn directly into the missile you were trying to escape from. So about those motion controls, just to bring us back to the subject of sore wrists, aim your lasers by tilting the screen controller, went to the game's tutorial, press the target button to- hey what the fuck are you doing in the options menu? Did you really think you could turn off the tilting controls? I'm afraid we're trapped in this hell together, matey. Sorry, for one blindly optimistic moment I thought Nintendo might have realised that insisting on a single control scheme is unhelpful in our wonderful world of all kinds of people with varied preferences and levels of flexibility. Can I at least adjust the sensitivity? 
activity, as my elbows are still sore from stabbing a policeman to death and I'd prefer not to have to make large movements. No you can't, you uppity sod. Here's your options. You can turn on a thing that makes the aiming control somehow even worse, or you can soak up your little vagina spillage and come and join us in the real world. Now here's how the fucking targeting controls work. Um, sorry to be picky again, but do you have any other targeting systems available, like say for example one that fucking helps, one that could maybe target the enemy ship that's closest or that my aiming reticle is pointing at, rather than the one wearing the prettiest dress? Just when I think the Wii U might have finally accepted that human beings aren't going to evolve chameleon eyes that can independently swivel anytime soon, we have a game that tries to make the screen controller and the TV work together. The screen controller is the cockpit view, which has the peripheral vision of a one-eyed horse on a subway train, and the TV has the third-person camera, so you have to use the TV to find the thing to shoot at, and the controller to actually aim at the thing. And what bothers me is that there really doesn't seem to be a reason for it except to invent a purpose for the hardware gimmick. It's like the game really really wanted to justify its purchase of a seeing-eye dog so it gouged its own eyes out. Going back and forth between the screen and a much smaller, shittier one covered in dusty finger marks and blood is annoying enough even when you're not expected to do it throughout a pitched high-octane laser battle. But even if you do get bitten by a radioactive switchboard operator and the controls become halfway decent, the learning process is severely hampered by the constant switching of gameplay style and vehicles throughout the campaign, all of which have shitty controls in subtly different ways. You can almost justify using the screen controller to aim from a spaceship, because moving and aiming in three-dimensional space is a pretty complicated business it turns out, but not from a tank. There's a perfectly good right analog stick I could be using to aim with, but the game would prefer I use that to make the tank perform gymnastics. Of course there's plenty besides the controls to pick on, the controls would have been entirely moot if my cartoon-voiced sidekicks had made just one more unhelpful comment, because I wouldn't have been able to reach my controller after I'd shoved it up their arse. And I should mention that when the campaign proper began and I saw the map of 8 or 9 planets representing upcoming levels, I assumed that this was World 1, Super Mario 3 style. Imagine my surprise to discover that this was in fact the entire game. And it was all over in about two and a half hours, but I suppose that worked in its favour, because I remember thinking that if the game went on much longer after that fucking robot gorilla boss fight then I was going to kick it down a flight of stairs. Perhaps it should have aspired to be even shorter. Hell, if it had melted as soon as I opened the box it might even have gotten five stars. Still, 70 bucks for two and a half hours would bring tears to the eyes of an investment banker as surely as a kick in the trust fund. Normally at this point I'd get my narc on about the modern games industry's ongoing habit of reducing the actual meat and potatoes of the games for the sake of a shinier plate, but Star Fox Zero's graphics look like fried shite. The models and level design look like something from two or three generations ago with the textures buffed up a bit. I can't think how this game could possibly be taking up the whole disc. Maybe this is all part of some sinister master plan to smuggle illegally downloaded episodes of Keeping Up Appearances into the country. No, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but then neither does the publishers thinking the game held up alright. The only positive I have is that the final dogfight with the evil animal flying squad across the surface of totally not the Death Star was alright. Otherwise the broad impression of Star Fox Zero effort is that it's just not trying hard enough where it counts, and too hard where it doesn't. And I'm only asking to be met halfway, Star Fox, because I'm trying not to punt you off a bridge. Oh dear, it's one of those gap-in-the-schedules kinds of weeks. Well, there was Battleborn, but you know. Multiplayer-focused, MOBA-inspired, by the guys who made Borderlands the Pepsi to Overwatch's Coke. That's not my bag, like three times over, as the frustrated old woman said to the forgetful lost property attendant, and I doubt my opinion holds much value. Of course, the game does say we're perfectly welcome to play it single-player, but I've fallen for that one before, haven't I? Like with Evolve and Star Wars Battlefront, which technically do have single-player, in the same way that a hotel room does technically have a B-Day if they hire someone to lie on the bathroom floor and spit up your asshole. So it's been a while, let's retro-review, and since we just did the Nintendo game, let's remind ourselves of a time when Nintendo didn't gargle quite so much hot motion control piss gravy and spat it out all over our aching wrists. It's 2004, it's the GameCube, a console with several very decent games you'll find very difficult to get hold of and play these days, which is in some way in service of progress, and incidentally you could run faster if you weighed less, so why not cut one of your legs off? It's a game that I'm constantly bringing up whenever we talk about RPGs, Mario games and RPG Mario games, Paper Mario The Thousand Year Door. The second game in the Paper Mario series that continued the Mario RPG tradition that began on the snares with, brace yourself, Super Mario RPG. 
Luigi. A collaboration between Nintendo and Squaresoft, which explains why it was simultaneously cutesy and fucking incomprehensible. Paper Mario, meanwhile, was developed by Intelligent Systems, who it turns out had some pretty good ideas despite their company having the dreariest fucking name in the history of game development. The Paper Puppet Theatre aesthetic was a lot more appealing than Mario RPG's 3D pre-rendering, a style that looked good for about the 12 nanoseconds after Donkey Kong Country came out and then looked like Playmobil people sliding around a breakfast tray. But the reason why I hold up Paper Mario 2 as the peak of Mario RPGing is that while Nintendo are a stubborn lot that retread their old ground so much that they've worn down a trench deep enough for a fucking Fallout shelter, something magical happens on the rare occasions when they do try building some continuity. Look at the N64 Zeldas, Ocarina of Time had to re-establish all the same old shit, Link, Zelda, Burble Bomb, Ganon, Triforce, Bomble Boo, but once they'd gotten that shit out of the way, they did Majora's Mask in the same continuity and that actually had some really good original ideas and themes. And the same thing happened with Paper Mario, the first one had to get the tired old status quo bullshit out of the way, Bowser kidnaps Princess, Mario mounts highly circuitous rescue attempt that will inevitably involve collecting stars, for it is always stars, but once that was established they could do Thousand Year Door, same continuity, some actual new fucking ideas, for you see Nintendo you'll never break your shoes in properly if you keep rebooting every five minutes. How's about this for breaking the mould? Princess Peach gets kidnapped, right, by somebody other than Bowser. BAM! And the seven stars you have to collect are seven crystal stars this time, fucking hell guys, rein the creativity in before it starts triggering miscarriages. Alright, admittedly the broad strokes of the game aren't that much different to Paper Mario 1 and it was Super Paper Mario that really shook the formula up. Thousand Year Door still applies Paper Mario 1's turn-based combat of the temporary pocket dimension variety with the usual Mario RPG innovation that you can press a button in time with the hits to do more damage or take less, which is about as far as turn-based combat can innovate without turning into one of those god-awful turn-based real-time hybrid systems of the Nino Cunies of the world. Still, over time the Mario RPGs couldn't resist escalating the mechanics so that attacks require more and more ridiculously elaborate minigames, the Mario and Luigi series have run this right into the fucking ground, and now the super attacks in those games are like supervising a temperamental Heath Robinson machine. But in Thousand Year Door, the worst it gets is probably the Earthquake attack, which is the best all-purpose damage dealer for most of the game, but getting the full effect requires playing five minutes of Parappa the Rapper. The combat's also lent depth by the badge system that allows Mario's fighting style to be heavily customised, but considering virtually every enemy has some specific immunity, the only practical fighting style is all of them. But the fact is, the combat almost doesn't matter. An RPG must have some, and hey, there it is. It's the story and writing that have the edge. Considering that Nintendo these days treat their first-party IP like it's the priceless family silver and don't even use it for special occasions now because it's just about the only thing they have left to pawn, it's amazing to look at what Thousand Year Door and other Mario RPGs managed to get away with while flying the official Mario flag. Thousand Year Door pretty swiftly goes off the usual rails, you know what I mean, grasslands, desert, ocean, jungle, my Sharona. Yeah, the first stage is much of the grasslands about it, and then you fight a dragon in a castle, but it's not too long after that before you get to the chapters where Mario takes up a career in professional wrestling or investigates Agatha Christie mysteries on a moving train. Super Paper Mario was even more offbeat with its settings, but Thousand Year Door found the best balance between the irreverent funny laughs and building an actual cohesive world that's more than just a vehicle for the silliness. The hub town around which the game revolves is not a cheerful smurf village where the generic mushroom people live the eternal paradox of how one builds a pastel-coloured sugar plum cottage with no opposable thumbs, but a cosmopolitan pirate town in the grip of sleaze and organised crime. There's even a dirty great gallows in the town centre which is a bit dark, although considering all the Mario monsters that can fly or have no discernible neck, there's only about five dudes it could have been used on. This is also the game in which Princess Peach is about as sexualised as she'll ever be in an official Mario game, and in that I include Super Mario Sunshine in which Bowser's kid claims to have come out of her vagina, and tellingly she doesn't deny it. In between Mario's chapters you briefly play as Princess Peach in the villain's hideout finding a way to send help or information to the outside world, and she's able to do this because early on the villain's computer spies on her taking a shower and then spends the rest of the game contriving new reasons for her to take her clothes off. It might sound exploitational to you, but I think she comes across rather well. She's a diplomat, not a fighter, and she's finding opportunities to leverage the upper hand, making full use of the assets she has available. Both of them, in fact. She'd last longer than Mario in Game of Thrones. She'd have a strategic marriage in the bag before you can say nudity clause. 
The one thing everyone knows about Naughty Dog as a developer is that they've never had a franchise outlive a console. They tossed in Crash Bandicoot with the PS1, Jack and Daxter went down on, I mean down with the PS2, and Uncharted was a creature of the PS3 until now. So what does it mean when a Naughty Dog franchise spreads onto another console generation? That fire will soon rain from the sky and I shall behold a great beast rising from the ocean with seven heads and seven tragic early 2000s haircuts? Or it could just mean that the new console generation is wank that has made no significant steps forward and has chosen instead to lie down on the floor and look for treasure in its belly button. Anyway, Uncharted 4 is very decisively the final game in the series about exploring marvellous lost cities in many exotic international locations while controlling an insufferable murdering pillar whose dialogue is 10% smug quips and 90% exertion noises. And Uncharted 4 has concluded that the insufferable pillar is the part we're invested in. I feel this is making the same mistake as the new Tomb Raiders, trying to focus on the protagonist of the adventure story rather than the adventuring part. Claim to be invested in Lara Croft's character all you like, but you know you'd rather watch her out running an avalanche than talking earnestly about her commitment issues. I mean, strip the adventure out of Uncharted 4 and it's just people with no idea how to communicate with each other the game. I know that's kind of the point when Nathan Drake creates a rift with his wife by not telling her he's going on an adventure, but towards the end, when they're together again and are having a big reconnecting scene, these people who've been married for years still can't fucking communicate. All they do is quip and talk into their shoes. It makes me fucking cringe. I want to step in, shove them aside, and do the dialogue myself with sock puppets. If you dropped a Shakespearean character into the Uncharted universe, they would stand out like a neon pink Johnny in a cucumber patch. Come join me now, ye gentles all, and crouch behind yon chest-high wall. So you're out of luck if you're not interested in Nathan Drake as a person and would rather get on with the action and adventure part of the action adventure, because before things kick off you've got two flashback chapters to get through and then a chapter in which Nathan Drake bums around the house being mildly frustrated. You know what though, I talk shit, but I was actually starting to like the bastard during that whole segment. I want to see more of the boring suburban life of the ex-douchebag adventurer as like Han Solo getting dropped into the middle of an Alan Bennett production. When his long-lost brother shows up and pulls him back into the thug life, I was rooting for Nate to tell him to piss off and go back to browsing the Ikea catalogue. But no, you can't keep a good mass murderer down and things swiftly descend into the usual mix of linear climbing sequences, gun battles and elaborate puzzles created by ancient explorers with apparently very little else to do with their lives. You may already have picked up on the potent whiff of retcon in the air. Nathan Drake having an older brother who was his inseparable partner well into their adult careers is something that might have been worth mentioning in the flashback sequence of the previous game, when Nathan Drake was a street kid ostensibly all alone in the world, but I suppose if I tanked as many blows to the head as Nathan Drake does, I'd probably lose count of how many relatives I've got too. Nathan's brother needs his help to pay off an evil dictator, so they set off in search of a buried pirate treasure, which rather illustrates my earlier point, because buried pirate treasure is the kind of placeholder plot that gets yelled over the head writer's shoulder as he hurriedly exits the planning meeting at bang on the hour the bar opens. So the game takes a long time to get going, and maybe too long overall, because by the end I was going, Jesus Christ, this game's long, which is the usual sign of being overlong. Then again, I could just have been bored by the continual string of incredible stunts and chase sequences in picturesque exotic locales, because the series has already taken it up past 11 more than once, and I'm not talking about bedtimes, so Uncharted 4 can't help feeling like we're repeating ourselves. After the mythical lost cities of the last three games, we're after a B-grade treasure at best, hence I suppose the focusing on Drake as a character. But the problem with that is, he's a pillock. There's yet another prolonged flashback chapter in the mid-game, where we learn the circumstances under which he and his brother took the name Drake and began adventuring, and it's treated like the moment when Bruce Wayne sees a bat flapping about and decides as any sensible person would to start wearing black pyjamas and a bucket on his head. For me, it's like having a drawn-out flashback scene revealing the exciting origin of his trousers. I didn't think it was that important, I just assumed he put them on that morning because his ballet tights were in the wash. If it weren't for all the character stuff being used as a crutch, I could take Uncharted 4 out of the larger context of the series where it would probably fare better because it wouldn't get so bloody predictable. Oh look, an area full of conspicuous chest-eye walls before a puzzle room. A glib assurance from Nathan Drake that the villains can't possibly catch up with us now. I wonder if completing this puzzle will serendipitously coincide with them doing that very thing. You can definitely see the influence the new Tomb Raiders have had, as the major mechanics besides the climbing and the shooting include swinging on ropes and sliding down hills on our slab-like masculine buttocks. The combat's got the good old stealth focus again, and of course we have plenty of entirely linear predetermined action sequences very artfully disguised as open-ended ones, but I can't get up its ass too much, because 
because I know this is the kind of game I miss when I'm having to play shit like The Division and other games that one should be very strongly advised not to play prior to operating heavy machinery, I couldn't call Uncharted boring. But it has now done all it can do, in which case, well done for ending it, and that's pretty conclusively ended, because it's got the kind of epilogue you can't roll back from without a time machine, or more realistically, a particularly exorbitant check from Sony. Happily, the developers made all my dreams come true by having an American as the main villain, hooray! And all of his henchmen as South Africans, boo! Oh well, no one gets along with South Africans, least of all other South Africans, but even without the us versus foreigners subtext there's still something obnoxious about Uncharted. Possibly it's the self-congratulatory air, as characters laugh at each other's non-jokes and say things like, my what incredible scenery, I definitely wouldn't regret the purchase of any console that could render shit like this. There's even a bit where you have to play Crash Bandicoot, which is about the most blatantly masturbatory thing a developer can do, short of put packets of their own jizz in the box. Something to think about for the special edition, lads. Doom, and I still hate the practice of sequels with identical names, so from now on I will refer to it as Doom, was promising to be the kind of classic style FPS that I enjoy very much, which immediately made me suspicious. You're a hardcore retro shooter focusing on fast pace and mobility while fighting off hordes of monsters? Well, it won't be truly retro unless it's level based with open-ended maps and key hunting. Oh, it does have that. Alright then, but you couldn't resist having weapon reloading, that's the one thing that shooter developers always put in these days without considering how it screws up the pace of, oh, there's no reloading. Alright, what the fuck are you up to, Bethesda? For me, this is like when an attractive young woman comes up to me in a bar and says, you know I I am so attracted to aging socially awkward hairy men who play too many video games, why not buy me a drink and then perhaps a house? Perhaps I've gotten too defensive and cynical from a lifetime of disappointment, but after playing through Doom I think I've come to realise that people who come onto me might not necessarily be gold digging harlots. Some of them are just trying to get back at their dad. I didn't know what to expect of Doom, but I did know what I didn't want. I didn't want Doom 3, the game that was 90% pitch blackness and 10% audio logs. So hopes weren't high when Doom opens with the protagonist having to listen to a voice on a computer screen, until five seconds into the speech our hero smashes the monitor like a confused gorilla, then starts shooting zombies and never stops. Doom certainly seems to have a firm understanding of its audience, because while there is a plot going on, the player character couldn't give a half ounce of deep fried shit. If you want to know the plot, then pause the game and read all the fluff text in the character and location database, sipping daintily from your delicate pink teacup full of pussy juice, while the game waits patiently for you to strap your bollocks back on and get back in the fray. Not the most organic way to bring story across, but what the hell else could they have done? Have Jiminy fucking Cricket sitting on your shoulder whispering stories in the brief pauses between the sounds of partially muscled bone being crushed between your erect bulletproof nipples. For what it's worth, the plot is, stock Amoral Corporation Sci-Fi Subcategory 9, Wayland yutani type, has stock evil science motivation Subcategory 12, Energy Crisis, and they have found the foolproof and completely unlikely to backfire solution of extracting energy from the Christian afterlife. I don't know why they felt they had to stick to hell. You'd have thought a few solar panels around God's beard would have done the job. Sadly, not Wayland yutani forgets to screen its employees for death metal fans and someone unleashes the hordes of hell on the Mars base. You, meanwhile, are a mythical demon-slaying warrior who was being kept in hell's drunk tank after the last time you smashed the place up, awakened to once again show the demons what for, and dress up like a Lego astronaut. Doom's gameplay is a surprisingly faithful update of the original Dooms. No, you couldn't double jump in the originals, but you could move faster than a conservative political campaigner through a minority district, so it's still in the spirit of things. The combat is distinctly mechanics-focused, it doesn't make conventional sense that chainsaw murders make the victim burst into piles of ammunition or that smashing their head in makes them disgorge bandages and Mars bars, but it does from a mechanical perspective, because the chainsaw is what you use when you're low on ammo, and brutal murder is the game's intended solution for moments of high stress, as well as moments of low stress and all the moments in between. I wasn't sure about the whole glory kill thing. They're called glory kills for one thing, which sounds like what you'd call stabbing someone to death with your knob through a hole in a cubicle wall, but they're actually pre-animated takedown moves, a thing that modern action games persist in having that have a tendency to kill the pacing as assuredly as a passport checkpoint on a roller coaster. To Doom's credit, they are very quick, it's more an Israeli passport checkpoint than an American one, but considering you can glory kill every single fucking monster just by getting their health low, it gets repetitive. Maybe it should have been more of a reward, like in Resident Evil 
four, and you have to kneecap dudes before you can suplex them. It stops being memorable when I kill every single Baron of Hell by pulling their horn off and wimpily swiping their face with the wet end, like I'm giving them a dirty Sanchez. Actually, before I continue with my list of whinging nitpicks, perhaps I should clarify that I do recommend Doom, and had more fun with it than I've had with most AAA shooters lately. And that being the case, it would be remiss of me not to list what issues I did have, but none of them are deal breakers, and it doesn't actually bother me that much that most of the NPC dialogue sounds like they're trying to do an impression of Dr. Claw from Inspector Gadget. Okay? Okay. The loading times were a bit of an arse, and in levels with jumping puzzles over instant kill death pits there are a lot of an arse, but they were a triple stacked arse with whipped butter on the side when the game was treating me hammering the ledge grab button as more of a blue sky suggestion than a command. Relatedly, this is definitely a game that benefits from having the mouse and keyboard rather than the controller because the controller's best suited to wheeling yourself around an arena like a runaway dessert trolley on a chest high wall safari, not so much for simultaneously jumping one way, looking in another, grabbing a ledge, shooting a dude and tying up your shoelaces. The game's a little bit crazy with the upgrades, there's character upgrades, runes that give you passive buffs, and the main currency is weapon upgrades. They give that shit away like condoms at a planned parenthood clinic. You killed all the monsters, weapon upgrade! You went into a secret, weapon upgrade! You came back out of the secret, weapon upgrade! Why the fuck not? Thing is though, you can only use them to upgrade the special alternate attacks each weapon has, a lot of which I didn't get much use out of when a good hard shotgun blast will answer most of a demon's probing interview questions. But hey, if the tokens are too easy to get but the upgrades are kinda shitty, then I guess those issues cancel each other out. And the upgrades must have been having some effect, because I thought the game was a bit easy by the end, when it felt like it had no more tricks up its sleeve. Oh, goodness, I killed the entire wave of monsters and two barons of hell spawned. This will call upon all my training that I had five minutes ago the last time this happened. The monsters never took me by surprise, the way they'd always spawn in with a red glowy effect, a shower of confetti and an English butler reading their names out loud. I don't want the Doom 3 thing where you pick up a small health pack and six hidden doors fly open to reveal hell's entire buggery squadron, but there's gotta be a middle ground. Oh yeah, and the grenades feel a bit wimpy. I throw it, there's a little foot, and then all the zombies around it fall apart with embarrassment. I think that's it. As I say, my problems are mere flicked bogeys sticking to the edges of a perfectly solid core. Maybe it's rather blatantly pandering to my generation of gamers, but this is the good kind of panda. The kind that gets all the bamboo and has sex once in a while. Well, here's a franchise I never thought would have the balls to show its face around these parts again. Homefront, the contemporary shooter hinging on the ever-so-slightly balmy premise that North Korea could be a credible threat, rather than the national equivalent of a talkative Counter-Strike player. Oh, but it's alright, it's an alternative universe North Korea that found a whole bunch of money and military tech in a Christmas cracker or something and now wants to muscle a considerably weaker country on the other side of the world, for no adequate reason. But if you're gonna make alt-North Korea so wildly different to the real-world equivalent, then why even call it North Korea? Call it Bastardstan or Spermany. I feel like the starting point must have been a slightly creepy desire to kill North Koreans, and then they had to tortuously contrive a scenario in which the conflict wasn't totally unfair. The first Homefront was a linear shooter about as worth committing to memory as the lyrics to Agadoo, and Homefront Revolution seems barely connected at all. Incidentally, well done for using the single most overused subtitle, you fucking- oh hang on, my mistake, it's actually called Homefront THE Revolution. Well that's alright then, carry on. In Homefront world, North Korea is a global centre of tech manufacturing and the US is cripplingly indebted to it. Guys, if you want the villains to be China, just make the villains China. Dancing a 12-foot radius around it is just undignified. Anyway, the People's Republic of Cheria call in the debt, occupy and enslave the US, and you're part of a guerrilla resistance movement to take the country back. The problem is, or rather the first problem on the dizzying pile I've prepared for today, is that while the whole alt-universe thing asks us to mentally disassociate from the North Korea we're familiar with, we're simultaneously asked us to root for America based on our knowledge of the real-world version, rather than the deadbeat nationwide slum presented for us here. I don't know, doesn't seem like Korth Norea could run the place any worse. Oh, but the evil lurking behind the friendly facade of the occupying force is revealed in the intro sequence as our character is interrogated by a sadistic torturer before escaping and rejoining the resistance who mistake us for a spy and take us to be interrogated by their sadistic torturer. And I guess we're supposed to think it's cute this time? What purpose could the sadistic torturer speed dating sequence possibly have except to establish that both sides are cocks and the Schmorth Schmarians at least have better hygiene? So with our investment
investment in the struggle completely not established, the game finally gets going, with a shuddering cough and a little squirt of piss into its pants. Home front of the refrigerator has technical issues the way the Waffen SS had a few bad apples. This is the worst audio mixing I've ever heard in what purports to be a finished game. Is that all you've got, Yatsu? Do you really give that much of a shit about audio mixing? No, I bloody don't. Nobody does. So imagine how god-awful the audio mixing has to be that I consider it important to mention. I was being talked to by an NPC on our way down a corridor and my fucking footstep sounds were drowning out his speech. It was like my shoes were trying to do the Bane voice. But even if you're the kind of biblical messiah who can forgive the sin of bad audio mixing, the frame rate was so awful I could practically hear the clicking of the joints of the old man turning the crank, and the game freezes for five seconds every single time it autosaves, like you're trying to watch a YouTube video on an oil rig. And whenever it happened, every single time I would cross my little fingers and say a little prayer. Please crash. Go on, you pussy. Give me the excuse. No such luck, but Backyard the Renovation is a sandbox game, which are at increased risk of buggering up, so there was always the chance of it buggering itself to death at some point. It's a sandbox shooter in the inevitable liberate all the districts mould, but I wonder if as the medium has evolved we have rather lost touch with the essential purpose of the sandbox shooter. The word sandbox implies carefree entertainment free of the restrictions of linear game design, and the word shooter implies that the bang-bangs will be going into the man-mans. But it seems like there's nothing that human the resources wants to avoid more than those two things, with the possible exception of adequate QA testing. The game cheerfully supplies you with shitty standard FPS weapons and puts an emphasis on weapon modding and crafting, and then if you actually try to get into a shootout to make use of it all, you get a clip around the ear, because enemies just keep on coming and your health bar empties faster than a cake shop after your mum gets off the leash. Guerrilla warfare, you idiot! Stop trying to have fun and go hide in a bin! The districts are split between secure yellow zones, where you use stealth to avoid having fun, and contested red zones, where you use motorbikes to avoid having fun. The motorbikes are just there so you can quickly get around without having to fight things. Even if you try to run the enemies over, you go straight through them. It takes quite a bit of effort to make motorbiking around a combat zone not fun, so well done on that front. Home front. In both kinds of districts, liberating the individual regions largely involves finding the one slightly obscure route through a stronghold to press the Liberate Region button, at which point the occupying armed enemy soldiers all shrug their shoulders and piss off. Well, maybe all your resistance chums get so inspired by your button-pressing prowess that they chase the baddies away, but frankly I doubt it, because I saw the resistance in action, and inaction is precisely the word for it. You can enlist passing resistance members to aid you, and I attempted this precisely once, because my new chum spent the whole time consistently standing in the doorway I was trying to get through. Yes, the buggery continues, the AI in this game would struggle to pass remedial colouring in lessons. The characters must all have hitboxes like brick chimneys because they can get stuck on discarded crisp packets. The one incident which was the defining moment of the game for me took place in a resistance hideout, where I guess I'd forgotten to flush the toilet properly before I left because two NPCs came over and pinned me to a wall. They both stood staring at me, refusing to move, and every time I tried to get past them they'd hurl foul-mouthed abuse. Well fuck you too, game! If I wanted this treatment I'd have attended my brother's wedding! And if Hurdy the Gurdy doesn't end up in the year's bottom five then it's a fucking depressing six months ahead. The problem, by which I mean the rancid underlying problem, upon which all the other problems scuttle and defecate, is that it's chasing a trend that we've already left behind. No one wants contemporary shooters anymore, Battlefield has decided it's going to wring some fun out of World War One, and good luck to them, because that's like wringing apologetic tears out of Hillary Clinton, while Call of Duty is off to fight Zargon warships on the planet shithouse. Meanwhile, the success of Doom and Overwatch shows a lean towards good old-fashioned fast-paced fun violence on a layer of shrink-wrapped bum cheeks. Homefront of the Revolution is just a game that's past its time. Its time was 1346 AD when the Black Death broke out. Yes, I know what I said a couple of weeks back about not doing Battleborn or Overwatch, but that was an easier thing to say when I wasn't staring down the dismal tunnel of inevitable mid-year drought like a gynaecology student cramming for the final exam. My argument was, as someone who has never seen the appeal in the standard multiplayer game structure of playing the same mission over and over again in the hope of one day becoming as skilled as the insufferable passionless cunts that infest the servers, my opinion on games that focus on such is akin to Freddy Krueger's opinion on electric hair straighteners. But then I thought, hang on, maybe there is value in me playing two different flavours of the suddenly inexplicably popular multiplayer hero shooter 
genre, and stating as a confessed outsider which one I enjoyed more. So with this brief in mind, I played some Overwatch and some Battleborn, and I just know that before this review is over I'm going to slip up and call it Bloodborne. Even as I'm writing this fucking sentence I'm having to open Steam and determine whether or not you spell Battleborn with an E on the end. Anyway, the plan was to spend each afternoon this week playing a bit of Battleborn and then a splotch of Overwatch, in their respective multiplayer modes with nostrils firmly clenched. This ran into the immediate stumbling block that Battleborn servers are as lively as a swingers sex party in the hip replacement ward. Yes, if there were hopes for a Coke and Pepsi style rivalry between the games they seem to have been well and truly dashed. The loser already poured down the sink to provide sewer rats with slightly claggy aftertaste forevermore. But people seem to be down on Battleborn from the moment it came out and I'm not sure I understand why. I mean yes, the gameplay is utterly boring and the menus are horribly designed and the dialogue writer's idea of creating personality is to make every character talk like Buffy the fucking Vampire Slayer, but in other words it's an entirely typical Gearbox game. I thought the same things of Borderlands and I seem to be the only person in the world who didn't like that bollocks. No, the fact is, Overwatchers had media coverage that would bring envious tears to the corpse of Princess Diana and a doctrine has come down from the United Nations demanding everybody like it or have sanctions placed on their international trading, so Battleborn was preemptively dismissed as a cash-in imitator, to be considered alongside Chinese bootlegs of superhero action figures named things like Spoderman and Batfellow, which I don't think is fair. Yes, both games sell themselves on a big roster of colourful playable characters, but then fighting games have been doing that for as long as my parents have stopped having sex. They are both first-person shooters, but otherwise the experience is quite different. Battleborn allows single-player significantly, although the maps are expansive and every NPC with dialogue refers to you with plural pronouns, so it does have a bit of that slightly depressing air of going to a theme park by yourself. Overwatch, meanwhile, has Team v Team multiplayer and that's it, and while I can respect wanting to focus on doing one thing really well, rather than everything blandly, I'm iffy about selling such a game for full price. Its mentor Team Fortress 2 never cost 70 fucking bucks even before it was free, and Overwatch has micropayment sales on top of that! Blizzard must rack up a lot of maintenance costs polishing up those massive brass balls of theirs! I miss the days when video games were a thing that you bought and then owned, rather than something you are temporarily permitted to occupy in return for tithes and devotion, as you pray that your meager offerings please the gods and stave off the inevitable coming of the great server shutdown. Battleborn has a series of campaign missions to go through in turn and only unlocks a handful of its characters at the start, while Overwatch splatters all its content and gameplay at you in one go. Overwatch strips naked in the doorway and goes for you like a jumping spider, Battleborn totters into the lounge wearing 17 sweaters. I liked that Overwatch gave me a practice range where I could play each character in turn and figure out which one I liked the feel of, where all I could do at the outset of Battleborn was start a story mission, arbitrarily pick someone, and hope that they're not one of the ones that needs other players around to push their wheelchair. The gameplay has a memorpogree feel in that the missions all feel like I'm doing an instance in World of Warcraft, streams of identical mobs broken up by the occasional miniboss, and environments with really unfeasibly big furniture, plus a lot of special attacks that boil down to hurt enemy, hurt enemy slightly more, and hurt several enemies who didn't figure out not to stand in the conspicuous glowing circle. Each character in Overwatch, meanwhile, has three or four refined skills that all go toward making them good at one specific thing, so all the characters have to be unlocked from the start because otherwise it'd be like having to unlock one of the wheels on your car. In summary, the difference is that Battleborn is a game of unlocking stuff and Overwatch isn't. You unlock characters, you unlock their skills, and their skills reset every mission so you can have all the fun of unlocking them again. Maybe the way one character delivers their annoying quips endears them to you enough that you might want to unlock their backstory by completing various grind challenges, which seems like a pretty good way to make them less endearing really fucking fast. Overwatch only has cosmetic unlocks, and the system for that is frankly insulting. I play round after round, murder legions of my fellow man, woman, and monkey cyborg, and for my efforts I'm awarded one loot box containing two banana stickers and a pink leotard for a character I hate. Mind you, I got more use out of those banana stickers putting them around the spawn waiting for the round to start than I did out of the gear I was unlocking in Battleborn, which promised to temporarily shave 0.7 seconds off my ball scratching time if I could ever figure out how to equip the fucking things. I think it's safe to say that in the gameplay event Overwatch takes the trophy and covers it in banana stickers before Battleborn can even unlock its running shoes. But Battleborn has a plot, where Overwatch just has a paragraph on a website talking some guff about a robot invasion, giving bugger all explanation for why these dudes are arbitrarily teaming up to fight clones of each other. Remember 
remember that little controversy when Blizzard cut out a pose of a character sticking her bum out because one person complained? That annoyed me. Not because of my personal bum preferences, but because making a change after one solitary complaint shows just how little shit they gave about artistic vision. Every character is an archetype cynically designed to pander to some section of the audience. There's the obvious eye candy girlies wearing cling film, but there's also a muscle lady and a chubby girl in specs, so the gender specials don't throw a strop. Then we'll have two samurais and a mecha girl for the weeaboos, a cowboy for dudes with slightly weird ideas about the masculine ideal, and a skull-faced murderer for dudes with even weirder ideas about the masculine ideal. In contrast, Battleborn's cast is scrappier, but consequently comes across as more human and less focus-grouped off the cling film-covered arse. But at the end of the day, you can't argue with fun, and Overwatch is plainly and simply more fun than blood Ooh, almost did it there, didn't I? I meant Battleborn isn't as fun as Hovercrotch. Uh, overpriced. Continuity is a bit like getting the pornography channel on a hotel room television. We can all agree it's nice to have, but if it's not there, it's difficult to explain why it's so important to you. You might reasonably wonder what relation Mirror's Edge Catalyst has to the original Mirror's Edge. Is it a sequel, or a prequel, or a reboot, or a soft reboot, or a hard reboot, or a traumatically invasive reboot behind the bike sheds? And the answer is, good old plain reboot classic. So it's the same main character in the same city with the same red and white colour scheme reminiscent of a wedding party massacre, and broadly speaking the same plot, just with a new cast of secondary characters and all the relationships muddled around a bit. I wondered if they'd brought the same writer back from the first one, the one who did the new Tomb Raiders, because their usual hallmarks were there, protagonist is annoying, has daddy issues, and spends the whole game panting down our ear like a malfunctioning hairdryer, but by the end I realised it couldn't have been them writing it because I'd started to like one or two of the characters. So take note, 2008 is officially far back enough to justify a reboot, but not so far back that they could get away with using the same title without an utterly meaningless word bolted on the end. Seems a bit fussy to reboot continuity after one fucking game, god forbid we stop indecisively slapping the buttocks of an intellectual property and actually start making headway towards getting a whole fist up there to rummage a around. Maybe they felt their new story was just too good to not use, but I doubt that, because I found I could mouth along to the hackneyed plot points. Oh look, a cocky new partner whom we initially dislike. Circle correct answer. We will A. Gradually gain mutual respect as we learn to work together, or B. Turn into pirate flamingos and mount a voyage to the Caspian Sea. Anyway, if you need getting up to speed, Mirror's Edge is set in an oppressive, worker-exploiting corporate future world, and it's published by EA, relatedly. An underground network of couriers undermine the corporate stranglehold via an off-the-grid delivery service, and we play one such courier named Faith, whose sexual part probably have a good laugh when they get together. Do you have faith? Yes, I'm having faith as we speak. I used to have faith, but I got disillusioned after I got my results back from the clinic. The evil corporations are brewing an evil corporate scheme and we can only hope that it's a scheme that can be foiled by doing parkour at it. Yes, Mirror's Edge is a first-person parkour up and the plot runs into the recurring issue that there are only so many situations that running somewhere very fast can assist with. The game's missions have many varied story reasons behind them, but in practical terms most of them are completed by running up to the right computer and mashing our hand on the screen. There's a memorable mission when Faith is working with the resistance as they set out to kidnap some evil corporate type, a fairly significant development that drives most of what remains of the plot. But since at no point in the process of kidnapping someone does parkour become necessary, the whole thing takes place off screen, with Faith tasked to instead, open quotes, clear the path by, you guessed it, following a parkour path to a series of computers and mashing her hand on each screen. You get to listen to the kidnapping through your earpiece, as you gaze heavenwards and dream about what it would be like to be the main character of this story. Still, I suppose I shouldn't encourage the game to parkour outside its comfort zone since it attempts to do that with the combat, and in doing so, parkour straight into a brick wall. The combat was the metaphorical anchovy in the trifle last time around as well, and why on earth wouldn't it be? You're a tiny unarmed personal trainer in climbing shoes, whose superpower is possessing the speed of one person on roller skates. Why the hell should we be expected to take on four fully equipped riot cops in a straight fight? The game even suggests at times that the smartest thing to do is just keep running, maybe give the thug squad a cheeky smack on the bum as you glide past, and I'm fine with that, but I suppose someone thought it would be hard to justify putting all this work into armour designs and the prerequisite pre-animated takedowns if it's all just going to be streaking past like the end of 2001. 
one. So every now and again they lock you in a room for a few rounds with the goon squad and what do you know, it turns out that a skinny unarmed girl with a reduced perception of her surroundings that inevitably comes of a first person perspective will probably get passed around like a plate of canapes. What an informative science experiment this has been. And you can't use guns anymore, so if an enemy has one your only option is to sprint into melee range and hope you did enough press ups that morning to dissuade six or seven unavoidable bullets to the face. Gosh, so much to be unimpressed by I haven't even mentioned that it's a sandbox game yet. Which I thought would be a good idea since a free running game that's strictly linear with only one way forward makes about as much sense as buying a dog to guard your lawn against getting pissed on. But Mirror's Edge Catastrophic ends up being pretty linear regardless since it's more of a spaghetti plate than a sandbox, the routes you're supposed to take around the maps are fairly fixed and you're going to be using the same ones an awful lot, the environments are confusingly laid out and a little bit samey, turns out there aren't that many different shades of overexposed blinding whiteness, and I found myself being almost completely reliant on the GPS navigation, at which point all I'm doing is mindlessly following the magic red snake to my destination. And I've had a lot of traumatic experiences come out of strangers telling me to find their magic red snake. Unlike then though, sometimes in Mirror's Edge catalepsy the magic red snake will mysteriously go away and I have to stop dead and gormlessly look around for it, like a meerkat waiting for his uber driver. Which is particularly annoying when you're on a timed mission, for some reason all the side quest runs and deliveries have timers like your mum's beachwear in that they're rather upsettingly tight. I know there's supposed to be a bit more challenge in the optional shit, but there's got to be some fucking middle ground, as The Economist said to the American class system. Still, at least we're not expected to liberate the fucking districts like every other sandbox game and their dog these days. I want to turn that into a euphemism. He dropped his trousers and proceeded to liberate the districts all over the new carpet. But if we're not liberating the districts, then what the fuck are we doing in this city? Fannying about? Well, that's the idea of a sandbox, I suppose, but the story campaign is over quickly and the character upgrades are pretty minimal, so there's nothing I can feel like I'm working towards. Let me throw out some bones here. That's not a euphemism, pull your pants back up. The story is better than the first game and the parkour's fine. I like it even. It's cathartic but at the same time calls for an appropriate amount of skill. But it's the only string to the game's bow and it can't carry a whole sandbox, which is ironic for a delivery service. Here is a joke that I just made up. What's the difference between E3 and a pen full of excited pigs fighting over the stinking corpse of a sheep? Microphones! In all seriousness though, while I must again dutifully walk up to the pig pen and ready my castrating shears, it's looking like most of the pigs already curled up and nibbled their own balls off. There was something very half-hearted about the show this year, it's almost like publishers have realised that they could make all their announcements on the back of a used envelope at midnight on Remembrance Sunday, and the excitable little spurt burglars of the internet will still start ejaculating out of their eyeballs. Nintendo stopped physically showing up to the annual swimsuit contest years ago, preferring to send pre-recorded videos like an ISIS execution squad, and this year they could barely summon the effort to do that, with just a live stream that very conspicuously didn't mention the upcoming NX console, but made it about the games, or in real terms, GAME. Yes, stem thy frothing nostrils ye predictable fanboy sods, the Wii U's finally getting that fucking Zelda game you want so much, although it is going to have to share it with the NX, which at this point could be anything from an upgraded Wii U to a dancing bear in a fez. Sony also absentmindedly failed to bring up the rumoured PlayStation 4.5, and if I were them I'd have at least given it a fancy code name, like Project Buttery Thighs, just so we could call it something less tedious, otherwise a few updates on things we already knew about, PlayStation VR, a real no crossed finger backseas release date for Last Guardian which will now have to come free with a clone of Jesus to live up to the weight, and the corpse of Silent Hills has emitted a couple of unexpected farts, Kojima Productions announced something called Death Stranding with the emphasis on THING, a let's charitably call it a proof of concept which proves very little except that Kojima shouldn't watch so many music videos, and then there's Resident Evil 7 which has boldly leapt into Silent Hills' smoking shoes with a new and yet hauntingly familiar playable teaser in a first person spooky house. A style shift worked wonders for Resident Evil 4, but this is a shift so radical that even calling it Resident Evil borders on duplicitous, except for the fact that the game is now literally about an evil residence. Still, what else could they do, follow on from Resident Evil 6? That'd be like trying to serve dessert after the main course consisted of filet of asbestos in dog shit. Of the big lads in the playground, Microsoft was the only one still turning in its schoolwork, but with pimping the X-Bone's cellulite covered ass officially written off as a lost cause, we're being introduced to two younger, hotter sisters, the slimline 1S, where the 
the S presumably stands for Stick It Up Your Bum, and a slightly upgraded model called Project Scorpio. If you're going with the Zodiac names, Microsoft, then personally I would have gone with Cancer. What's with all these announcements for not quite next generation updated consoles? Is the big idea to turn this into the smartphone industry, where we buy a new one every two years because they slightly upped the resolution and smoothed another corner off? I'm not going to do that, assholes, because I don't keep my smartphone in a nest of cables under the TV that I'm loath to venture into without a native guide in the Wix provisions. On the other hand, Microsoft have also declared that Xbone games will be playable through Windows 10, and the console may even get mouse and keyboard support, which indicates that Microsoft's plan may be to become a developer of gaming PCs so gradually that nobody notices. Getting back to the subject of VR, I still think it's a way forward, but the push towards it is starting to remind me of the push towards motion controls, and that makes me uneasy, like my preferred political candidate got endorsed by Hitler. I do wish they'd stop trying to pair VR with motion controls, because that path never ends. You can buy hand puppet controllers and a treadmill and force feedback vests until your living room has more wires running through it than a foreign embassy in Moscow, and then you'll realise you can't smell the in-game gore so you hire beautiful Filipino boys to slaughter chickens under your nose, and it still won't be as immersive as a standard button controller that you barely have to think about. And I don't think there's any reason the game should be exclusive to VR, because I'm sure there are plenty of people who'd want to play it but don't want to take a break every two hours for a nice cleansing puke. Anyway, that Star Trek Bridge Operations game intrigued me, in a slightly shameful Dad's train set sort of way, but of all the generations of Star Trek we could pretend to be in, we're stuck with Reboot Trek? That's like inviting the Spice Girls to an orgy and only Sporty Spice shows up. Speaking of dad games, what's with God of War turning into The Last of Us? Kratos hefting his massive new beard around, teaching his moist son how to hunt. All I could think about as I watched him slowly trudge through pretty environments having Sony-branded character-building moments and being a bad dad was the start of the original God of War, in which Kratos was in a room full of monsters, yelled, Monsters are a thing that I kill, and that was it, straight into gameplay to start bouncing them around like kittens in a candy floss machine. These first five minutes of gameplay videos don't count for a whole lot if those five minutes are wholly unrepresentative of the rest of the game. I mean, we all know damn well that kid's not going to survive past the second act, because it wouldn't be a God of War game if Kratos wasn't using deicide as impromptu bereavement counselling. Right, what else? Did someone trip over the wires that were making Sony Tron 3000 remember that zombies are completely overdone? Because that's the only explanation I can think of for Days Gone, whose principal selling point seems to be it is a zombie sandbox, apparently unaware that Dead Rising 4 and State of Decay 2 were doing shots in the next room. Christ, it's not even the first zombie sandbox with the word day in the fucking title! Relatedly, Ubisoft continues to scream the word sandbox every time someone enters the room like a malfunctioning Furby, despite Assassin's Creed having been let off the milking machine for a quick stag around the meadow. Watch Dogs is getting a sequel based on the principle that shit is a good fertiliser, and I see they've abandoned the boring hero strategy for the blisteringly irritating hero who's watched too many Johnny Lee Miller films approach. You know what, E3 2016 was a show of names, lots of familiar names, some with incremental numbers on the end, some without. And I know that's pretty much the case every year, but there was an unusual spike in familiar names appearing over totally unfamiliar things. Resident Evil has never been Hoarders meets the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Prey was a lot of things, most of them retarded, but none of them are evident in what is now being referred to as Prey. And since Doom, Bethesda clearly feel they're onto a good thing, wiring up their milking machines to old id properties, but Quake Champions seems to have bugger all to do with the original Quake, and bugger lots to do with Overwatch being more successful than the MMR vaccine. If they keep this up, then soon we'll enter a world where names are totally fucking meaningless, which will come as a relief to my friend, Patrick Childmolester. Mighty Number no. 9 is a retro-style platformer developed by the creator of Mega Man and which was kickstarted by the fans, among whom I do not count myself because I didn't even play Mighty Number no. 1 through Mighty Number no. 8. And my goodness, this game seems to have pissed in a lot of people's hand sanitizer. The word mismanaged has been floating around a lot, but then this is the rule more than the exception with popular kickstarted projects. Say what you like about big publishers, but at least their drones have to demonstrate a degree of professionalism before they can donate their souls to the mothership, whereas the only guarantee with a kickstarted project is that lots of people want it, or at least claim to want it. In my experience, most people don't really know what they want, 
want. A lot of people said they wanted Britain to leave the EU, but were quickly rethinking their position after the country was taken over by a character from Sesame Street and the value of the pound dropped like a Conservative Prime Minister's trousers at a pig farm. Between Mighty Number no. 9 and Broken Age, people really need to stop massively overfunding these things because you don't keep a life raft afloat by throwing huge bags of coins at it. Personally, I've never taken an interest in behind-the-scenes drama when the end product is all that matters, so you can be assured of an unbiased review because I'm a stingy asshole who wouldn't kickstart his dad's life support machine. And I'm not huge on Mega Man, but I do like a nice hard game, because Mother used to make me self-flagellate with a spiked paddle every time I had a sinful erection, and now it's the only way I can get off. In a cartoony sci-fi world, just barely legally distinct from that of Astro Boy, a case of sentient domestic and industrial robots have all been equipped with destructive weaponry out of some slightly misguided application of the Second Amendment. All of them suddenly malfunction for mysterious reasons and turn against humanity, requiring the one remaining non-evil robot, Beck, to defeat them all and inject them with personality repellent so they can go back to being unpaid slaves for a decadent and ungrateful human race. Beck has a lady robot friend named Call. Beck and Call, you see, where in Mega Man they're called Rock and Roll. An intentional juxtaposition, perhaps, between the language of submission and a musical genre associated with youthful defiance. No, of course it fucking isn't, it's a gossamer-thin pretense of being a distinct entity from the Mega Man franchise, which the game can barely summon the effort to hold up. I quickly found myself wondering what people find so offensive about Revolution No. 9. Yes, it has the graphics of a high-end PS1-era game, and all the characters have the look of Kinder Surprise toys and about half the animation, but the last few Mega Man games were made with NES graphics, so the fanbase clearly care even less about technological relevance than they do about laundering their t-shirts. I still say that no game these days has any excuse for having a live system, because I place a clear distinction between a game that supplies an enjoyable meaty challenge and one that merely fucks the player about, and forcing me to restart the whole level from scratch because I died three times to an unreasonable pixel-perfect instant death jump to which I was given 12 nanoseconds to react very firmly pitches its tent in the fucking me about camp. But again, like a vast majority of kickstarted projects, nostalgia runs through Mambo Number no. 5 like whiskey through a recently deposed Prime Minister, and this just makes the game all the more faithful to its roots, and the age-old flaws that the nostalgia crowd don't see because they willfully poke themselves in the eyes with their own excited stiffies. I suppose the dialogue's pretty annoying, and just refuses to go away like an obnoxious uncle who came over for the holidays and is still there on January 3rd fucking the family dog. It's got voice acting straight out of a Saturday morning cartoon series about the importance of friendship with household appliances, and if I could claw back all the brain cells this game wasted thinking of new ways to tell me that I have to fight the enemies, I'd have enough to think of a funnier way to end this sentence. This was particularly annoying during the boss fight of the first mission because I learned swiftly that his voice lines were giving away what attacks he was about to use. That's American military engineering for you, I suppose. But when I got him down to half health, I couldn't hear his voice lines for a bit because my instructor had decided that now was the perfect time to remind me that I needed to fight the enemies. And with his subtitle and big stupid face concealing part of the arena, my little robot body was promptly taught some of the more advanced yoga positions. If I put my mind to it, I could come up with at least one major annoyance for every part of the game. In the power plant level, for example, the game only thought to tell me about the crouch dash move the moment after I was murdered by the pixel-perfect insta-kill trap where I was supposed to use it for the first and as far as I know only point in the game. In the underwater level, the water looks like Keith Richards pissed in it, so the visibility's really obnoxiously poor for no apparent reason, unless a rogue level designer covered the walls in medical diagrams of diseased vaginas and no one could be bothered to take them down. And there's another level that takes place entirely in a corridor, again for no apparent reason. A very long, boring, repeated corridor. And to cement its candidacy for Overwatch-style most obnoxious play of the game, it's deliberately got no checkpoints. Perhaps it was intended as some kind of on-the-nose metaphor for kickstarted game development. A long, arduous, inescapable journey full of monsters throwing deadly coins at your head, and every now and again you get insta-killed because your community manager said something dumb on the internet. All in all, I felt very little motivation to continue playing when I could have been doing the laundry or waxing my arsehole, but I still don't think it's that atrocious a game, just not as rewarding as ripping the hairs out of my taint, and frankly few things are. It could be that the Mega Man fans are down on it because it's not so much a suck session as a re-session. Mega Man is an old and venerable empire of sequels and spin-offs with decades of gameplay tweaks and innovations, but nine is the loneliest number didn't so much bring something to the table as snatch a few dinner rolls from the buffet and hide under the stairs. 
Call Lummy a boss with fire attacks, then a boss with ice attacks. I'd better get off this fucking roller coaster in case my nose gets nailed to the back of my skull. The main innovation, I think, is the dash move that allows you to absorb enemies with low health in return for small temporary boosts and nothing that you might actually need, such as more health or a set of magic insta-kill repelling pajamas. Mighty Number no. 9 is the classic victim of the hype perpetual motion machine to which Kickstarter nostalgia ventures are inevitably fed. It committed its sins before it ever saw the light of day because the people who invested built it up too much and were inevitably disappointed when it didn't heal their leprosy. Or travel back in time to assassinate Mecha Stalin. On its own merits, its only crime is being a mediocre game wearing the bra of a considerably better endowed one. You can either waste energy throwing its balled up tissues back in its face, or get over it and motorboat some cantaloupes instead. So with yet another typically quiet July stretching ahead of us like the long dusty road that connects two cesspools, let's take a look at some indie games exclusive to consoles, or as I like to call them, CLASS TRAITORS! I still miss those innocent days of the Xbox Live Summer of Arcade when the Xbox 360 would break up the mid-year drought with a showreel of indie digitals like a rich man digging a paddling pool in his front yard for the local street urchins to play in, while he watches from his darkened living room window, sweating profusely. And for a moment this week, the spirit of Summer of Arcade returned when the X-Bone coughed up a spiritual successor to Limbo, the depressed, self-harming beach babe of the 2010 frolics. So let's take a look inside. Uh, sorry, I meant to say, let's take a look at Inside. And that's going straight onto my list of game titles that are needlessly awkward to Google, alongside Fuse and Wet and Dead or Alive Extreme 3, which is very awkward to Google if your girlfriend ever looks at your search history. Inside opens with a small child lost in a dark forest and you are given the implied instruction to keep moving right until something tells you to stop. Nothing wrong with having a comfort zone, of course, but one could be forgiven for thinking at first glance that Playdead Studios have merely slapped a sporty red top onto the protagonist of Limbo and left it at that. It's an atmospheric puzzle platformer of the child lost in scary world genre that remains even after all these years. The fast track to indie acclaim, you have a jump button and a pull things button and you will die like a Game of Thrones supporting actor demanding a salary increase. But while the similarity to Limbo remains stark, things feel a little different when you start getting chased by dogs and scary men with flashlights and we discover there's slightly more of a plot going on inside. I mean, in inside. Oh fuck it, I'm just gonna call it Thatcher's Britain from now on, alright? Where in Limbo you were an insignificant speck of interest to other characters only as two ounces of a tasty nutritious alternative to pork, there's definitely something a bit deeper going on in Thatcher's Britain if the authorities are chasing you with scary dogs. As we explore the city, we uncover a sinister society where a scientific elite exploit a case of what could be artificial humans or brainwashed humans or the living dead or Brexit voters. It's all kept in the background and open to interpretation. Your job is to keep moving past the interesting things and try not to get murdered by the interesting things. It's got a handful of new mechanics to puzzle your way around. Since Limbo, the protagonist's head has been reduced in size for improved buoyancy, so now you can actually swim. And there's a recurring mechanic in which you remote control some artificial Brexit voters that at certain points in the game start to make it feel like a somehow even bleaker Abe's Odyssey. But ultimately, none of it fully shakes off the Limbo comparison, at least until the very last sequence of Thatcher's Britain. It is by no means a long game, and there are several elements one feels don't get a proper payoff. What was with that underwater baby thing with the 70s hairdo? What happened to that pig we hung around with? I thought we were getting along really well. But it's the last few minutes that most dominate my thinking when I go over Thatcher's Britain in my head, when the game takes the last exit to Bonkersburg. I very much don't want to spoil anything, but if you've ever fallen asleep while watching Children of Men and had that dream where you're being chased down a hallway by your father's disembodied testicles, it might seem weirdly familiar. A long journey on unexpectedly turns into a few minutes of chaos and horror and abruptly stops in a way that feels simultaneously relieving and anticlimactic. It's like watching the never-ending story up to one of the scary bits and then shooting yourself in the head. And honestly, I'm not even sure I'd recommend it. Certainly memorable and effective, but I left feeling more depressed than satisfied. Well, if they made Sex and the City into a film, there must be a market for depressing things. Anyway, Thatcher's Britain was only Xbox exclusive for like a week before the Steam release, so let's move on to something that's still console exclusive as far as I know. Shadow of the Beast on the PS4, a remake of a classic Amiga side-scrolling beat-em-up. The usual line one takes with remakes is 
what's the point of remaking something that's already a classic? And happily, that is a question that will come nowhere near this venture, because the original Shadow of the Beast was a load of old nobblers in which the principal activity was standing in one place mashing the punch button until everything stopped moving. So it's a perfectly sound idea to try the recipe again with maybe one less cup of diarrhea and one more cup of God of War. And so in Shadow of the Beast we are the titular beast who resembles a purple dude wearing a Pokemon on his head. We were created as a living weapon by an evil sorcerer, we break free of their control and proceed to murder our way through the sorcerer's minions to take up our list of grievances with the big baddie. So far so good. Or rather, so far so god of war. Where the game tries to evoke the game that inspired it is in the combat, which is very much in the spirit of keep pressing the punch button. Enemies approach in single file from in front and back, and most of them can be instant killed with one hit. What's the word for this strange feeling inside me, this cosy feeling of warmth and familiarity that makes me feel like I'm in precisely the place where I'm most comfortable? Oh, I remember. Hatred. I hate this combat system, because it's one part combat to one part Parappa the Rapper, and when you activate Rage of the Gods, I mean Frenzy Mode, I mean I can't even remember what they called it, I can't be asked to look it up, it becomes entirely a rhythm game with pre-animated kills instead of music that I couldn't even look at because I had to focus entirely on the timed button prompts so my dude could have been befriending the enemies with piñata parties for all I know. What's more, every move you make locks you into an animation that you can't cancel out of, and like a threesome participant who drew the short straw, you have practically no defence against being stabbed from both sides. With time, however, I did find myself gradually getting the hang of the rather needlessly complex array of moves, blocks and dodges, it turns out that all along the best strategy was keep pressing the punch button, and went into the final boss fight with a wary confidence in my abilities. And then, joke upon joke, the final boss fight uses different gameplay altogether, like an engineering degree course that ends with a pie-eating contest. It becomes a space harrier jetpack shooter, and the original did something similar, but let's not forget that this was in a bygone, more experimental age, when game design involved throwing ideas up into the air and breaking out the elephant gun. The theme of this week's episode has been games that turn into something else towards the end, but while Thatcher's Britain somewhat gets away with it by being constantly vague, Shadow of the Beast seems to merely forget what it was supposed to be doing. At the start, the villains steal a baby, and we go after them in pursuit, but I don't think that baby's ever brought up again. A baby isn't something one can quietly drop. The last baby I dropped certainly isn't quiet. It's always inspiring to see the sub-triple-A sector lighting itself on fire and shooting for the stars. No retro-pixel art or large-headed children in scary worlds for the Technomancer, oh goodness me, no! It's the Mass Effect and Deus Ex full-on action RPG club that it hopes to blag its way into with its dark glasses and suspiciously bulky trench coat. Have you characters, Technomancer? You bet your bollocks we've got characters, party members and quest givers every colour of the miserable bastard rainbow. With struggles and adversities you will invest in like a dot-com startup in the late 90s. Have you built us a world, Technomancer? You gamble your gonads we've built a world, a dark and complex cyberpunk world in which Factions battle for supremacy against the backdrop of post-colonization Mars, and there are only shades of grey. I ain't disputing that last part, Technomancer, but probably not in the way you intended. Now have you combat? You wager your wobbly bits we've got combat! Exciting real-time combat with enough variety of weapons and skills to create a staggering number of alternative playstyles. What number's that, Technomancer? Three! There's three playstyles. Hmm, that is quite a staggering number. Alright, I'm down. Why don't you start by telling me the main character's overall goal? I'll bugger, I knew we forgot something. For what it's worth, our hero is Zachariah Mansa, a Technomancer, because on future Mars, everyone's surname is their job, like a village of medieval serfs. We can customise his appearance, but it's not really worth the bother. You can't pick gender, and the available faces are a global showcase of conventional attractiveness. There's also no facial hair, like anywhere, even on the NPCs. Some people have stubble, but nothing that can't just be drawn onto the face texture with felt tips, so I guess we know precisely where the 3D modelling budget ran out. Anyway, our story begins with Zacky Boy, graduating from the Technomancy school of his home city on Mars. The Technomancers are an exclusive and ever so slightly creepy order of mystics bound by vow to protect the secret of their mysterious power. What mysterious power, you ask? They can shoot lightning. 
That's it. Doesn't seem worth making that much fuss about in a world that also has guns. You could out-equip a Technomancer with a gift certificate in ten minutes in an American shopping mall. And the big secret you're all vowed to protect is that Technomancers are technically mutants, the lowest caste of Mars society because aren't they always. This too doesn't seem worth making that much of a fuss about, and could probably lose all its impact with a few minor societal reforms. I mean, one suspects mutants are only an underclass because they're such ugly motherfuckers and the Technomancers all look like various incarnations of Robert Patrick, but it's Zachariah's devotion to keeping this secret that earns him the ire of the evil ruling authority. Once the graduation's over, Zack starts work as a peace officer working with the evil ruling authority, so while I was at that point about as engaged as a dad chaperoning his daughter to a One Direction concert, I figured I was obliged to at least play as far as the bit where we get framed and the sinister authority turns against us, which anyone with the majority of their brain still inside their skull could see coming. Any game in which you start as a member of a sinister authority who interacts with poor people and suspiciously attractive revolutionaries will almost certainly contrive you to be no longer a member of the sinister authority before the second act, with the exception of modern warfare shooters, where you usually stay in the sinister authority and French kiss assault rifles for six hours. It's the usual action RPG format, quest givers give you a place on the map to go to, you go to that place, talk to someone at that place, and occasionally they become so incensed by the audacity with which you go to places talking to people that you're forced to beat them and all their friends to death, in a Dragon Age-esque disorganised melee. There's the inevitable stealth option, but the stealth attack doesn't even kill the target, and it alerts everyone in the area anyway, so it's as much use as a handbrake on a shark. Otherwise, I've seen worse combat. I went for club and shield specialisation because fuck it, let's just turn every game into Dark Souls. And here's my top tip, keep swinging and press block if the enemy dodges twice, because you'll get a free parry. Combat got really fucking boring after I figured that out, but the game compensates for that. Remember when I said it was building a dark and complex cyberpunk world? Well, the emphasis was on dark. The graphics get so shadowy, it's almost impossible to tell the human enemies and my party members apart. They're all silhouettes with no beards, and half the time it's difficult to tell whether they're winding up attack animations or checking themselves for prostate cancer. So getting back to that inevitable first act twist, it turned out I was giving too much credit when I predicted the evil authority would frame you for something before they do the big betrayal scene, or indeed that they'd show you the big betrayal scene. What happens is, two of Zack's mates intercept him on the way to work and say, hey, they're setting up the big betrayal scene in there, might want to just piss off. And he takes their word for it. Blimey, those budget cuts hit everyone, don't they? Technomancer is certainly more at home to Trevor Tell than Siobhan Show, and by Christ does it tell. Characters can't be said to converse in this game, they merely recite paragraphs of exposition vaguely in the direction of other people. And sometimes the game doesn't even get as far as the telling. Those two mates who warn you off from the betrayal pinata party, I'm prepared to swear that this was the first time we were meeting one of them, but she's presented like we already know who she is. Maybe I hadn't paid enough attention because I was distracted cataloguing all the metal wall textures. It's possible she was one of the NPC quest givers we met earlier. They were all fairly interchangeable, dark clothes, boring voice, no beard. Whatever, betrayal allegedly occurs somewhere, presumably, and we're forced to flee the city to pursue our quest to... That's right, we never figured that out, did we? Well, there's some overarching thing about the Technomancers having the lifelong goal to re-establish contact with Earth, but that's more of a hobby, really, and even if they succeed, I failed to see how it would help. I don't see the scrappy survivalist communities of Mars crafting a space program out of radio parts and back issues of Top Gear magazine. All that we actually do is go from settlement to settlement, sorting out random issues and be the pigeon to the main villain's dick dastardly, who hounds us apparently out of having literally nothing else to do with his time. It's a shame because excepting a few petty niggles, like the way Zachariah shuffles forward a few steps every time you try to stop stop moving, so getting in front of a small panel or dustbin to interact with is like keeping hold of a bar of soap in the bath, the game is technically functional. But it can't tell an interesting story for shit, and in an RPG that's 90% of the final grade. They failed to find the interesting story in a game about lightning wizards from Mars. That's like failing to find the homoerotic subtext in professional wrestling. 
July remains a rich month for indie games, because if you want to snag yourself some of the AAA Dragon's Horde of Plunder, probably best to do it when the dragon's all tired out from fucking me up the arse. So let's take a look at Fury, a game as unique as it is bad at spelling. I say unique, it very strongly reminds me of games like No More Heroes, Lollipop Chainsaw, God Hand and the like, but it's got no retro pixel art, no procedural generation, and large-headed children don't get within seven leagues of a scary world, which in today's indie circles makes it jump out like a tarantula in a filing cabinet. You play a mute albino Bob Marley lookalike who everyone refers to as Stranger. We never find out what his last name is, though, probably Dan Fiction, or in the night. As the game opens, he's being held at the top of a magic space prison, and in order to escape, he must confront a series of colourful jailers and show them the true meaning of stranger danger. On the way, we learn bits and pieces about who we are and the nature of our imprisonment from the enigmatic things stated by our enemies, and by an omnipresent pink man with the head of a cartoon rabbit who might not be real. It reminds me of that time I took ketamine right before a job interview. The original thought from which Fury seems to have developed is this. What if you took no more heroes and cut out everything but the boss fights with crazy weirdos? Well, first of all, you'd have a fucking short game, but you'd also not have wasted hours of your life running down corridors, murdering hundreds of random ex that are as much threat to you as a breadstick is to an industrial fan, and shopping for t-shirts, and would now have all those hours spared to do something constructive like stare at a wall or try to remember all the number one hits of the Spice Girls. Fury would suggest that perhaps you could use the time you saved to walk very slowly through some very pretty landscapes it designed, while a rabbit-headed man shows off his impression of Mark Hamill's Joker. I suppose it has to build up anticipation for the next boss fight somehow, but I wouldn't think it was possible for walking slowly along a fixed route to control like shit. It's probably because of the way the camera keeps switching from one crazy artful angle to the next, like my walk down the street to the newsagent is being directed by Alfred Hitchcock. But I guess these bits are vital for the story in that they leave you confused rather than completely bewildered. In the actual fights, you hack and perchance slash with your sword, but regardless I'd be loath to call the game a hack and slash when it also has many of the elements of a bullet hell shooter, such as bullets, shooting, and me yelling HELL! I totally fucking parried that, you asshole game! The challenge comes from a mixture of pattern memorization, accuracy, and pure reflexes, but with varying amounts of each from boss to boss, which rather keeps things interesting. It also means that the difficulty curve is all over the fucking place, and more resembles a line graph showing my level of emotion during an average episode of Flipper. The hardest fights were the second, and I think it was the seventh, but only because it had more stages than the fucking grieving process, and ended with a prolonged gauntlet of hazards that had to be dodged and it's hard to predict that the dodge move will put you where you want or send you right into a burly sailor carrying two pints of bitter. The last but one fight is really weirdly easy, but also not quite easy enough to be a subversive joke non-fight like the one in No More Heroes, and in any case Fury is so short a game that one boss is a significant chunk, and throwing it away for a joke seems wasteful, like voting for the Libertarians. Fury's combat gets a wee bit parry-centric in the second half, and it won't last you very long if you are a hard games connoisseur, but it's original enough to make it worth giving a chance, you stingy fuck, and that rather puts it in contrast to our second game, Song of the Deep, which probably isn't worth checking out, but if you've ever played Aquaria or Ori and the Blind Forest, then good news, you've already checked out Song of the Deep. I hope that saved you some time, that wall ain't gonna stare at itself. It's small child scary world, but this time with a storybook approach similar in tone to Child of Light, but with the god-awful poetry replaced by a very earnest-sounding narrator with an Irish accent, and during the intro sequence a little voice in my head went, oh, there always have to be lucky charms, Bigora, and I'm ashamed to admit I made myself laugh. It's the story of a little girl who lives a simple life with her fisherman father, but when he fails to return from the sea one day, she builds a submarine. Okay, I'm not gonna let you gloss over that, Song of the Deep. How does a prepubescent girl whose education consists of reading the labels on the back of her dad's whiskey bottles construct a functioning deep submergence vehicle? It's not like a boxcar derby, you silly moo. Whatever, she goes out to sea to drag her deadbeat dad back from whatever mermaid bordello he's presently drinking dry. It's a Metroidvania game in about the most boring way possible. All paths are locked off until you find the specific upgrade in the fixed linear sequence of upgrades that opens them, so you might as well just follow the objective markers one by one. Full disclosure, I stopped playing halfway through because I encountered a bug in a narrow passage, which is the worst possible 
possible way to experience buggery. I'd acquired the ability to leave the sub to explore narrow passages, but one time when I did this the sub somehow glitched inside the passage and I couldn't get it out again. And since I'd found a collectible in the passage, the game very helpfully autosaved over the only save slot available. Which does rather raise the question of why this game has fucking save points if it's just gonna save wherever it likes. Maybe the save points are for refilling your health and energy meters, but wrong! Your health and energy regenerate anyway, that's probably why the gameplay is about as engaging as pissing in the kitchen sink. So after it bugged out, I said to myself, would I rather restart the game or spend the afternoon circumcising myself with the edge of a rusty tin? The fact that I'm debating this at all will probably suffice as the review. One thing I did get to see was generic boss fight 36 Gamma, Giant Spider. Leaving aside the question of what the fuck's a giant spider doing at the bottom of the sea, the answer being not a whole lot, the boss seemed to be having tremendous difficulty posing any kind of threat. Anytime I ventured close, all it could do was wrap me up in web and then let me go, whereby I escaped from all but instantly. It wasn't a fight so much as a mutual mild annoyance, and I think this encapsulates my main issue with Put Me To Sleep. It feels totally condescending. Between the gameplay that's unchallenging in every sense of the word, and the narrator who talks like a nursery school teacher praising a child for sticking crayons up their nose and sneezing on craft paper, perhaps that should have been my hint that I'm not the target audience for this game, but cast your eye on the developer. Yes, it's Insomniac Games! Ratchet and Clank, Resistance, Sunset Bloody Overdrive. What's a AAA developer doing making 2D small child scary world games? This isn't Secret Millionaire! And that's what's really condescending, that they thought they'd come down from on high to show the indies how it's done and made something so insultingly generic. Stick to the likes of Sunset Overdrive, lads. It's easy to stick to because it's covered in shit. I am Setsuna in my lucrative side venture as a transvestite cam whore, but by strange coincidence, I am Setsuna is also the name of a game that came out last week. It's a JRPG, because with a title like that, of course it was going to be either a JRPG or a visual novel about an innocent young schoolmate and all the ways you can fuck her on a subway train. According to the Steam page, the game purports to be inspired by the timeless classic Chrono Trigger, with no apparent pun intended, and I was down for that because Chrono Trigger was a game from the SNES period of actually tolerable JRPGs before they became overwritten, overdesigned claptrap, full of interchangeable characters who have to get up at three in the morning to be properly dressed for dinner. Sadly, I Am Setsuna hasn't taken inspiration from any part of Chrono Trigger that mattered, such as the unique character's imaginative plot that develops in interesting ways or variety of environments with more than two colours, and merely recreates the combat and party mechanics somewhat faithfully. Which is like claiming that your movie is inspired by Apocalypse Now because you also recorded it on film and employed sound engineers and pointed your camera at a fat bloke for ten minutes. The plot of I Am Henry VIII I Am is that the titular Setsuna has been nominated to sacrifice herself to calm down all the world's monsters or something, and has to make the difficult journey to the sacrifice shop because it never occurred to anyone to put on a fucking bus service, and a party of adventurers assembles to protect her on the way. I'd like to take a moment to draw your attention to one of the user-defined tags that was attached to this game on Steam, Story Rich. I take slight issue with it because you don't get Story Rich just from mugging Final Fantasy X in an alleyway and nicking their wallet. Final Fantasy X itself is only Story Rich in Zimbabwean dollars. Thankfully, I Am Setsuna only nicks the pilgrimage plot device and not the rest of Final Fantasy X's plot, and the player character, as far as I know, isn't a ghost footballer from the future. Which brings me to the second user tag I want to bring up, female protagonist, an outright stinking lie, because the player character is a mercenary who becomes Setsuna's guardian. Setsuna's the important one, yes, and you can rearrange the party to put Setsuna in the vanguard if you feel you need a human shield, but it's still the mercenary whose dialogue we choose when we make the recurring vital decision between agreeing with Setsuna or slightly sarcastically agreeing with Setsuna. Perhaps there's an argument to be made that the playable character needn't necessarily be the protagonist of the story, but if I'm honest, I don't want Setsuna to be the protagonist because she's wetter than a fishing trip to Seattle. Part of my disdain for JRPGs is that most of them read from the same cast list 
list of stock characters. The angsty taciturn hero, the scarred veteran warrior who calls himself past it because he's in his late 20s, and the pure and innocent girl who urinates lightly sparkling spring water and thinks a dildo is a character from Lord of the Rings. Setsuna's so fucking sweet and forgiving she gives me ice cream headache, but there's a point where we go beyond naively trusting into the realms of mental handicap. When she insists on you joining her party, the only thing she knows about you is that you're a hired killer, specifically hired to kill her. Oh player San, I feel so comfortable around your upraised dagger and coppery stench of blood money. I made myself laugh again by imagining Setsuna meeting a rabid grizzly bear. Oh, I just know there's goodness in your heart, Mr. Tufty. Rawr, mole, mole. So I wasn't sure if I was going to review Ikpi 9 Berliner, so I said to myself, maybe I'll just play up to the end of the snowy area with the repetitive sad piano music and see how I feel. But the joke was on me, because turns out that was the whole game. Which reminds me of another Steam user tag I take issue with. Great soundtrack. Exhibit Q in the ongoing case for standardised sarcasm quotes. It's a soundtrack produced by a hotel pianist locked in a studio for 18 hours with a hockey mask on to stop him chewing his own hands off. Your ongoing task is to show up at a settlement and solve whatever issue prevents you from proceeding to the next one, which usually involves acquiring a new party member. So keep talking to NPCs until you find one whose name we are invited to change, if it really matters to us that our adventuring party consists entirely of people named after breakfast foods. This process also involves a lot of combat with weirdly adorable monsters. You encounter groups of reject beanie babies knocking about in the overworld, and you can get the surprise attack if you run into them before they notice you. But you have to have one foot in their breakfast burrito before they notice you, so why would you ever not get the surprise attack? The combat is like most televised news media in that it has something of a balance issue. Set soon as claim on the protagonist title gets shakier by the minute because she's supposed to be the healer, and the player character gets a low-cost full-party heal spell early in the game. Admittedly, it's only full-party heal if everyone's standing next to each other, but they usually are. It's turn-based combat. Strategy straight from Rock'em Sock'em Robots. On top of that, several other characters have attacks that also inexplicably dole out full-party heals if you use the special sort of quick-time event but not really power-up thing that grants additional effects. So with only three slots for active party members, Setsuna can spend the game in my back pocket frantically jilling herself off with the neck of a potion bottle for all I care. I'm wondering why I'd want to use any of the squishy magic-focused characters when the others all have perfectly good magic attacks as well as useful standard attacks and can take hits without immediately folding up like a hotel room ironing board, except you never know when some plot development will force you to use them for a while and leave you facing the fuzzy horde five levels behind and armed with a spoon. The monsters do their bit for the lack of balance too. Most of the random encounters are completely trivial until once in a while one of them gets off that one spell that ups all their stats and they proceed to turn you into a pulled pork sandwich. And then there are the optional elite enemies, which are distinguishable from the others only by their different colour, which doesn't count for much since half the enemies in the fucking game are palette swaps of older ones, and by the fact that the moment you enter the fight they fucking pound you into the coleslaw that came with the pulled pork sandwich. You know what, I almost felt bad about complaining that the entire game is one big ice level, not every game has to be a fucking sightseeing tour, and maybe it wanted to focus on something else, until I was looking for tips for a certain boss and realised I had no idea what to fucking google. Ice caves boss? That narrows it down to roughly all of them. Besides, if the game was focusing on something else, what the fuck could it have been? The emotional impact of Setsuna's tragic inspirational story? I got more emotional parting ways with my fucking yeast infection! It's early August, No Man's Sky doesn't kick off the pre-Christmas release schedule till the 9th, and I'm finding blood in my urine, so you know what that means, I've undergone severe kidney damage. And it's time for another indie double bill, this time with a bit of a retro sci-fi theme as we kick off with Headlander, a game by Double Fine in which you play as a disembodied head that flies around and lands on things. So at least the title's not as misleading as Day of the Tentacle, which I thought was going to be a documentary on the origins of Japanese fetish porn. In Headlander, you wake up in the far future to find that most of your body has gone walkabouts, and yet you're still the most intact organic life form in the universe, as everyone else has been digitised and put in 
robot bodies. Then, through no conscious effort on your part, you become involved with a resistance movement against a sinister overlord so that the human race can win back the right to their organic bodies and the freedom to get verrucas and Alzheimer's disease and poo their pants. I want to know if there's any option to go back and forth. Sure, I'll take the organic body for my afternoon wank, but I wouldn't mind being a giant robot tarantula when the time comes to help someone move. All of this is presented through a 70s sci-fi aesthetic. There's even a shootout to the sound of Joan Baez's song from the Silent Running soundtrack, and Christ knows how many players they expect to get that. There's also a comedic tone, which is not quite the same thing as being funny. I do sympathise with Double Fine, they've made their name with funny games, so they clearly feel an obligation to keep the same tone going, but in Headlander an obligation is precisely what it feels like. Yeah, there's some humour value in the very Douglas Adams-esque joke wherein the turrets have personalities and apologise every time they fire, but by the 300th apology the titters have become very saggy. The point I'm desperately groping for like the tissue box during my vinegar strokes is that the plot and setting aren't inherently funny the way, say, Psychonauts were, so it doesn't feel like a comedy game so much as a game with way too many comic relief characters, like a production of Henry IV with 17 Falstaffs. And now I've raised the intellectual tone of this review a bit, let's talk about blowing up robots with lasers. Headlander is a Metroidvania game where the core premise is that you can detach your head and stick it on different bodies to acquire different abilities and access different areas, thematically not dissimilar to the body swapping mechanic in Double Fine's earlier game, Stacking, which makes me wonder if we've inadvertently discovered Tim Shaper's fetish. I had to play the game in short bursts because I found it rather boring, and it's not any one thing that brings it down. Progress is locked off by a linear sequence of colour-coded doors rather than any organic movement ability, and in combat the rooms can get so filled with enemy lasers that it overloads the senses. But if the enemies shoot your current body enough to blow it up, you can easily nick one of theirs, so I might as well not even bother to dodge or move or play the game at all, and what the fuck am I still doing here? I've got laundry to do. The game has a bit of the simulated retro computer effects indie games seem to like so much these days, and the enemy robots make glitched out noises as they die, which is all very well, but I was having issues with frame rate and audio stutter and I was two hours in before I realised that they weren't supposed to be part of the aesthetic. In brief, nothing specifically kills it, but nothing made me particularly moist either. What a perfectly milk toast point to make for the exact middle of this video. Let's talk about something I did like instead, Quadrilateral Cowboy. Not to be confused with Quantum Conundrum, which isn't actually that similar, but they'd be very close together on my Steam list if I hadn't bought all the Quake expansions. I picked Quadrilateral Cowboy basically at random from the Steam new releases because I was two days to deadline and midway through a Domestos binge, but I'll be blinded by household chemicals if I didn't find myself enjoying it. You'll swiftly notice that it's got a title that doesn't really mean anything, a very disjointed interpretive storyline with no dialogue, and an art style wherein everything looks like it's made of old cereal boxes, including the characters, since it's a game by the 30 flights of loving people and these are the things you just have to accept from such, like the cloying sense of disappointment and shame that Americans will feel after they vote this November. The game's setting is sort of like steampunk except with retro computers instead of steam, which I guess needs a name. DOS punk? CRT punk? Pentium punk? So nerdy my underpants are spontaneously wedging themselves punk. You are a member of a small team of hackers and your job is to use VR to plan a series of heists against the man-man. Pretty much the same premise as volume thinking about it, except the main character is a serial box rather than a liberal arts graduate in their parents' basement and with the generic stealth replaced by an actually interesting mechanic. You have to solve problems by programming your way around them with your portable DOS prompt, which starts off simple. You see a door, so you type door1.open and sit back awash with the pride of a newly blooded hunter, and by the end you're binding complex commands to a specific blink sequence so that you can remotely disable a laser grid at the precise moment your self-satisfied erection would have tripped it. It's a game about careful preparation rather than twitch reflexes. It specifically appeals to me because I've been known to code it up myself now and again, and there's something very satisfying about finding the quickest, most elegant solution. Or it could be that the mere act of typing my commands makes me feel like a hacker in a Hollywood film from the late 90s, as long as I crack my knuckles a lot and say tragically outdated things that a middle-aged screenwriter once heard on an episode of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. My major complaint is that there's just not enough of it. Right as enough mechanics have been added to the coding gameplay that it's starting to get interesting, the game drops it all for two missions where out of nowhere you solve puzzles with the old multiple iterations of yourself chestnut that in puzzle games in this day and age might as well be replaced by footage of a man saying etc etc while making a faintly masturbatory gesture with their wrist. The coding comes back later, but I never felt like there was a point where everything we had learned came together for one great climactic challenge before the game abruptly ends, in a and they all lived happily ever after now piss off sort of way. I like the core mechanic, but I get the impression the game's less interested in 
exploring it to the full as it is in pushing it through the, dare I say, ever so slightly pretentious storytelling elements. You want to make everyone look like Tupperware snowmen, that's your bag, but the story itself left me cold because the characters have unclear motivations and never experienced much adversity. Gameplay is like a jar of peanut butter, it might be fun to stick your knob in but kindly wait till after I've made the sandwiches. Yahtzee, please come out of the fridge. Has a big release come out? No. Did you bring me more lager? No. Well then piss off! Christ, I hate summer. All no games and nice weather and reasons to go outside. What about Abzu, Yahtzee? Oh yeah, Abzu, what do you want me to say? If you thought Journey in Flower didn't have quite enough marine biology for your taste, then here's the game for you. As long as you're badly misinformed as to what the word game means. Yahtzee, we both know you'd only get off the gaming couch if more than half of it was declared a nuclear disaster exclusion zone. You must have been playing something this week. Well, I did play a lot of Quake 1. There you go, tell us about that, from over there. Well, we can't smell you. You're on like the two Johns. A few weeks back, the developers of the excellent Wolfenstein New Order marked the 20th anniversary of Quake 1 by releasing a free new level pack for the original game, which cemented my respect for that company because this is a gesture rooted in actual passion for gaming. Passion, muses the AAA games industry collectively. What's fruit got to do with anything? Oh, hang on, passion. I remember that. That's that thing I pretend to have during E3 and while I'm inside my wife's dry, joyless cunt. Anyway, after playing it, I felt the need to play all of Quake 1 again, perhaps in the aftermath of Doom relighting the spark that two decades of console shooters has done its best to smother with its big fat chest eye wall cuddling ass. In truth, I'd never liked Quake as much as other retro shooters because if you want to find the evolutionary ancestor of brown and miserable modern shooters, then Quake makes for a pretty good starting point, since it lacks all the joy and humour of its stablemates Doom and Duke Nukem 3D and is persistently the colour of a wet weekend at the Siberian logging camp. But for all that, it is still a retro shooter of its time, high octane shooting where you move faster than a hairless Filipino boy through a crowded bathhouse, and the story never gets in the way of the action. About the only story you'll get is a paragraph at the end of each episode that reads like John Romero is reciting it you from across his Dungeons and Dragons table. Quake was the last collaboration between id Software's two Johns, Ramiro and Carmack, before Ramiro went off to make Daikatana out of mousetraps and semen, and Carmack proceeded to craft Quake 2 out of stale Weetabix and paste. Quake 1 finds the happy medium and illustrates why they kinda needed each other. That lightning gun that murders you if you use it in water definitely smells of Ramiro, but at least there's some imagination on display. The colour scheme and repetitive levels were probably scraped up from the Carmack tarmac, but the gameplay is characteristically solid. I like that every monster is clearly distinct, from each other I mean, if not from the background since everything looks like it just dropped out of a sewage worker's nose, and all have a different role in life. The knight harasses you in tight spaces and the fiend harasses you in the open. There's the floating scrag, whose job is to molest you in those troublesome hard to reach places, and then there's the ogre, whose job is to GET FUCKED! You think you're so great sitting up there spamming grenades with impossible to predict bounce trajectories, let's see who has the last laugh after I've quick saved another seven or eight hundred times. And that blob monster in the last episode can get double fucked on a bed of crispy lettuce, the way it hops about like a marble on a honeymoon mattress and hitting it is like trying to swat a fly with your jizz. The weapons are also distinct and functional for the most part, I'm not entirely clear on why we needed a nail gun and a super nail gun. What's the standard nail gun for once you have one that fires the exact same nails but slightly harder, serving drinks and mixed finger food? And the other glaring issue with Quake is the usual one that happened with shareware games. If you don't remember shareware because you're an overstimulated millennial, blinking stupidly at this video as you attempt to pass my words through a haze of ADHD medication and energy drinks, it was kinda like a demo but freely distributed and anything up to an entire third of the finished game, to coax a payment for the rest of it, but the usual strategy was to load it up with all the game's good ideas. The first episode of Quake is the only one with a boss fight, and even that is mostly spent running around someone's pool house flicking light switches like a fussy dad with an increased electricity bill. The other episodes just kinda meekly stop the instant they run out of brown castles. Hope you like brown castles, because Quake has every imaginable iteration of such. It's got brown castles, it's got ochre fortresses, it's got sepia strongholds, the works. It's like a school field trip to continental Europe during a major cholera outbreak. But you know what, there's still quite a strong atmosphere to it. The actual plot of Quake, reading between the posterior paragraphs of purple prose is that you are man with gun, Esquire, travelling to evil otherworld to defeat the resident demonic forces. We hasten to add that it's not hell, oh dear me no. Wouldn't want anyone to think we hadn't moved on from doom. It's
it's some other evil netherworld with hostile demons who put a load of pentagrams and satanic imagery all over the place, not because they're actually in hell, you understand, they're just really big fans. It's more Lovecraftian in theme, really, in that Shub Niggurath shows up at the end, the black goat of the woods with a thousand young, here reimagined as a sort of upside-down bar stool, experiencing a very heavy menstrual cycle, but as repetitive as Quake can get with its umber palaces and chocolate chateaus, the world still feels a hell of a lot, sorry, hostile extra-dimensional territory mildly reminiscent of hell of a lot better realised than the world of Quake 2, which actually did have cinematics and story objectives but was, in practical terms, a string of identical grey-brown military bases full of hybrid human and forklift monsters. Maybe it's just the fantasy setting that gives Quake 1 the edge as it adds the intimidating sense that our big-chinned hero is somewhere he doesn't belong. Or maybe it's the rather lovely sound design that heaps on the bleak otherworldly atmosphere and gives each monster a unique identifiable voice, although one does wonder why all the knights make noises like an ageing Marlon Brando having an orgasm. As one of the first fully 3D FPSs, it's fun to look at Quake as part of gaming's collective learning process. Mouse look? Why on earth would you want that on all the time? How often will people want to look away from the horizon, I mean honestly? But Quake 1 was a pioneer in more than just the technical field, it's probably one of the first retro shooters to be entirely consistent in tone. A slightly laughable tone, I mean this is a game that gives all its levels names like The Tower of Despair, and the map list reads like the first album from a high school goth metal band, but compare that to Duke Nukem 3D, where pop culture references and monsters going to the toilet are right alongside the captured violated women begging for death, Quake represents PC games maturing out of the in-jokey fucking about and into awkward angsty pubescence for better or worse. Later it would go off to college in Half-Life, join the military for Call of Duty, and get all its arms and legs blown off in time for Gears of War. Games with a theoretically infinite amount of content are all very well, but I don't think the developers ever consider what the fuck we're supposed to do with it all. I mean, my kitchen sink can produce a theoretically infinite amount of water, but once I've stopped being thirsty and I'm as clean as I'm ever going to get, and cooked all my spaghetti and filled all the condoms I intend to throw at the bailiffs, then what am I supposed to do with the rest of the stuff? A question worth considering as we take a look at No Man's Sky, a game about exploring a theoretically infinite universe of possibility. Which is a shame, because Elite Dangerous is also about exploring a theoretically infinite universe of possibility, and I don't really have room for two theoretically infinite universes in my house. I already sold most of the furniture to make room for all the cooked spaghetti. The setup is, you wake up on a mysterious planet next to a crashed spaceship and after repairing it with raw materials gathered from the surrounding wilderness, you can begin an epic journey to nowhere in particular for no given reason. You gather the fuel to hyperdrive to star system after star system, following a line that eventually leads to some kind of geometric ancient space wonder someone nicked out of a bungee game that gives you a prize bag and another line to follow. The main question for me was what the hell I was supposed to be progressing towards. The ancient space wonders were all shrugging their monolithic shoulders at me. Maybe I'm supposed to be gradually crafting and upgrading my way to the best possible ship and equipment I could have. But the problem with that is there doesn't seem to be any use for your ship and equipment except to find stuff to upgrade your ship and equipment with. Besides that, there's also a laundry list of developmental milestones to reach, most of which are breathtakingly inane, and I could really do without the fucking awards ceremony every single time you get one. Congratulations, you have scratched your ass 20,000 times. Here's a prolonged jingle while this text selfishly hogs the interface for 30 seconds so you can't interact with anything. Congratulations, you have contracted radiation poisoning from a planet's toxic atmosphere. Here's another j- Congratulations, you have died at total of 100 times from radiation poisoning while inches from safety because you can't get inside your ship while I'm telling you about all the milestones you've achieved. What are you, yeah? It's an emotionless Scotch egg-powered robot that shuts down when it hasn't had instructions on punch card pushed up its arse that morning. It's not about winning or reaching the end, it's about the exploration and appreciating the unique sights of the cosmos, man. The thing about exploration, my little pubic louse, is that the appeal lies in the finding. You can explore a sheaf of blank printer paper for an afternoon but it wouldn't exactly stimulate. There's nothing to find in No Man's Sky, you can't find in about 500 million other places. If I ever find myself badly in need of a futuristic shed containing a bench with some Christmas lights on the side, then I can land on literally any planet and start walking in any direction. Every planet is unique, strictly speaking, but every human being is unique and it's still hard to appreciate that when you're queuing up at the post office behind nine old people who all want to pay with luncheon vouchers. Oh look, this planet has a unique species of quadruped with three horns and nine armpits, but all that it's actually going to do is either wander aimlessly
aimlessly about or run up and nibble your bum. And the crafting system says it all. You kill this one-of-a-kind creature with its unique evolutionary history and are rewarded with some carbon, which you stack on top of the identical carbon you got from the unique and complex creature you murdered in the star system next door. The crafting's not exactly intuitive either. In Minecraft, you put a long stone shape on the end of a bit of wood and one spool of implied duct tape later, you have a sword. With the slightest rearrangement, it can also be a pick or a shovel or a rather uncomfortable rectangular sex toy. Meanwhile, in No Man's Sky, you take your hard-earned carbon and turn it into a green thing that has no use, except it can be turned into a purple thing that also has no use, except that it can be turned into warp fuel. Why not just have us bung a load of carbon in the gas tank and bang our kneecaps with a crowbar for a few minutes, run out of takeoff fuel on our planet and you might have a moment's drama from having to scavenge more, but then you find some stuck to your shoe after walking ten feet and there's no point exploring much further because your inventory space is the size of a Virgin Airways carry-on baggage allotment, and I swear I probably found upgrades to my laser gun more often than I got into actual fucking combat with the thing. Not every planet has animals, not every planet with animals has hostile animals, and even when it does there's usually plenty of desolate wasteland to go round. If you need carbon that badly just land near some trees and inhale a few times. In brief, I was having trouble finding the gameplay in this game. I understand the principle of making your own entertainment but this isn't that. Elite Dangerous is that because it's complex enough that you can choose the path of trader, fighter or explorer from one of hundreds of possible routes, and at every junction you're extracting in-between challenges from having to land your ship inside a space station without banging into a control tower and knocking your pint of Guinness out of your cockpit drinks holder. No Man's Sky denies you even that. Press one button to take off or land and the game does it all for you, assuming it doesn't make you clip inside an inexplicably hovering ore deposit that's totally meant to do that and not a bug, no really. When you're in flight the game will even automatically pull up to stop you smashing into the ground no matter how perfectly justified your urge to end your tedious existence. It's baby's first Elite Dangerous is what it is. We're strapped into our fucking ultra-safe high chair of a spaceship to stare at the huge friendly typeface of a simplistic GUI that looks like a Windows 10 menu by way of the IKEA catalogue. I feel like you still haven't learned to appreciate the unique beauty of the Cosmos Yard. Hey, I'd appreciate it a lot more if it wasn't constantly popping in like your least favourite neighbour and making the game as immersive as a gravel pit. When I'm descending through the atmosphere of a planet you could at least put up a view obscuring cloud effect so I don't notice the terrain below me switching blatantly to full 3D rendering from blurry 2D Google Maps vision. No Man's Sky feels like one of those crafting survival games that keep popping up on Steam like boomtowns in the California Gold Rush and are just as likely to still be populated a few years down the line, but with a load of added pressure to perform that it can't live up to. Maybe if we'd been able to build things, complete the Minecraft comparison, give us a reason to go back to places rather than stampede through space hoovering up resources and space STDs, not much creative fulfilment to be had in renaming the things we discover. I discovered way too many interchangeable things and ran out of euphemisms for genitalia. Does the name Spore ring a bell? Remember what a big thing that was supposed to be before its big idea for galaxy-spanning gameplay turned out to be a bunch of little ideas strung together, none strong enough to sustain interest. You know what they say, he who forgets the past is condemned to reset history A-level. Grow Up is a phrase I seem to hear an awful lot when talking about my job in Mixed Company, and it is also the name of a sequel to Grow Home, the Ubisoft physics platformer. I say physics platformer, the game itself would probably say, hey there's platforms and you can physic around them if that's your bag, but if you just want to chill that's cool too. Grow Up, I had to put up with enough of this chill out shit from No Man's Sky. Give me a fucking challenge or I'll physics you. Oh fine, find the 150 collectibles. That'll do. I will chill after the game has worked my testicles until they're six foot across and the colour of an angry plum, not before, and even then the chilling shall entail beating them back into shape with two fistfuls of ice chips. The premise of the two Grow preposition games is that you play a small robot named Bud that can jump and grab things and whose animation is somewhat procedurally generated by the physics engine, which has the usual result that our little robot friend seems to be suffering from the kind of Parkinson's disease that only affects the bottom half. Bud is supervised by a spaceship computer called Mom, and his objective in both games is to climb back inside Mom's welcoming red orifice by directing one or more swelling organic phalluses towards it. It's actually rather clever what they've done with the titles. Not the Grow Go pun in Grow Home, Christ no, that's the play on words equivalent of wearing Comic Sans on a t-shirt. 
Grow Home was about the childlike desire to return to mother after a long day rolling around in dirt molesting small animals and shelter beneath the warm familiar glow she gets when she's been drinking red wine since noon. Grow Up, contrarily, is about having to mature and learn self-reliance when our mother unexpectedly explodes and her pieces are scattered across the backyard. Yeah, I've been there, Grow Up. That was a weird conversation with the gardeners. Grow Home was centred around cultivating a single giant plant to reach the ultimate goal and exploring exciting new terrain and floating rocks as they become accessible. In Grow Up, the growing of the multiple giant plants is more an incidental part of the quest for more jetpack upgrades. Which does mean Grow Home was quite a bit tighter. Phew, it's getting more Freudian by the minute in here, isn't it? Someone start getting the ice chips together. In Grow Home, you can get to the top of your flower tower, look down, and there's everything you need to worry about right there. But Grow Up takes place on a Mario Galaxy-style tiny planet surrounded by more floating stones than the Keith Richards Ketamin Party. Points on for freedom of movement and exploration, and points off for figuring out where the fuck I'm going. I look at nondescript floating rock number 731 Gamma, and after consulting my extensive paperwork, realise I haven't looked it over yet. But as I'm heading towards it, I get momentarily distracted by a farting wasp, and when I look back, I've forgotten which of the cluster of 17 identical floating rocks was the one I was heading for. We fall back on using the map and objective markers, and that's when we realise what Ubisoft have done. They've turned it into a Ubisoft game. Which is to say a sandbox cluttered with repetitive mini-challenges with all the joy of exploration and discovery one gets from spending six hours staring at a plate of overcooked pasta. So all you can do is go back to the map screen every five minutes, stick an objective marker on the icon of a thing you want, and make a beeline for the massive glowing indicator like a greyhound focused squarely on the rusty bumhole of an artificial rabbit. Well, it's not that bad. You have a jetpack, so it at least kicks shit like The Division into a roadside ditch and bangs its frumpy wife. It's just that the jetpack comes on a bit too strong for my liking. You know how it is, you're out on the town, there's an ageing jetpack sitting at the bar wearing too much makeup saying, why don't you buy me a drink, sugar? I make climbing completely trivial after only a couple of upgrades. Come on, I'll call my girlfriend's infinite glider an infinite parachute and we can have a great big saucy party. Then it starts trying to put its arm through yours and you have to scrape it off on the side of a moving subway train. The Grow Home jetpack was a coy little thing that could just about simulate a medium to severe bout of vindaloo flatulence and the parachute and glider were both temporary pickups. But even as the retarded shark of modernity bites the last few mouthfuls from my raft, I will still cling stubbornly to my central mast which states that video games have to be some kind of game, as in a challenge, rather than Ubisoft's current idea of a game which is 500 trivial button-pushing instruction-following exercises scattered randomly across a map like cigarette butts on the pavement outside an appeals court. Grow Home had a nasty habit of gluing half the collectible crystals to the underside of floating continents so you'd have to carefully monkey-bar your way to them and the climbing controls apparently recently suffered a death in the family and just can't keep their mind on the job. Is my left hand clinging securely, climbing controls? What? Yeah, whatever, you're fine. Release. Plummet. Oh, you meant clinging to the rock. Sorry, I thought you meant clinging to a sense of purpose in life. But in other words, it was a challenge, and to my mind, struggling against the engine is half the fun of a physics game. The mere act of walking bud across slightly unlevel ground has the inherent skill challenge of trying to get home after a martini tasting. Freely jetpacking and gliding everywhere might make for some lovely screenshots, but when I'm beating every race challenge first try with 30 seconds to spare, then calling them challenges risks action from the Advertising Standards Authority. And incidentally, were race challenges really the only thing you could come up with for side quests? In sandbox design, that's fucking level zero. That's the free ink cartridge that comes with the printer, and holds about as much as your grandma's bladder on a long car journey. I like the balance between Zen Fuckabout's freedom and actual skill progress that is struck by Grow Home, and I'd say the first half of Grow Up. Grow Up gives you the ability to recreate any special plant you find, like the ones that will launch you high into the sky if you can persuade the physics engine to let you sit on it without breakdancing right the fuck off it again. That's for progress. Or you can build a fortress of giant cacti that don't do anything except look vaguely like bellends, that's the fuckabouts part. But the plants become obsolete once you get up to a certain tech level. Who needs to get jizzed into the air when my jetpack can do the same without needing to be excited to orgasm by my frantically jiggling leg? Perhaps there's a hidden meaning here. In Grow Home, the temporary parachutes and gliders were plants as well, but in Grow Up, they're permanent extensions of your cold, emotionless, robotic frame. Doesn't take Northrop Fry to find the subtext there. Collaboration between technology and nature is an inherently temporary arrangement. Now we know why we're a robot alone on a spaceship. What remains of the human race is probably minced up inside the gas tank. Put your mouth over a jet-powered soft-serve dispenser and get ready to cream out of every orifice because there's a new Day at Sex sequel. Or rather a sequel to the prequel to Day at Sex, Day at Sex Human Revolution, which I think was about 
about some kind of prostitute uprising, while Dea Sex Mankind Divided is about an agreement being reached and the sex humans going back to spreading themselves for all and sundry. None of that is true. Mankind Divided is, however, the second installment in the life of one of gaming's newest and hottest personalities, Adam I Never Asked for a Throat Lozenge Jensen, best known for his iconic pointy face and voice like a coffee grinder trying to seduce an asthma inhaler. Fans have learned to love his incredible strength of character that compels him to always do the right thing, or to always do the wrong thing, or to go back and forth between doing the right thing and the wrong thing, depending on his mood, his remaining stun gun ammo, and whether or not there are any vending machines to throw at people. Because this is a Deus Ex game, and you know what that means. Choice and consequences, cautionary cyberpunk near-futures infused with relevant societal issues of the day, and a protagonist who'd get cut out of a Matrix sequel for taking themselves way too fucking seriously. In the aftermath of the climax of the previous game, when someone drove all the mechanically augmented humans kill-crazy by doing the equivalent of posting an honest review of the new Ghostbusters on the internet, humanity is reeling from the attack and augmented humans are regarded with fear and suspicion, on the off chance that something might flip the crazy murderer switch again at any moment. So welcome to episode 2 of the clumsiest racism analogy in all of speculative fiction. You can't split humanity into augmented and not augmented because having oven hobs instead of nipples is not a trait unique to specific families, unless babies are having their legs snapped off as they emerge from the womb and replaced with shelf brackets. To say nothing of the fact that you can't make the few bad apples argument if literally every augmented person went off their hydraulic cyber trolleys and a certain amount of fear might be justified if no one knows that the insane murderer switch isn't still lying around somewhere for some family dog to accidentally trip while rubbing his ass on the carpet. Hey, remember how in the original Deus Ex augmented humans were a pretty small minority and no one made much of a fuss about them because hey, turns out a bloke with JCBs lodged in his armpits is a useful thing to have in a peacekeeping force or when some furniture needs assembling, and the most of the conflict in the setting of that game was rooted in the divide between rich and poor and insidious population control orchestrated by corporate interests in the media. Oh no, such themes would be completely irrelevant in the current climate, especially since AAA game publishers haven't finished paying all the installments on their nuclear-equipped supervillain bunker on the moon. Let's just make it all about the people putting sandwich toasters in their kneecaps. Adam Jensen finds himself stationed in Prague as part of a top-level anti-terror organisation whose higher-ups are quite possibly obviously blatantly definitely being leaned on by the secret world government, which you might recognise as being the starting premise of pretty much every Deus Ex game. Fortunately, they save a bit of time by having Adam already working undercover for the secret pro-freedom resistance, who you can tell are the good guys because they're much more racially and sexually diverse. Things explode, tensions rise, and Adam must choose whether to side with his fellow augmented or the obviously corrupted militant fuckheads who hate him. Maybe it's not as straightforward as that, but even as Mankind Divided makes use of the time-honoured Deus Ex tradition of dropping us in the middle of a nuanced situation with nothing but a fish slice and a couple of pages that fell out of a Social Studies 101 textbook, there's no obfuscating its way out of blatantly being Deus Ex Another One, the game. It hits all the same beats as reliably as a one-hit wonder playing their annual comeback tour. You're based in a hub city where you rub shoulders with every level of society, there's an inexplicably high-tech laser security system in the sewers, at one point you have a boss fight with a ridiculously huge augmented bloke with a comically overdone accent. They even replay the whole subplot about Adam discovering and getting to grips with all the retro consoles and kitchen appliances that someone sewed into his fat ass without his permission. How, you ask? Well, apparently after the end of the last game, and incidentally the game couldn't give two squirts of motor oil-infused spunk which button you pressed on the ending Tron 3000, and I suspected it couldn't at the time either, Adam spent some time in a coma clinic and someone implanted a fresh batch of Game & Watch handhelds into his buttocks. Blimey, Adam better hope he never goes to robot prison, there seems to be something about his bum that makes people want to stuff it full of hardware every time he goes to sleep. Mankind Divided is a textbook expansion pack sequel, but the problem with that is that Human Revolution was just okay, and when you do a copy-paste of a game that's just okay, then any positive feeling the good bits might have given us falls away as the annoyances repeat themselves. I can't stand the way the game goes to cutscene every time you take out a guard or break a wall or break wind, with a pause, a cinematic fade to black and a musical sting as Adam ceremoniously farts with the tenor saxophone implanted in his rectum. It's about as conducive to the flow of gameplay as a fat bloke jumping on a ski lift. The upgrades are still pretty shoddily designed as well, with a lot of redundancy. Want the ability to mark five targets? Not really, since I can see them all on the radar anyway and marking them requires me to pop up from cover and gormlessly stare at them for a second like they're my high school crush and I'm hiding in their dad's rose bushes. Well then, how about the ability to mark 40 targets? There's nowhere in the game where there are that many, but it'll come in handy after you get bored and switch to playing Serious Sam instead. I also resent how it doesn't matter for 
for shit whether you take the lethal or non-lethal approach, because I always take the stealth option on the off chance the game has the balls to have consequences, and the slightest mistake leaves me completely surrounded by all the ungrateful bastards I permitted to live. Half the time it wasn't even my mistake, I'd be trying to stealthily kangaroo my way across the rooftops when Adam would decide that grabbing the next ledge would ruin his manicure and drop into a dumpster full of bells and air horns. What I'm saying is that Human Revolution had more room for improvement than this. Yes, one or two complaints were addressed, lo and behold the boss fight has a stealthy option, sort of, but take careful note of my phrasing there, boss fight, as in singular, as in this game is as insultingly short as a budget gob job. There's only one hub city, and after getting dicked about by the Illuminati for about half the length of an acceptable Deus Ex game, everything abruptly ends, with Adam Jensen vowing to get dicked about a maximum seven or eight more times before totally asking them to pack it in. And that's what kills it more than shoddy gameplay or half-baked premise, which in Deus Ex is almost part of the charm. I mean, come on, augmentation racism, where's the dividing line? Alright, Mrs. Stevens, we've successfully fitted your pacemaker, now piss off to the ghetto, you org scum! The relationship between Nintendo and its fanbase is a royally fucked up one, I think it's fair to say, and all that business with broken televisions probably classifies it as abusive, albeit the kind that's gotten so weird that the domestic violence shelter eventually blocked their number. If it were just Nintendo getting drunk and punchy because nobody bought the new Mario and Sonic at the Olympic Games, then perhaps it could be understood. But there are some bizarre mind games going on here as well. Nintendo fans, don't you see that this isn't healthy? Remember when Nintendo abandoned you on the highway because it thought it had a good thing going with the casual gaming audience and you had to hitch a ride home in the back of a dog catcher's van? No, no, they apologised for that. And it was my fault anyway, I should have liked Wii music more. Things have reached a new low with Metroid Prime Federation. Force is not just not catering to the fans anymore, now it's going out of its way to finally break their spirit once and for all. It's like Nintendo promised to buy them a puppy and they came downstairs on Christmas morning to find a load of Korean takeout containers under the tree. If you're unfamiliar with Metroid and think it's the word for a hemorrhoid exclusive to people who ride inner city public transport, Metroid is a classic series of sci-fi exploration games and the protagonist, Samus Aran, is as inseparable from them as a dose of the herbs. A stoic independent space bounty hunter fighting a lone crusade against the evils of the galaxy except in Metroid Other M where she was a squeaking Catholic schoolgirl wearing a collection of plastic mixing bowls. Meanwhile, the Federation are a military force that occasionally show up in Metroid games to get indiscriminately murdered and humiliated by whatever needs to be established as threatening today. Making a game entirely about them is therefore precisely the same logic that brought us Aliens Colonial Marines, another game that was a dripping stalactite of frozen piss above a once respectable dinner party. And what makes it all the mightier a kick in the tits is that there was no need for any of this. Federation Force looks and plays passably like a Metroid Prime game, with the usual 3DS provisos that turning around is as ponderous as a merry-go-round full of elephant seals and playing for too long makes my hands feel like a pair of broken deck chairs frozen to the pier in a Blackpool winter. So why didn't they make another Metroid Prime game? With Samus Aran in atmospheric alien worlds in the free exploration Metroidvania style to which the franchise once lent its name, instead of something very conspicuously un-Metroidy besides the fact it stole Metroid's underpants and wore them on its face. Why must we play as a midget inside a robot suit, and since the missions are spent more or less entirely inside the robot suits, why even establish that we're actually tiny Rice crispy Elves, except to make things all the more humiliating? I can tell you that it's not because they didn't want to include Samus Aran, because she constantly shows up in dialogues and mission briefings, it's like the game's holding her over you like a cruel dog owner whose closed hand might not even contain a biscuit at all. Samus Aran just showed up and told us about another pirate base, shame that you missed her, she's so cool and stoic with cracking tits. She also brought us some homemade fudge, but we ate it all before you got here. The only justification I can see is that the game goes for four-player co-op focus and there's only one Samus around to go around, but if four clones of Luigi can be sucking each other off in Luigi's Mansion 2, then I'm sure Samus could have gotten a sorority sister slumber party going. Besides, who the fuck turns to the 3DS for their online multiplayer-focused games? I'd nominate a more suitable platform, but my list basically starts with all of them. Or are Nintendo still trying to normalise the idea that people might show up to a dinner party with their 3DSs as an alternative to post-prandial Pictionary without it seeming weird? Perhaps a more realistic scenario in a school setting, but it's still hinges on not only at least four people buying this game, but on them also not being ashamed to admit that they bought this game. The story is, there are three planets, the ice world, the desert world, and the world that also turned up, and the Federation are tasked to go there and murder wildlife until the space pirates appear. Which we know for absolute fact will happen, because at the start, the commander type bloke goes, don't worry, there's no way the space pirates will show up, rather than each planet having a big interconnected world to explore like it was some kind of fucking Metroid game. It's entirely mission based and we get dropped into small collections of rooms to complete single objectives. There is a solo play mode, but it is a trap. It'll sucker you in with some easy stuff early on, but eventually we'll bring out the missions that 
it next to impossible without other players. There'll be 500 of those space pirates that totally weren't going to show up, smashing up the thing you're supposed to defend, and you can have all the missiles in the world, but you can only be in one place at a time, slowly rotating like a microwave dinner. There's also another multiplayer mode, which is Rocket League. That's about all there is to say about it. It's Rocket League, except everyone's shooting at the ball instead of hurling themselves at it, like six excitable dogs with only one biscuit. And I imagine it would have been very thrilling if I could have persuaded the connection to remain intact for the duration of an entire match. You know what? I have formulated a theory. From the things we hear in the mission briefings about how Samus Aran has been running around off-screen being the best at everything, Federation Force feels like the Darkness 2-style co-op campaign running in parallel to the plot of the main single-player campaign that isn't actually there. So maybe there was an actual Metroid Prime 3DS game being developed at some point that had the shitty multiplayer mode that must exist as part of the game industry's pact with Satan, but resources ran thin and something had to be cut out, so they cut the single-player campaign because the crazy pill salesman came around that morning giving out free samples. And then someone said, wait, people will be annoyed about this decision. And their boss popped another crazy pill and said, you're right, we'd better put in a soccer minigame to mollify them. After all, the kind of fanboys who wasted their tender years learning to speedrun Metroid on the slim promise of pixel titty are also notoriously keen on team sports. Metroid Prime was the game that successfully translated the atmosphere and feel of Metroid to a 3D first-person format, but Nintendo seems to have treated it like the red-headed stepchild ever since. First the sequels were kinda shit, then it's officially declared non-canon in favour of Other M, which is like taking away your child's Christmas present so that the cat can choke to death on it, and now this. Oh, stop comparing it to the Metroid you wanted it to be, Yate, can't you just accept that Nintendo wanted a new direction and made something a bit more family-friendly? After all, they've only got like 90 billion other franchises that do that. Well then why did they even call it Metroid Prime? Except to deliberately fuck with Metroid Prime fans. They could easily have chucked Samus around in the airlock and more honestly called it Interstellar Midget Footballers, or Tangential Metroid Universe Thing starring the cast of Willow, or Don't Buy This Game It's Shit. Is it me, or is the big release period starting to pull a reverse Christmas, that is to say getting later every year? If all you want is ports of stuff we already know is good, then your quid's in right now, Lieutenant Lags Behind, Resident Evil 4, Dead Rising 1 and 2, and the Bioshock collection are all out on Expone and Pisspoor this week. You almost think AAA publishers have become a bit risk-averse. Surely not, they've always seemed like such sprightly and adventurous, enormous bloated mounds of fat and blood-stained money. There's that new World of Warcraft expansion that YouTube ads seem to think is terribly important I hear about every hour of the fucking day, but frankly I feel like I could have a more profitable time stacking coins on a railroad track. So as always we turn to Steam, the ever-flowing cornucopia of RPG Maker games and pixel art, and this week we'll be looking at two newborns that have cut their mouths on the jagged edges of the pixel art pacifier, starting with The Curious Expedition, a procedural explorer-up developed by two blokes who worked on Spec Ops The Line, which doesn't count for much as a selling point because a fly that buzzed into the office and shat on the gold master technically worked on Spec Ops The Line. It also shouldn't be taken as an indicator of content, because while sharing the loose theme of barging into someone else's country to, in academic terms, shit it the fuck up, there's much less horrifying gazes into the abyss of the human soul and far more gleeful nicking valuables from primitive natives in the jolly spirit of 19th century colonialism. You play one of a selection of real-life Victorian figures, and incidentally I've learned to be slightly wary of any game in which Nikola Tesla is a character, the patron saint of socially awkward tech nerds, as they compete with their peers to map out unexplored lands and loot the place. And I did find it slightly hilarious that one of the playable characters is H.P. Lovecraft. That dude never left the house, and thought Jews and black people evolved from jumping spiders and dog turds, so casting him as an explorer is like casting 50 Cent as Miss Marple. So what we have is the kind of roguelike that has the feel of a pen and paper role-playing session conducted by a DM with very little imagination. You have found a village of natives, they dress and act identically to the natives you met in your last expedition to an entirely different continent, and seem to be aware of what a bunch of dicks you were to them, but then Darkest Africa gets a surprisingly good Wi-Fi signal. You might find the Curious Expedition a wee bit uninvolving, since most of the action is described with pure text, except for the combat where the characters are on screen, far away in the distance in tiny whiny pixel vision, where every single action from attacking to being attacked to having an earnest conversation about the excesses of European colonialism is conveyed by having the character hop into the air a bit. But isn't that in keeping with the spirit of things? Our sense of distance from proceedings echoing the sense of detachment our adventuring heroes have from their own actions as they steal treasure and corrupt the natives in arbitrary pursuit of personal glory? Probably not, actually. Have you noticed that this game is called The Curious Expedition, rather than The Curious Expeditions? Which might have been more honest since a standard campaign involves locking yourself into six successive adventures, but it turns out the title was accurate 
it all along since this is really six repeats of the same adventure. You land, you collect a few colourful diseases and you find a golden pyramid. It's like reading King Solomon's Mind six times with the pages slightly shuffled around. And while we're on the subject, surely Ryder Haggard would have been a more fitting novelist character than Lovecraft, but then I suppose he wouldn't have gotten the instant nerd cred one gets from mouthing Cthulhu and chummily waggling your eyebrows. There's yet to exist a game with truly infinite replayability except that one game where you fire an electrode into the pleasure centre of your brain until you starve to death, but sadly that hasn't yet been ported from laboratory rats, the lucky bastards. In the meantime, the last ability of a procedural game lives or dies on variety, especially if the focus is on story over gameplay challenge, and I just don't think there's enough. You have desecrated my temple, now I shall scourge the land with- oh, floods or volcanoes this time. Yornorama, freshen up your material, Tezcatlipoca, mate. So let's turn our back on going to foreign countries and shitting them the fuck up, and for a nice change of scene, play a game about going to one specific foreign country and shitting it the fuck up in Mother Russia Bleeds, a new game published by Devolver Digital, which is best summarised by saying it is a Devolver Digital game. It has the quintessence of such in that it's horrifying gore and extremity depicted in brightly coloured pixel art, like getting bloodily raped to death in the prison showers by an enormous skinhead made of Lego. Mother Russia Bleeds is a retro-style arcade beat-em-up in the final Street Fights of Rage mould, where half the challenge is not standing one pixel too far north of your intended target that your frenzied punches upset northward passing moths, and the other half is mashing buttons in the vain superstitious hope that it'll somehow make you stand up faster. You are part of a Roma community in 1980s Russia whose simple carefree life of brutal cage fighting with the homeless is shattered when you're kidnapped and subjected to drug experiments by Russian gangsters, prompting a quest for revenge. Which is a bit of an overreaction, there are westerners who'd pay good money for weekend breaks like that. Eventually you get caught up in revolution against the corrupt government, because that's all that ever happens in Russia, isn't it? Drug crime, government corruption and revolutions. Why don't we ever hear about the positive things, like their lovely beetroot soup? Anyway, in the grand tradition of arcade beat-em-ups you have four characters to choose from, the fast weak one, the slow strong one, the in-betweeny one, and the other one for when your mum says you have to let your little brother join in. Not that it makes much difference, they all have the same moves and dialogue, which feels like a missed opportunity. Maybe I want to know if the dude in workout gear with bandaged fists and starey eyes has a more nuanced attitude to proceedings than the girl in workout gear with bandaged fists and starey eyes, but we're not here for story, which is probably for the best because the dialogue's consistently as stiff and redundant as a beached whale at optimal surfing time. As I say, the combat's pretty basic and I did get rather over-reliant on the sliding tackle, spending more time on my back than a nymphomaniac skirting board inspector, but the challenge is meaty enough and it's certainly cathartic. Blows land with the satisfying crunch of a big-bottomed lady sitting down on a taco platter and with roughly the same effect upon the face of the target, and enough broken teeth litter the ground that the council won't need to grit the pavement next time there's icy weather. I appreciate the subversive joke inherent in depicting such unflinching grittiness as something as comparatively wholesome as an 80s arcade brawler. It's like the Saturday morning cartoon version of Hobo with a Shotgun. And it's the extremes it goes to that make it fun. If we're gonna smash the few remaining teeth out of a drug-addicted whore, might as well do it with a severed cock sticking out of an overdue library book. Well this is a bit of suspicious serendipity on Microsoft's part. Out we staggered from Metroid Prime Federation Forces Bring Your Own Self-Flagellation Device Barbecue, when Microsoft sidled up and whispered, hey, you like Metroid Prime? And after we'd all finished weeping and rending our garments, it continued, well we've got a game that takes influence from Metroid Prime and was directed by the same bloke who directed Metroid Prime. Ooh. And he also worked on PlayStation All-Stars Battle Royale. Ooh. And it's only available on Xbox One. What did you say, Microsoft? I said it's only available for Windows 10. That's what I thought you said. So what do you call this game? Recore. Recall? No, Recore. As in, take the core out of something, then put it back in. So it's a game about apples, is it? Look, forget the title, just play the fucking thing. So I did. And no, it's not a game about apples. It's a game about some lady hanging out on an inhospitable desert planet who presumably subsists on handfuls of sand and whatever condensation she can lick from the underside of her suspension every morning. What with North America having recently come down with a nasty case of me, I had to offload most of my gaming shit for the move and I'm presently working off a single Windows 10 laptop, but Recore seemed happy to run on it once I'd reduced the resolution down to the equivalent size of a widescreen post-it note and chucked out graphical features like an angry Midwestern dad searching his teenage son's bedroom after he carelessly 
expresses an enthusiasm for Bob Marley records. It did, however, initially refuse to start until I closed down Steam. Oh, Microsoft, there's no need to be petty. Don't be so insecure. I'm sure there are plenty of features the Microsoft Store offers that Steam doesn't, and I'm sure I could even think of one given a team of researchers and a month. Anyway, as we've established, ReCore is set on a desert world in the process of being terraformed for the human race to populate and spread the incurable disease that is their existence. Our heroine is an engineer tasked with maintaining the robots and equipment that are doing the terraforming, and her name is Jewel, because the writers thought calling her Rosie McLikes electronic shit will be just a hair too subtle. Jewel combines the technical skills, daddy issues, robot dog and vague but undeniably progressive mixed race genetics of Alex Vance with the technical skills, daddy issues and abandoned on a desert planet nurse of that lady from the new Star Wars. Which probably means they sell the likes of her off the peg at the strong female protagonist shop, but perhaps the closer comparison would be Jade, the strong female protagonist with technical skills from Beyond Good and Evil. Since both protagonists have to run around one of those Zelda-like open worlds that aren't quite the same thing as a sandbox and get their hands around a load of big shiny balls. Also, Jade ran an orphanage and Jewel has to play mother figure to a planet's worth of feisty robots that have been given personalities for some no doubt enormously obvious reason that presently escapes me, taking in the friendly ones and dishing out the spankings to the ones that went astray. For in a plot development about as surprising as your previously not hungry girlfriend suddenly wanting to pinch all your fries, the robots on the planet with completely necessary personalities have declared war on humanity. Humanity's presence on the planet consists at that point of three or four tech nerds, but then I suppose it's good to keep your goals manageable. So what we have here is a game with much of the PS2 era about it, that is to say you jump a lot and collect glowing geometric shapes that are floating a foot off the ground for no adequately explored reason. Speaking of explored, it has a bunch of token open world side challenges to be attempted alongside the main dungeons, of which there are a grand total of about three, so perhaps main was the wrong word, the dungeons that also happen to be there? And this gets us to one of the major gripes about Recorked, its relationship with the concept of structure is a nodding acquaintancy at best. Once it runs out of dungeons you go to the final confrontation at Fort Climax, fight a final boss and then a fucking stop sign pops up and smashes you in the face like a comedy rake. Find twenty of the magic testicles to proceed! So I tuck my Climax blue balls back inside my trousers and go back to the overworld to meet my quota, come back, get to do another load of climactic challenges before the stop sign pops up again, piss off and dig up another five easter eggs to continue. Fucking hell, whatever exciting climax is waiting at the top of this tower, I hope it's got a fucking book to read. You're just trying to draw your playtime out, aren't you, Recore? No. I'm... Not. I might appreciate it in another game, taking the reins off to let us explore the open world, but the problem is the open world is a desert planet, which is one of the definitive boring settings, alongside Antarctic research stations and any living room in which a slide projector has been set up. On top of that, it feels like they built exactly as much world as they needed to contain all the gameplay and then clicked on the little bounding box and expanded it till it was about three times bigger, so you have to trudge through blinding white sand for ages to get anywhere. And since you can double jump and jetpack boost right from the start, it doesn't open up in a gradual, organic manner, there's just a couple of highly contextual environmental barriers you need specific robot side kicks to get past, and that gets me to the next armed grenade hidden in the exploration porridge. Jewel only has room in her strong female protagonist underpants for two robot sidekicks at a time, so if you didn't call the psychic hotline that morning so you brought the smashy robot and the tentacle robot without realising you'd stumble upon something that needs the hovery robot, you get to trudge all the way back to the fast travel point to swap them out. It's like being a server in a restaurant full of Alzheimer's patients. Well, I've still got one last bit of bile left, and I already read the election news this morning so I might as well vomit it all over the combat, which is about as fun as nailing dogs to a wall. The colour coding system is intuitive enough, you have the red gun, the blue gun and the yellow gun and they do the most damage to enemies the same colour, the excitement of frenzied death battle combined with the wholesome educational value of preschool colouring in lessons, but your capabilities are limited to attacking one single enemy at once when they're always in groups, so you're constantly getting blindsided by enemies whose attacks couldn't give two straining constipated plops whether you think you press the dodge button in time or not. Plus they've all got health bars longer than the amount of time it takes to clean out the bathtub at Brian Blessed's house, and of course the enemies respawn every time you re-enter an area, so I was soon greeting every combat encounter with a weary sigh and a hanging of the shoulders like a water slide attendant watching a man massively obese family of four ascend the stairs. On the whole, ReCore is very flawed. Better than Federation Force, but then so is getting your nadgers pinned to the ground by a filing cabinet full of unflattering school reports.
it's all love at an industry that never learns anything. Tee hee hee. Yeah, you didn't think you'd hear that again, did you? Capcom, far from being a website for people with an interest in cloth headwear, is a global game developer and publisher and massive, massive slut. If Capcom ever promises your console an exclusive game, make sure to hose down the marital bed with a delousing agent, because it'll be out with sailor boys every night catching a fresh dose of blistering barnacles. Just recently, two of its hottest properties, Resident Evil 4 and Dead Rising, spread their already barely acquainted legs a little further apart to accommodate a few more console ports, and both of them were at one point pledged as exclusive titles, hilariously enough. But how did Capcom first follow the philosophy of philandering fair-weather friendship? Today, the Zero Punctuation Occasional Guide to Differently Able Moments in Gaming History examines the curious case of the Capcom 5. Not quite as many as the Magnificent 7, but remade about as much. The year was the delightfully palindromic 2002, and in the days before Nintendo heard the siren call of motion controls and started naming their consoles after things little piggies have been known to do all the way home, their GameCube was struggling to find a decent market share. Nintendo's days of being king shit of all the lands of gaming had made them complacent and caused them to pick up a few bad habits, one of which had apparently been a tendency to use bathroom disinfectant as a drinks mixer. That being the only explanation I can think of for why the Nintendo 64 was a cartridge console when disc-based media was available. Developing for cartridge at that time was like an animation studio having to paint each frame onto the side of a frightened Piglet, so third-party developers buggered off in droves to the eager arms of the PlayStation. That particular wake-up call led meanderingly to the GameCube, which had more powerful hardware than its competitors, the PS2 and Xbox, as well as a disc drive, although I guess there was still some of that bathroom disinfectant left over, because it only ran novelty tiny baby discs whose main benefit that I could see was that you could use them to convince someone that their hands had mysteriously doubled in size. As such, the GameCube was failing to lure developers back, and so Nintendo turned to its old comrade, Capcom, whose Mega Man games had made for such a profitable partnership before 256 Colours ruined everything. The relationship was all already troubled since Capcom had jumped ship with everyone else to make Resident Evil for the PlayStation, but all seemed forgiven as Capcom announced in late 2002 five new titles to revitalise the GameCube. PNO3, Dead Phoenix, Beautiful Joe, Killer7, and most notably the aforementioned Resident Evil 4, all to be overseen by proven director Shinji Mikami. Things were looking immediately rosier for Nintendo as a representative of Capcom USA claimed that these would all be exclusive to GameCube, as he adjusted his Stetson and fired his revolvers into the air. But then the fiasco began as there were a few moments of angry muttering behind the curtains and Capcom USA came back out to say there'd been a communication cock-up and only Resident Evil 4 was confirmed to be exclusive at that time. Now, as Mighty Spacemen of the future year 2016 can look back on that with a knowing smile because at time of writing Resident Evil 4 has been ported to 11 different gaming platforms and at least one kitchen appliance. Because it is, in academic terms, fucking sweet. I won't say Resident Evil 4 breathed new life into its franchise because to even associate it with the other Resident Evils is like adding David Bowie to the lineup of S Club 7. The writing was as atrocious as ever, but with a self-aware B-movie edge that made all the difference, the completely retooled gameplay was a major influence on third-person shooters still to this day, and the graphics tech was practically next-gen, that is to say, mostly brown. It wasn't so much Resident Evil getting back on its feet as a landmark title in the entire history of the medium, which I do not say lightly, because I just ate an entire fruitcake. But the point is that it alone may well have saved the GameCube, if it had been an exclusive. But as we all know, that turned into a pretty big if. So here's a smaller if. Maybe everything would have still been lovely for Nintendo if Capcom had kept their mouths shut and hadn't announced the PS2 port two months before the GameCube release. Consequently, Resident Evil 4 sold 1.6 million on the GameCube and 2 million on the PS2. What should have been the laying down of a winning hand became the laying of a cruel fist upon the ghoulies. As for the rest of the Capcom 5, the funny thing was that it had no middle ground. They were all either great or great balls of shite. Beautiful Joe was a smart and sexy side-on cartoon brawler that reviewed well and sold perfectly satisfactorily, but Capcom did a PS2 port anyway, as far as I can tell just to rub Nintendo's nose in it. Killer7 was the game that put legendary auteur Suda51 on the map, but to call it slightly unconventional would be like calling a swift knee in the bollocks a slightly inappropriate response to a question at a presidential debate, and it was destined for cult stardom only, which is a nice way of saying reviewed, 
did well, sold like shit. And then you have the other side of the coin. One of the five was never even released. Dead Phoenix was supposed to be some Panzer Dragoon affair, but was cancelled in August 2003, which must have been an easy time to be a video game website headline writer. Dead Phoenix is dead. Bam, that deserves an early lunch. The final game was PNO3, a third person shooter about a lady who dressed like a MacBook trying to disguise itself as a kitchen appliance and constantly moved like she was busting for a piss. Critics and audiences panned it alike, and so naturally it was the only one of the five to remain a GameCube exclusive. Here's your consolation prize, Nintendo. It's a bag of lawn clippings and dead wasps. The end result of the Capcom 5 was that what should have been a boost for the GameCube turned into one broadcast after another that Capcom had zero faith in the console, and Nintendo wouldn't forget. In fact, rumour has it that the whole debacle is why there weren't any Capcom characters in Super Smash Bros. Brawl, and if it's true, then that's the most pathetic attempt at revenge I've ever heard of. It's like telling the bloke who murdered your family and stole all your money that you've expelled him from your best friend's treehouse club. I think it's pretty clear that Nintendo remains steadfast in their blindness to the lessons of history by even after all these years having no idea what they're doing when it comes to third-party development. After all, they released Metroid Prime Federation Force instead of selling the entire stock to hot air balloon pilots for use as inexpensive ballast. Still, they remain the kings of awkward hardware and ruthless exclusivity, despite exclusivity being an utterly anti-consumer practice that a sensible games industry would have thrown out with the fucking oscilloscopes. I'm glad that Capcom maintained the policy of keeping their options and their legs open. So when I call them a great big whore, I want to make it clear that it's not meant as a criticism. Quite the opposite. Some of my best friends are whores, as long as I keep up the payments. As many of you know, I like it a bit hard. This is something also well known to my escort service and my accountant, but I particularly like my games a bit hard. I put it down to my school days and having to navigate the shower room after games, running the gauntlet of kicks to the bollocks and nervous experimental jets of spunk. But there are a couple of different ways hardness can manifest in the trousers of a video game. The Dark Souls method, as is well documented, is to blast you in the face with a rake that takes off all your health the instant you arrive, in order to organically train you to nimbly dodge the rake so that it can gently brush part of your foot on the backswing and take off all your health regardless. And then there's the kind of difficulty that sneaks up on you like the proverbial frog in the slowly heating boiler that considerable experimentation has proved doesn't actually work, which can be a much more insidious form of difficulty because it lets you in the door with a condescending smile and waits until you've gotten comfortable with a plate of digestive biscuits before it quietly locks the soundproof doors and produces what looks like a tool used in vehicle maintenance. And this week I played two Steam games that subscribe to this philosophy of difficulty, starting with Cluster Truck, which is one of those kinds of games at the Porosturvat school where 90% of the design document was just the words a license of physics engine in very big letters. It's a first person game where you are a dude or a dudette or a walrus or whatever you'd care to imagine, with the ability to accelerate to a speed some somewhere in the region of the clappers, and your job is to get to the exit of each level without touching the ground, as the only things you're allowed to touch are a large number of trucks moving vaguely in the direction you're heading. There's not much in the way of story to give that context, but it reminds me of a game I used to play when I was a kid, and bear with me because I know this sounds pretty crazy, when I'd pretend that the floor, right, was made out of lava, of all things, and would kill me if I stepped on it. I know, I was such a kooky random little bastard back in the day, I'm surprised my parents didn't lock me in a straitjacket and have me sectioned a lot earlier than they actually did. Anyway, the standard response to the summary of Cluster Truck is, is that it? And frankly, yes, there's an emphasis on speed and competing with the times of other players, but the top ten on the scoreboard are all inevitably 0.1 of a second. And you know what, guys? If you're gonna hack the board, at least come up with something believable. You're like the guy who turned up to the dick measuring contest with a Cumberland sausage ineptly stapled to his foreskin. The developers valiantly attempt to expand gameplay with a series of unlockable gadgets and abilities, none of which are of much use compared to the jetpack and the slow motion, which are among the first ones you can get. But fair's fair, the 80-odd levels of the game ring about as much potential as there is out of the concept of jumping all over a convoy of trucks as they navigate a Mario 64 level. We start out on straightforward country roads and by the end are hopping across trucks on a giant rotating cylinder in an abysmal hellscape. And while as the levels get harder the chaotic nature of all the moving parts means that you're relying on a lucky quirk of the physics more than acquired skill, failures barely have time to register as you restart the level with a single click of the mouse, or a violent and bloodstained thud of the mouse after frustration builds up, but try not to lose composure, that's how you get sectioned. As for if I'd recommend the game, I don't know, I certainly got absorbed in the way one does during hate sex. On harder levels the frustration grows as you restart again and again until everything becomes an annoyance, the trucks, the levels, the room around you, your 
your red-headed stepchildren. When I started writing this review, I was genuinely going to go off on one about how you die if you touch ceilings and walls as well as the floor. What, have we got truck-exempt brittle bone disease? You don't lose the floor is lava just because you knocked over the standing lamp, at least not till your dad gets home. But I had a nice cleansing poo and calmed down. Cluster truck's so basic that recommending it feels like recommending the sensation of immersing your hands in a bag of dry rice. There, I hope that informs your purchase decision. Let's move on to our second game, Lichtspear, which is not, as one might reasonably expect, a game about violating the personal space of Albert Speer, architect of the Nazi regime. Although you might be vaguely in the right ballpark, because it is a game based loosely around Germanic mythology, by which I mean there are a lot of characters with beards, and someone used find and replace to switch all uses of the word the to the word das, and I think Strudel gets mentioned at one point. You are the chosen warrior of a huge bearded god of war who has grown bored, possibly because they're looking for decent indie games to play on Steam in late September. You are granted a magical pink spear to thrust deep into the flesh of hundreds of burly enemies for his divine amusement in a way that has not at all become ever so slightly a suspect now that I'm coming to write it down. It's a 2D game with a somewhat arcadey feel where your character nails his feet to the floor and must repel oncoming hordes of monsters by chucking spears, adjusting the angle and power of each throw as necessary. So sort of like tower defence meets worms except the tower is you and the only worms will be the ones feasting on the blanket of corpses you leave in your wake. Just like Cluster Truck, Lick Spear gets as much mileage as it can out of a simple core concept. Some enemies are slow, some are fast, some are high up, some have specific weak spots, and some of them are walruses. And on that note, if your dad used to dress up as a walrus and beat you with a fish while playing I Am The Walrus so that you get conditioned to react with fear and disgust every time you hear that song, it still wouldn't make you as poorly disposed to walruses as this fucking game will. I was having fun at first, nice simple core gameplay and the sight of your spear gracefully arcing across the room into a kobold's eye socket couldn't have given me more satisfaction if it had been my own thrusting pink phallus going on a brain matter safari, but then the insidious difficulty creep began and I started to find some of the design questionable. I don't like how you can't use your special powers during boss fights, because boss fights are supposed to be tests of all the skills we've learned, so changing the rules for them is like basing the final grade on the student's penmanship and how they look in a swimsuit. Also, if you miss a spear three times in a row, your patron deity gets cross and you're stunned for a moment, and that's not going to help a struggling player bounce back, is it? It's like the moment of invincibility after you get hit in Sonic the Hedgehog, except instead of invincibility it decks you in the face and forces you to apologise to all the nice monsters for wasting their time. I almost felt like the game resented me for playing it. I get that, Lickspear. I feel the same way sometimes about people I invite over, when they stay past my bedtime and scoff all the biscuits and still refuse to sit under the pendulum. I find myself wondering if Paper Mario Sticker Star did alright. Not by my standards, and I know I sometimes give this impression that a game would have to escape from cold dits and fall to its knees at my door to commence a blowjob marathon that makes my feet recede into my legs to impress me, but Sticker Star was a particular thorn in my suppository because the older Paper Mario games had humour and life and creativity, whereas Sticker Star has… well, it has stickers. Nope, there it is on Wikipedia, Sticker Star, mixed reviews and the lowest scores of any Paper Mario game. Well, that clears it up. Now I understand perfectly why Nintendo thought, yes, this is the one we need to bring to Wii U. This is exactly what our ailing brand needs a good hard shot of mediocrity that will pull our bootstraps about halfway up before getting bored and wandering off. You know, I seem to remember being a bit down on Super Paper Mario when it first came out on the Wii, now I'm counting the days till the NX comes out and Nintendo does the usual thing where they stop supporting the previous console but one, and thinking of all the things I should have said to Super Paper Mario before I pressed down on the pillow. Paper Mario Color Splash opens with Mario and the Princess arriving at a mysterious port town to find answers to a mystery, which made a single cobweb fall off my long dormant stiffy, because that's how Thousand Year Door started, but nope, it's just the usual thing, monsters have stolen the local six or seven important and inevitably star-shaped artefacts of power, and the person behind it all begins with B and rhymes with something Inspector Gadget used to say a lot. And after restoring the first of the inevitable star-shaped things, it's parked its pointy bum down for less than a second before Princess Peach gets kidnapped, which I wouldn't have minded, but then a nearby toad comments, oh no, Bowser kidnapped Princess Peach! What a totally unexpected happenstance! And you know what? Fuck you, Paper Mario Color Splash. There is a difference between clever subversive self-parody and just doing the same thing you always do but sarcastically rolling your eyes at it. Don't kick me in the bollocks and say, gosh, wouldn't it be 
be funny if I were really kicking you in the bollocks. What bothers me the most about these last two Paper Marios is that there's such a brazen lack of effort on display. And this isn't fucking Wii Fit Trainer's quest for the perfect bleached asshole, this is Mario, Nintendo's fucking A-grade intellectual property. Yeah, Pokemon might be the moneymaker now, but Mario's the pimp daddy, it has to pay at the end of the night. If they were going to crowbar the wallet open to create new content for any game, you'd think it'd be for Mario, but nope, still using the same flea-bitten paper cutout sprites Paper Mario's been using for over a decade, and I assume some have gotten more flea-bitten than others over the years because every non-hostile NPC in this game is a generic Toadstool man. Every single one. Some palette-swapped. And they all have the same role in life, throwing out glib sarcastic remarks on the utterly pedestrian things that surround them in half-assed acknowledgement of the obligation for funny dialogue. This might sound like an odd thing to harp on, but what the fuck happened to Toadsworth? You know, the scholarly advisor Toadstool man with the stash who used to hang around Princess Peach like he was trying to wipe his ass on the toilet paper stuck to her shoe. I ask because there's a character filling that role, but you guessed it, it's a generic indistinct Toadstool man. And Toadsworth's been in previous Paper Mario games, what happened Nintendo? Did the dog knock over the bin with all your old sprites in it? By now I'm sure the Nintendo fans are nervously chewing on their Triforce-shaped asthma inhalers trying to get a word in edgeways. Oh Yahtzee, stop giving us the same old shit about Nintendo not giving us the same old shit. So it isn't like the Paper Marios you used to like, so what? It's Nintendo's property and they can do what they like with it. Alright, granted, I might point out they keep slapping the Paper Mario name on it, but then this is the eternal paradox of Nintendo, isn't it? Exclusively makes games catered to the nostalgia crowd and yet goes out of their way to annoy them at the same time. But play it your way, I shall now stick this red-hot wire coat hanger down my ear until I've forgotten about the good Paper Marios. <laughs> there we go. Now, flurble blurble recidivist Mario cunt. The gameplay of Colour Splash revolves around paint. You're questing for the six magic paint stars and have the ability to smash paint onto white things with your hammer to restore them. I think I understand the Wii's now. Nintendo are going through every substance and object one could possibly associate with paper crafting. Last time it was adhesive, now it's paint. Next time we'll probably be rescuing the six magic sheets of blank printer paper from the clutches of King Hole Punch. The plot establishes that the villains are draining paint from characters to make them lifeless, which creates a paint-as-blood metaphor that gets more fucked up the more you think about it, as Mario gaily romps through the world pouring blood on things, as well as smashing objects with a hammer to recover blood from them, and using blood to infuse his combat cards with power like a deranged satanic ritualist playing Yu-Gi-Oh. On that note, the combat system is not dissimilar to Sticker Stars, as you explore you constantly pick up cards representing single forms of attack, and in each round of combat you choose what cards to inflict upon the enemy. I find this combat style to be the proverbial styrofoam packing material in the Noki, and now I shall explain why. In a normal RPG, annoying as it is when the game stops you every ten steps to blow the random encounter trumpet, we take the consolation that every fight gives us a little experience and makes us a little bit stronger. In the Colour Splash and Sticker Star system, however, getting caught by a random battle is totally disadvantageous. Cards are single use, so you might have to waste a four crikey death spooge on two one-legged special needs goombas and a soggy biscuit. The only benefit you can get is money and expanded blood capacity, but virtually everything in the environment disgorges money and blood like a pole dancer with the Ebola virus. If Nintendo were hoping to move Sticker Star to a non-handheld console, then the joke's on them because I ended up playing in controller-only mode just so I wouldn't have to be constantly looking up and down like I was lying on my side at a tennis match. Even then the basic combat was arduous. How many button presses does it take to jump on a Goomba in Super Mario Brothers? One if it's already moving towards you. Meanwhile, in Colour Splash, first you've got to drag the shoe icon onto the card slot, then fill it with paint by awkwardly fingering it, like you're navigating thick pubes and aren't sure if you found the clitoris or a forgotten sultana, then confirm your selection, and then they make you flick it off the touchscreen for no particular reason, unless Nintendo thinks there's mileage in a bogey disposal simulator. See, now that we've established that fun and original storytelling isn't part of Paper Mario's appeal, splurgle splurgle fuck mother hairy pipes, then fun gameplay is the only thing left it could possibly stand up on, but the combat is both disadvantageous to get into and not fun. Which is not my idea of core gameplay, except in the sense of core, this gameplay's shite.
You know what's funny? Sticking fish fingers up your nose and blowing raspberries to the Captain Pugwash theme tune. But you know what's funny about Gears of War? It's a series with a fairly respectable heritage about it, an early Xbox 360 game attached to the venerable Cliff Blazinski, with focus on a grand architectural aesthetic and a solid core gameplay style that has had a lasting influence on shooter design to this day, and yet when you actually sit down and play one of them you swiftly remember, oh that's right, these games are for absolute cretins. Every aspect of a Gears of War game, from the way characters waddle about the battlefield making it sound like they're carrying rucksacks full of saucepans, to the incessant asinine dialogue, to the fact that you could cut two minutes out of literally any Gears of War game and I doubt I could tell for the life of me which of the four it came from, although I bet confidently on those two minutes consisting of hanging around a bunch of chest-high walls shooting at dudes that look like the Sugar Puffs monster, make playing a Gears of War game feel like trying to explain something to an incredibly slow-witted man who will get angry and sit on your head every time you say a word he doesn't understand. Gears of War 4 continues the story of a brave group of plot writers as they struggle to continue a plot that was supposed to have been decisively tied up at the end of Gears of War 3. The Locust have been gone for about 30 years and the human race have had time to get into some nice traditional internal squabbles between those who want to live in walled cities where robots cater to their every whim, and those ostensibly much smarter and more relatable people who want to live in wooden huts and shit in the woods. Although in fairness, the only city we get to see the inside of seemed to be entirely deserted except for robots and Sarah Palin. Shortly, this uneasy peace is shattered when a new threat arises, and by new threat I mean precisely the same threat as always. The locusts come back. That's about all the explanation we get. The locusts can just all come back to life, apparently, if they detect perfect environmental conditions for sequel. This established, one wonders why the characters are even bothering to fight them. The enemy's immortal, guys. I think this planet is officially a lost cause. Maybe we could find another one that doesn't have city-destroying superstorms every half hour. Speaking of, if these storms are a regular thing, then why does one completely destroy Marcus Phoenix's house the moment we show up? Surely it would have had to have weathered at least a few of those before we arrived. Oh, whoops, that was a bit of a spoiler, wasn't it? Because when the game starts, we're playing as an all-new, fresh-faced Scooby gang of infuriating youngsters whose quips make me want to grind a broken highball glass in their eye, so we might take from this that the series is at least trying to make a fresh start, even if the combat's the same and every character still looks like they're wearing a neck brace under their flesh. But then two chapters in, Marcus Phoenix shows up and the plot proceeds to revolve around him for the remainder of the runtime. Time. Maybe a Gears of War sequel being a sequel to Gears of War isn't exactly an automatic strike against, but even in his prime, Marcus Phoenix was a boring, grunty misery gut with one end broken off his emotional spectrum, so God knows why you'd think he'd liven up the new cast now that he's undergone no development except he's rocking a grey beard and a catheter bag. Then, towards the end, all the other old characters show up to save the day as well, because fuck it, let's turn this into a later next generation Star Trek film where the entire cast obviously have their girdles laced up so tight they're going cross-eyed. Pandering is a good word. So stuck up its own ass, it's wearing its own large intestine like a wizard hat is a good several words. There's even a scene where the characters put on classic armour from the old games in a room like a fucking Apple store, as the music swells and it's like the scene where Batman puts his stockings on at the start of the third act, and I had a little laugh because there was one piece of women's armour for the token lady in the party and it was about one-tenth of the size of the men's chest plate. It was like a meerkat infiltrated a gorilla sanctuary. So all in all, Gears of War 4 feels largely unchanged from the established formula and the series remains about as resistant to evolution as a school board in the Deep South, although they do mix up the gameplay a grand total of about three times in the course of the campaign to play a bit of tower defence. You have to protect a central area from three waves of baddies and you're given a little spending money to place turrets and such like. Unfortunately, in single player at least, the game gives you barely enough each round to buy one turret and maybe a Twix on the way home, and the turrets are made from oily rags and rivetas so these sections very swiftly turn into yet another identical bloody shootout. I mentioned asinine dialogue up there, and you know what, I get the feeling Gears of War 4 was a gig that the voice actors either absolutely loved or utterly dreaded, because on the one hand all they had to do was show up at the studio and say the following three lines, that's the last of them, let's keep moving, and ooh this isn't good, and bingo that was 90% of the story dialogue done. Then it was just mid-combat one-liners to worry about, and all they had to do for that was candidly record the voice actors squeezing their pimples. Got one, scratch one grub, etc. But on the other hand, it's got to be a chore for any serious actor to try to inject life and personality where none exists. I think I see why they gradually brought all the old characters back and turned it into Aliens versus Last of the Summer Wine, because after two chapters of just the new kids on the block it was painfully clear that things weren't working out, with our hero generic white dude with unflappable hairdo and chin like a fucking Transformers lunchbox, his black best friend and token lady to rest his mouth on when they're done dribbling 
banalities at each other. One of them is the smart technical one, one of them is the ditzy one, and one of them is the one taking things seriously. Unfortunately, I guess there was a bit of a falling out in the writers' room and they couldn't agree on which was which, so as a compromise the game spins a fucking wheel at the start of every dialogue and randomly reassigns the roles. So once again I reach the end of a Gears of War game and find myself hard-pressed to recount any highlights because I spent most of it lulled into a trance. I know there was a bit in an industrial area and a bit in some caves and a bit in a town with once proud architecture now besmirched by the unfeeling hand of conflict, but that could be any Gears of War game, or indeed most games. You know, I pause for a moment in any given shootout and I look at the sheer detail in the surrounding environment right down to the cobblestones in the floor and I have to wonder, how does the artist who painted that cobblestone feel about all their hard work being part of something that passes through the mind so utterly inconsequentially? As the target audience trudges on to find another thing to shoot, ignoring a brief character moment to shove another handful of cheesy snacks down their orange-stained windpipes, I wonder if they ever dream of doing more artistically fulfilling work, like directing facial cum shots. So it's officially shoot to season 2016, the wonderful time of year when the spectre of consequence-free violence stalks the land, draining the nation's supply of ADHD medication. I've got the usual variety twin pack of Battlefield and Call of Duty on the list, but after Gears of War 4 I didn't want to be that guy who played too many shooters in a row, and then drank a shooter while watching Shooter the 2007 Mark Wahlberg vehicle, and then became cursed every full moon to transform into the chairman of the National Rifle Association. So instead I thought I'd have a go on PlayStation VR. It would have been remiss of me not to, since I've been talking VR up for years. It's a genuine advance in immersive gaming, how can it not be, no matter where you look you cannot be anything but in the game because you nailed two TVs to your fucking face. Admittedly VR is still struggling through two major teething troubles, firstly ensuring that the player doesn't look like a massive knob end to passers-by, aka the Google Glasses conundrum, and secondly that it makes most people want to puke until their sex organs are dangling from their nostrils like Christmas mistletoe. But hey, Disneyland broke down on the first day too, and VR wasn't started by a closet Nazi. The other thing that makes VR interesting is that it's one of the few areas of gaming that's still evolving and exploring possibilities. Standard gaming tech has basically been perfected for years, but the hardware lads still try to convince us we're missing out if we're not playing Halo in 10,000p, counting every piece of gravel in Master Chief's driveway. Resolution in VR, meanwhile, is still crap. It's like sticking your heads in a bucket of Lego, and improving that would actually mean something. Let me reiterate now that motion controls continue to be a used teabag full of hot sewing needles, and it upsets me that publishers keep trying to pair VR with it, in the same way one pairs a punch bowl with a stream of piss. It makes no sense to me because it's combining a more immersive gameplay style with a less immersive one, effectively cancelling them both out so you end up with nothing but incessant calibration tests and a living room full of trailing wires. Thankfully, most PSVR games let you use a standard controller, but motion controls were always part of the broader initiative to market video games as a party starter. That wholesome box of living room fun, around which inoffensively attractive 18-35s to 35s gather in pastel shirts to have quality time. And I get the sense that PlayStation is having trouble relinquishing that mindset. Push your VR-based local multiplayer party games all you want, there's no denying that VR is inherently a single-player innovation. It's a device for lonesome spots to find more lasting escape from a cruel reality. Which is great, because it means those spots aren't shooting up movie theatres, or hovering around an office Christmas party making suggestive remarks about Volivant in a design attempt to flirt. Speaking for the spods then, the PlayStation VR helmet is comfortable enough to wear, with enough adjustability that I can find the sweet spot where my vision isn't blurred and the bridge of my nose doesn't hurt after a bare 30-40 to 40 minutes of fiddling, which puts it above average for commercial VR headsets, and then there I was inside the virtual world with a heavy thing hanging off my face like a tortoise was trying to mate with my cycling helmet, which doesn't help with the queasiness, but a big part of that is game design, and developers are continually finding new ways to mitigate the issue. Batman Arkham VR, for example, hits upon the clever notion of being such incredible garbage that you close the game in disgust before before you have a chance to feel ill. Thirty fucking bucks I paid for a half-hour CD-ROM virtual tour from the mid to late 90s. I'd have expected more if I'd found it on the cover of a fucking magazine. Now I know why I couldn't find a free demo of it, the demo would probably have been two nanoseconds of Batman looking sad. Here They Lie was better, a rather absorbing horror game about exploring a dilapidated and increasingly fucked up city that'll probably turn out to be hell or limbo, because that's usually the case in games like this and, well, limbo. It is a linear walking simulator and there's not a whole lot of gameplay, barring a few rather anticlimactic monster hiding moments that felt more like a simulation of trying to walk home from work without 
without having to pass by groups of scary-looking teenagers. But I enjoyed it nonetheless, which may prove my point about VR, as it was absorbing enough for me just taking in the sights, standing on the edge of bridges, leaning over and looking down to see if I could spot places the developers forgot to texture. I was, however, a little bit confused by the turning controls. Every time you nudge the right analog stick, the game pulls a black bag over your head, rotates you precisely 45 degrees, and pulls it off again. I assumed it was another puke preventative, but I wouldn't have thought merely turning around would have caused a stress mess until I played Windlands, which is a game that lets you turn off the black bag approach, and turning felt like my brain was attached to my eyeballs with partially melted slinkies. Windlands is a rather basic platformer with an air of my first Unity project, but if you're looking for an encyclopedia of nausea prevention aids, then look no further than its options menu. You want black bag turning? You want to disable strafing? You want to stick your head in a great big hamster ball? Come on, there's got to be at least one combination of these that will keep your lunch down while you enjoy the very expensive tech investment you've got strapped to your bonds. About that hamster ball thing, there's the option to put a cage around your head, partly because one must occasionally take a risk trying to stay ahead of fashion trends, but partly because having something stationary around you helps with the nausea. Hey, I thought we were sitting immobile on a couch, says Mr. Body as we play VR. What's all this jumping around and exploring dilapidated cities business Mr. Eyes is going on about? I'm confused, so I'm going to have a big sulk and send all this food back up to Mr. Mouth in protest. No, wait, says Mr. Eyes. Look, there's a stationary cage around us. We are sitting immobile after all. Hmm, story checks out, says Mr. Body. My apologies, back to normal business. Let's eat something bad for us and have a quick wank. That's the theory, anyway, and perhaps it's the reason why VR comes into its own with games where you're piloting a vehicle. It would be a shame if VR ends up only really working with certain very specific kinds of games, like the thing the Wiimote had with rail shooters and bugger all else, but doing only one thing can go a long way if you do it well enough, and anyway, vehicle-based gaming covers a large variety of experiences, from Forklift Simulator 2016 to giant mech combat in orbit around the planet of tits. The game that finally gave me the VR experience I wanted was Eve Valkyrie, a space shooter. That was where it all came together, the yawning majesty of the infinite but an inch of plexiglass away, interludes of intense three-dimensional combat, looking down and seeing the body of someone attractive and physically fit. Of course, the only version of the game available cost me $90 and only had three story missions, which is taking a not insignificant amount of piss. But you know what? There's no need to rip the toilet seat out just because there's a bit of piss on it. That's what your sleeve is for. Regular viewers will know that I have a bit of a wasp in my urethra about illogical sequel numbering. Mainly I worry that after the apocalyptic global conflict that will accompany the new American presidency, the future scholars of gaming will be terribly confused. We found Battlefield 1, 2, 3, 4 and 1942, so by my count we're missing 1938 episodes. But there is a slim justification for the titling of Battlefield 1. Firstly, it's sort of a play on words. Battlefield 1, you see. Congratulations, you have won a battlefield. Hope you like shell casings and entrails. And of course, it's a clever reference to the game being set in World War 1, which in the run-up to release, many pundits and players rightly thought could be just the kind of fresh thinking that would breathe new life into the genre. For one thing, it'll mean that battles will be taking place in literal fields, and the whole affair won't be infused by an inescapable air of dishonesty. And without the benefits of modern weaponry, the gameplay would call for a wholly different, more thoughtful approach to- What was that? cries Battlefield 1. Sorry, we were busy giving automatic machine guns to every motherfucker on the planet. Oh. Well, World War I was a conflict without clear heroes or villains, just millions upon millions of young men being sent to tragic, pointless deaths in the name of nothing but an international game of political bum-bouncing, so there'll need to be a thoughtful, more morally complex approach to the storytelling. What was that? cries Battlefield 1 again. Sorry, we were busy making a story campaign about rugged, English-speaking fancy boys squinting heroically into the middle distance as they mow down dastardly, jabbering krauts by the hundreds. I wouldn't harp, but there's this whole bit in the introduction where an American and a German soldier lock gaze over a field strewn with bodies and both lower their weapons in recognition of their inner humanity that can never be erased by a system that sees them as naught but expendable cogs, and then five minutes later it's back to four massacring expendable cogs sure is fun, eh lads? Even if you're playing as the German side in the multiplayer, the bloke on the briefing menu talks with that face, mark and evil German fairs, we will punish these stupid American cowboys for the glory of the Kaiser. Mm. Battlefield 1, what on earth was the bloody point in the setting change if you're just going to treat World War 1 like it's World War 2 but with slightly sillier hats? Anyway, the campaign is split into a number of short war stories, some very short indeed, so while we can enjoy a variety of highlights from multiple theatres of conflict, we've also got about 11 seconds 
begins to get attached enough to our temporary protagonists to give a shit. The first one is about a British tank crew, consisting of the traditional joke scenario of an Englishman, an Irishman and a Scotsman, and begins a running theme in the war stories in that all of them could have been renamed What the Fuck Happened to the Backup. We start off joining a big push against German forces alongside a load of other tanks and infantry, and then one seamless transition later, our tanks trundling through a haunted forest by itself. Sarge, we did tell someone we were going this way, didn't we? And we didn't get the directions wrong, and the rest of the British army aren't having a picnic in the Hundred Acre Wood next door. While I appreciate the overall intention to focus on the personal struggles of the people caught up in the war, the arcs here are even more predictable than they are in the Champs-Élysées. The rookie protagonist has to take charge, the commander gets wounded and sacrifices himself to destroy Germans who have taken to crawling over the tank like Geiger's aliens, the asshole guy deserts but comes back to save the day and get redeemed conveniently right after I finish doing all the important murdering, so that episode defies expectations like a bowl of porridge. Next, we play a cocky American pilot and aching great Ponce who steals a plane but redeems himself the usual way, i.e. murders a whole bunch of Prussians. And this is the chapter where the dime store novel heroics are at their most at odds with the overall tone of the Enterprise, but it's alright because at the end the protagonist goes, psych, unreliable narrator, bitch, which is one step up from it was all a dream for creating a sense of, hey viewer, we just wasted your fucking time. Not that there aren't good unreliable narrator stories, but Battlefield 1 is no one flew over the cuckoo's nest, and I suspect to use the device less out of high literary ambitions and more out of really liking consequence-free violence. The third story is about Italian war heroes, and as one might reasonably expect is the shortest of the campaigns, ahahahaha. Then there's one about Gallipoli, where an Australian war hero goes from treating his green young sidekick with naked hostility to surrogate father figure over the course of a sparrow fart. And finally the action moves to the Middle East, where Lawrence of Arabia and the Bedouin nomads are recast as Robin Hood and his merry men, complete with cartoonishly villainous Sheriff of Nottingham. So overall the whole campaign has a tone wavering madly between World at War documentary and Christmas Panto. Look, I'm not expecting a war game to have me sit in a wet hole getting trench foot for eight hours while composing sad poetry about man's inhumanity to man, emphasis is on game after all, but don't pretend like you're giving us a serious history lesson in between the cathartic video game fun. It's like you threw a gin-soaked raunchy Christmas party in the Playboy Mansion and then sat in the middle of it getting chin-strokey maudlin about the true message of Jesus Christ. But the campaign intends to serve a purpose besides engaging storytelling, which is probably for the best. It is of course preparation for the multiplayer. We've done the standard shooter bit, some guerrilla warfare and some tank and plane piloting, and we've had to deal with blimps and an armoured train, all of which come up again in multiplayer, although sadly there's no rideable Lawrence of Arabia. Now, I really am a lot less down on multiplayer than I used to be. I know it serves a purpose, it's important we know who's the best at this sort of thing in case the army invents an assault rifle shaped like an Xbox controller. But I still just can't fathom the appeal of Battlefield multiplayer, because I don't want to spend one third of my time getting shot at by people I can't see, and the other two thirds with my face in the dirt, hoping to be noticed by the medic standing two feet away working his underpants out of his bum crack. And then after a while my team either wins or loses, which was nothing to do with my or any individual soldier's efforts and therefore as significant as the football results from the International Space Station. And then everyone goes, ooh GG, look at how close the scores were. The scores were close because we've been smashing random particles together for 40 fucking minutes, of course they're going to average out with a sample that size. Still, the multiplayer is where Battlefield 1 finally captures the true spirit of the First World War. Just imagine that every soldier whose life you briefly control and just as quickly squander had six months of training, a home to which they will never return, grieving parents and perhaps a puppy sitting pining on the doormat making noises like this. You bastards! I know that historically it's Queen Battlefield and King Call of Duty that share the dogshit crown as they drift through the skies of the annual shooter season like two greasy zeppelins made of rancid luncheon meat, but this year those two have undergone trial separation. All the signs were there, the way they'd both surreptitiously roll their eyes as they air-kissed for the photographers, the occasional half-hearted stabbing. They've had to face the fact that the mutual love of realistic violence fueled by politics on a level appreciable by frustrated chest-thumping cockslops just isn't enough anymore, because Battlefield got back into historical war reenactment and Call of Duty got back into sticking rabbit turds up its nose. Happily, a much starker parallel exists in this year's shooter 
shooter season between Call of Duty Infinite Warfare and Titanfall 2. So I'm going to do them together, because I'm trying to keep on top of the year's releases and I want to get the shooters out of the way so I can stop reflexively reaching for the iron sights button every time I aim my piss stream at a toilet bowl. Titanfall 2 is, spoiler warning, the sequel to Titanfall 1. Basically the same, but with a single player campaign now. But I hope it doesn't expect to score any points for that, because selling Titanfall 1 at full price without single player was like forgetting to inflate the bouncy castle and resulted in about as much head trauma for me. Call of Duty, meanwhile, decided to start doing games about modern warfare a while back, but now the series is like the brooms from the Sorcerer's Apprentice, they've kept doing that because no one told them to stop and things have reached the inevitable conclusion with Call of Duty Infinitum Warfare, suddenly being in space, like it's a fucking Saturday morning cartoon adaptation. But the question you have to ask with sci-fi is if the story actually needs to be sci-fi and couldn't work perfectly well set in, just to pick an example completely out of the air, the First World War. Tittyfall does, because both the plot and the gameplay centre around giant robots and jetpacks and there weren't too many reports of giant robots in the SOM. Maybe they were all being very quiet, we'll never know. The main purpose of the sci-fi setting in informal warfare, meanwhile, seems to be for the sake of showing us people we have been clumsily assured are bad, getting their shit ruined in more and more spectacular set pieces. And the actual plot could be transplanted into literally any preceding Call of Duty game because it's the same cast as always. Bunch of shouty interchangeable lads, all with the single defining personality trait of being very dutiful, like they're answering a call of some description. And in the final act, they all start getting picked off with the laughable regularity of a game of this little piggy. Both Titty Flaps 2 and Infantile Warfare open with a narrated plot recap for a plot that hasn't actually started yet, unless you count that fucking elevator music of a story Titanfall 1 claimed to have, I suppose, with a clear intention to establish the bad guys as bad. Titty Flaps gives us the IMC, evil corporation oppressing independent planets for their precious resources, fairly cut and dry stuff, whereas Call of Duty Infi Winfi gives us the SDF, Mars-based military nation that despises the people of Earth because question mark. Their leader is played by Kit Harrington, and after carefully analysing his performance in this game to ascertain his character's motivations, the only conclusion I had reached was that Kit Harrington could be outacted by a dying blobfish in a Kit Harrington mask. Like a teacher's pet with an exhibitionist fetish, telling is never quite as satisfying as showing. Tittyfuck 2 swiftly backs up the opening plot dump by having the main character, who had one of those generic everyman names that I can't remember, so let's just call him Brian Twatchops, join a big assault against the IMC that promptly goes about as well as a charity barbecue at the home for very large, very poorly trained dogs, leaving Brian alone and scared behind enemy lines with a face full of dirt and someone's shoe up his bum. Great! Threat established, protagonist sympathetic. Nice work. Meanwhile, the first we see of the very threatening SDF in Call of Duty improvised wanking is when we ambush and kill a bunch, break into their house, kill about 50 more of them and smash some of their stuff before getting killed ourselves by Kit Harrington, which is as humiliating as getting licked to death by a mule. We then cut to our real protagonist, let's call him Barry Pisscup, going on about how the SDF must be taken to task for defending themselves against the previous protagonist and ruining his attempt to break his massacre record. Compared to interminable whining, Titwank 2 is the better experience, but then so is licking a used scouring pad. So let me clarify that even in a vacuum, like say the vacuum of space, Titwank 2 single player is pretty alright as campaigns go. Brian Twatchops teams up with a pilotless mech to form a vaudeville comedy act, based around pulling the I am oblivious to your human sarcasm gag about seven million times, but the AI comes to respect Brian's skills and their relationship actually means something by the end. Meanwhile, Impertinent Waffling also has an AI character, who is exactly the same as everyone else except he's got a traffic light for a head, and another character is really awkwardly and inexplicably racist at him for no better reason than so he can equally inexplicably stop being racist two missions later, which made me go, uh-oh, I smell hastily resolved character arc, wouldn't start reading any long books, Mr. X-Racist mate. Not that the plot points in Breast Descent 2 are any less predictable, but at least there's a sense of growth and development to get us invested in characters. The problem with Call of Duty plots is that every character starts out as an off-the-shelf, fully developed soldier type with super skills, and various hitherto unmentioned super weapons ready to be pulled from their arse, and the plot is just about giving them an excuse to use it all on something that will bleed or catch fire amusingly. Brian Twatchops isn't even a mech pilot when he starts piloting a mech and has no super weapons up his arse, save a military-issue breakfast burrito. The curious parallels between the two games continue in that both feature wall running and double jumping, but Booby Tits 2 bases the levels around it with wide open spaces, jumping challenges and hard to reach secrets, whereas Indecent Wobbling takes place in the usual claustrophobic ruined cities and military bases and I think you're only obliged to wall run maybe twice in the whole campaign, making the wall running 
running just another toy for a spoiled child, another lovingly crafted wedding cake to mash up and add to the trough. Breast Melons 2 has its issues, of course. In fact, the biggest annoyance for me in the giant robot piloting game was having to pilot a giant robot, which I know is like saying that I'd love sucking my fat grandma's asshole if it didn't taste so horrible, but switching between the runny jumpy on foot controls to thundering about like your fat grandma's clinging to your legs makes for a jarring contrast. And since you only get into your mech to fight other mechs, you don't even feel more powerful. Your health bar is still disappearing like chocolate biscuits around your fat grandma. But what's Ignible Weatherman got to compete with it? The token flying vehicle that controls like a magic carpet? The whole game's already far beyond fat grandma, not unlike the Atkins diet. So what happened to all that speckled guff about female characters in gaming? Seems like it wasn't that long ago that people kept going, more female protagonists! Female gamers need characters they can identify with and look up to, because it's not like themes of adversity and the human condition are fairly universal. No, I can only possibly relate to a character with whom I share some circumstantial physical characteristics, because I'm fucking psychotic. And then the developers said, well okay then, and we better dress them up in outfits that show off those circumstantial physical characteristics as much as possible, since they're apparently so important. And that, if anything, made things worse, but you know, I totally agree with this sentiment. After all, I have to have a whiteboard marker on hand when I play Tomb Raider so that I can draw a little moustache and beard on Lara Croft and start giving a shit about her problems. But unless you let the player pick their gender, then you're going to have to alienate someone. We should thank Dishonored 2 then for doing just that and postponing the inevitable apocalyptic gender war for another week. In Dishonored 2, you can choose the protagonist closest to yourself and avoid being alienated by the thought of having to lug a pair of unwanted ovaries stroke gormless gonads around. You can be Empress Emily Caldwin if you're a girl murderer, or you can be previous Dishonored protagonist Corvo Atano if you're a boy murderer with absolutely zero sense of narrative structure. For you see, I went with Emily despite my personal tit deficiency because that was the better story. After having been a child and amazing human MacGuffin in the first game who Corvo had to save and resave over and over again like an expensive cheese that never gets fully eaten no matter how often we bring it out for guests, Emily is now Empress of Dunwall and ruling it about as well as could be expected from someone who was raised by an authority in throat stabbing and little else. That is to say, she's fully bent over shitting things right up the flagpole, so to speak. She's promptly overthrown in a coop orchestrated by a pair of Disney villains and must prove she has the will to fight for what was originally handed to her on a silver platter and rescue the man who once rescued her. Classic passing of the torch sort of sequel plot. Meanwhile, player as Corvo and you get to go through basically the same motions as last time with a bloke with no need for character growth as long as he remembers which end of a knife goes into what squashy bits, so that in the end he can rescue Emily again and resume his position as Royal Arsewiper General. Still, you might pick him if you want to take a nice hot soapy bath in Stephen Russell's Garrett voice again, which was to my mind a slightly manipulative bit of casting. Aw, oh, did the Thief reboot piss in your eyes, fans of the Thief series, it seems to say. Come over here and let us lick your face clean for a while. Obviously I will, Dishonored too, but what else are you bringing to the table besides face licking and protagonist with optional number of testicles? What do you mean, what else? You need more? Yes, besides the evil rats now having been replaced by evil wasps, and moving from fantasy steampunk London to fantasy steampunk Calais, there's probably a Brexit reference in here somewhere. Dishonored 2 is more of Dishonored 1, albeit a bit shorter and without the third act twist I could have seen coming from the International Space Station. More roof-hopping mission-based stealth fun, and the tone of the ending depends on whether you solve your problems with artful character assassination or the boring old regular kind. Which is not to say there aren't a couple of gimmicks sprinkled hither and thither. In fact, I'm a little bit weirded out by the fact that I've played two games in quick succession, this and Titanfall 2, both of which introduced out of nowhere a gadget that lets you switch between two different time periods which you can use for precisely one mission before it disappears down the game's butthole forever. I think you boys had better see me after class, someone has clearly been copying somebody's homework. It's funny how they both do it for only one mission, too. Normally an innovative mechanic like that would have a game entirely based around it first that earns some critical acclaim, before bigger studios start ripping it off for one mission gimmicks like a huge stupid jock trying to memorise one poem to impress the girl he likes, but we appear to have entirely skipped that step. Nice to see that the march of progress has brought us new horizons in the field of uncreative hackery, if nothing else 
else. Otherwise, if you played Dishonored 1, you should already know what to expect. Stealth gameplay made fairly uniquely efficient by the addition of a short-range teleport power that can pull you out of sticky situations, which is only fair because half the time it's the thing that put you in the sticky situation in the first place. I think I must have accidentally condemned the teleport power to 20 years in the Chateau Deef at some point because its revenge was elaborate and well-planned. You can trust me, I will totally teleport you safely onto that fifth-floor window ledge across the street. Aha! Vengeance is mine! Have fun escaping those 97 police officers with your shin bones sticking out of your armpits, motherfucker. The stealth is rather unforgiving. Get spotted by a police chihuahua and every fucko in a two-block radius instantly knows your location and your least favourite place to be stabbed, and getting into combat with any number of fuckos greater than one is like being a hamster trying to navigate its way out of a powered waste disposal unit. So I did the non-lethal playthrough first as Emily for the challenge, and ending that actually feels like an ending rather than a finger-wagging chastisement to a bad dog who ate all the biscuits, and figured I'd then quickly do a murdery playthrough as Corvo for the fun and to see how things changed. Except two missions into that I stopped because I wasn't having fun and I felt like I already knew what would change. Largely bugger all, except my NPC friends would say slightly disapproving things with the neutral expression and monotone voice with which they expressed their undying admiration last time around. See, Dishonored 2 doesn't fix the major problem I had with Dishonored 1, which is that the dialogue is about as lively as that of the adults in the Charlie Brown and Snoopy show. The world building's fine, there's lengthy books on every shelf that the writers clearly put a lot of work into, but there's something so lifeless about most of the characters and their line deliveries. It's like the Borg put on a production of Hamlet. When the guards close in for combat, their taunts and threats sound like they're your dentist examining your gum line, and I'm pretty sure every single one of them has the exact same voice. So when you've alerted a bunch and they're all closing in for the kill, you get this very surreal experience where they're all drably taunting over each other. It's like hearing a snatch of the voice actor's internal monologue as someone offers him a second piece of cheesecake. Just kills my whole investment in the plot. You can have all the passably entertaining gameplay in the world, but I find it hard to give a shit when no one around me seems to. Sort of the opposite of the problem I have with public bathrooms. Ubisoft, serious question, are there any actual human beings making your decisions anymore? Your credit sequences are longer than an episode of Inspector Morse, so I know human beings are involved somewhere, in the same way that that cloud of smoke coming out of the concentration camp chimney probably involved human beings at one point, but the moves Ubisoft have been making lately are consistent with an entity that has needed to have the concept of human emotion patiently explained to it. First, people complained about Assassin's Creed Unity not having enough women, so that got fed into the calculating machine and out popped Assassin's Creed Syndicate with optional female protagonist and remarkably gender-diverse Clockwork Orange rape gangs, and now, after everyone pointed out that the the story of Watch Dogs 1 was a depressing self-pitying grit-fest starring the world's least interesting vigilante tramp, the calculating machine has promptly taken the obvious step in the exact opposite direction with Watch Dogs 2, and made it about colourful, wise-cracking millennials who, if left to their own devices, would probably devolve until their spoken language consisted entirely of sarcastic memes and snorting noises. Our protagonist is Marcus Holloway, a gifted young hacker who was wrongly sentenced to community service and decided that the most balanced, level-headed response would be to start gunning down police officers. To this end, he joins an underground hacktivist group consisting of two spectacular superspergs, a fairly indistinct black dude, to whom I immediately pointed and yelled, that motherfucker's gonna die first, and a girl with a middlingly brown skin tone, cornrows on one side of her head and a white girl hairdo on the other, who I can only assume was an attempt to fill the entire diversity quota with a single character. All these youngsters talk the way a room full of 30-something writers assume kids talk like these days, but despite being the kind of achingly trendy that starts ageing poorly the second after the producer envisions it during a Turkish bath gob job, the story of Watch Dogs 2 is remarkably reminiscent of Hackers, the 1995 movie starring a young Angelina Jolie. With some differences, Marcus doesn't get off with the hot girl hacker at the end, because that would require either character having a granule of passion and genuine human warmth. Also, the tagline of Hackers was their only crime was curiosity, which would require a bit of modification to apply to Watch Dogs 2. Perhaps their only crime was curiosity, trespassing, criminal vandalism, assault, bank fraud, grand theft auto, and one or two good old-fashioned first-degree murders. And that's where the tone problems come in. Because the Streetwise Treehouse Club are already difficult to like when they're sitting in their mum's basement quoting goofy memes at each other, and then they leave the house and commit vigilante murders. It makes them come across like reckless idiots with no grasp of the consequences of their 
their actions. If the game was a more overt spoof, like your Saints Row or your Sunset Overdrive, it might work, but the overall tone is a hair too straight-faced, probably because the points being made about data security, technological integration, and corporate control of the populace are actually very relevant to our present lives, magic wand phones notwithstanding. In which case, you know how you explore those themes? By making the hero a normal fucking dude! Not a grim gravel-voiced Avenger, and certainly not a neon pink rollerblading Scooby gang who all deserve to have their mouths filled in with expanding foam sealant, admittedly while the game does its best to tempt you with a selection of colourful firearms with cute names that are sure to give your victims a chuckle as they struggle to breathe through the blood bubbling up from the ruin that was once their jaw, you can stick to stun guns and wholesome non-lethal traffic pileups, but there's still an air of hypocrisy. Hey, let's hack into my niece's stream and humiliate her live, to show her how bad it would be if some nasty person hacked into her stream and humiliated her live, goes the premise of one side mission. It'd have been nice if the plot had had a self-reflective arc, and so long as I'm fantasising it would also have been nice if there had been a plot at all. I'm going into spoiler town now because I need to illustrate my point and because I hate you and I'm an antisocial massacre in waiting. Remember that bloke I immediately realised would die first? My obvious correctness need go unstated, but are they killed by the main villains to up the stakes? Or to make the hero start taking things seriously? Are they bollocks? They're killed by a hitherto unmentioned street gang and avenged five minutes later in a manner reminiscent of the nerd frat house in the college sex comedy, avenging themselves upon the jocks with a strategically placed pig in a cheerleader outfit. On reflection, most of the missions involve targeting or being targeted by a hitherto unmentioned organisation and hacking their headquarters until you can find and publish all the shady stuff we've done.txt. The only connecting element is the main villain, who materialises every now and again to go, hello everyone, don't forget I'm the mastermind behind all these seemingly and functionally unrelated events, until in the final mission you take him down in a way that I feel like we could have done at any time. So the story aspect's a complete wash, frankly. Although not without some highlights, there's one bit where our heroes target a movie studio for misrepresenting hackers in the media, and that made me laugh so hard that my lungs inverted and flopped out of my mouth like a pair of greasy oven mitts. It's a shame because the gameplay's actually a lot more fun than it was last time. The remote control car and drone are good additions to the preparatory, distant approach to problems, although it's a bit weird how guards smash your toys to bits at first sight and start patrolling for intruders without even considering the possibility that it might be bring your incredibly spoiled children to work day. But sitting safely outside in the grass, gaily downloading data while the security guards roam about angrily barking like their owner pretended to throw a ball is quite satisfying and is after all what hacking should be about. Not brightly coloured assault rifles or beaning people with a tennis ball on the end of a string that we nicked from a dog toy shop. Sadly, Ubisoft are all aboard the do-it-your-way bullshit van and don't want to dictate how to play the game, like they're some kind of, I don't know, game designers. So every mission is set up to allow pretty much any approach, including crawling through on your belly using only your cheek muscles, and consequently tends to be a tad too easy. Even when you get spotted and have to go in guns blazing, the stun gun is an instant takedown with infinite ammo. And guards forget that you're there if you stand behind a middling width lamppost for 10 seconds, so I can't recommend it if you want a challenge, nor if you want a good story, so what's left? Well, as I say, there's some catharsis to be had from the core gameplay, especially if you have frustrations you want to take out on the Bay Area. Or rather, a miniature effigy of the Bay Area with about 0.0001% of the traffic. Historically, I've approached new Final Fantasy games the way a schoolboy approaches being pushed into the girls' toilets, take enough of a look around to tell your mates about afterwards and then get the fuck out before I begin to physically transform into a girl, all caring about my appearance and employing the adjective dreamy. But you'll be pleased to hear that I managed to play Final Fantasy XV for quite a bit longer than usual, to just before the estimated onset of my first period. Of course I'm joking around in my usual cheekily abrasive sort of way, saying Final Fantasy is for girls would be a terribly regressive statement, but I can't help noticing that in Final Fantasy XV, our typically androgynously handsome young prince's quest is to marry his sweetie pie in a fairy tale wedding, and in order to do this he must join a boy band and get through several months of cohabitation without sucking a single one of their dicks. A Final Fantasy for fans and first-timers boasts a slightly perplexing splash screen every time you turn the game on. I'd thank you to let me be the judge of that, Square Enix. I know publishers like to dictate to game reviewers a lot these days, but this is cutting out one middleman too many for me. It must be said though, anal man to see 15 or older is indeed distinct from its predecessors, in that I mostly understood what the fuck was going on. It's a nice straightforward plot for once, we are Noctis, a prince who wears Wellington 
and boots and took his name from the instructional sign on the front door of the school for the mentally slow. Off to get married to secure peace between kingdoms before a giant fruitcake-sized dump is dropped onto events when the Empire invade our homeland. I wonder if these evil, constantly expanding superpower nations have ever considered the PR boost they'd get from not calling themselves the Empire. I mean, the Federation from Star Trek does basically the same thing, but everyone likes them because they're called the Federation and brush their teeth once in a while. Anyway, the Happy Town Snuggle Club invade our homeland and Noctis must journey around the world building his powers until he can take the fight to them. Alongside his three constant companions, Gladiolus, a beefy mullet head who was doing crunches when everyone else was learning how to do up shirt buttons, Ignis, the smart one who looks like Travis Touchdown's more successful cousin who always sarcastically asks him if he's gotten a real job yet at family get-togethers, and Prompto, a 14-year-old girl in a miniskirt who's probably only here because the other three needed something warm to park their todgers in on wintry nights. So as I understand it, the obligation at this point is to decide which of the four absurd hairdos on display we'd like to have brushing along our inner thighs, and take to our bed with some appropriately sized scented candles. But I can't say I can place a favourite because none of them have much depth or clear motivation besides Noctis, and Noctis can eat shit. I can't sympathise with his struggle because he doesn't seem to have one. Everything's handed to him because he's a prince. His magic powers, his super weapons, his fancy car and three paid friends, one to chauffeur, one to tuck him in at night and one to practice kissing on. People literally give him free boats and he's still got the cast iron balls to be generically broody all the time. Even his sexy bride was assigned at birth. Some of us can only get results like that after a long back-breaking evening digging up fresh graves. As is often the case with digi-downloaded AAA games, Final Fantasy XV has strange ideas of what constitutes enough installed to be playable, but at least I had the chance to really drink in the title screen for the several hours necessary for the installation to fully finish, towards the end of which I said aloud, look, we all know you're going to cutscene it up for half an hour before we get going, Final Fantasy. How about you just show me that while we're waiting? But in yet another stark contrast to established Final Fantasy, XV does not pace like an incredibly poorly dressed slug. It's straight on the road to start seeing the world. The open world, that is. Closer to the typically Japanese model of open world games than the Western one, less focus on freedom of movement and more on finding and unlocking the many wonderful flavours of inane busy work. So don't expect to be ramping your car off babies' heads and landing upside down on the distraught mother's picnic sandwich platter. They won't even let you drive in the wrong lane as you make your way through long stretches of very picturesque bugger all. So if you happen to like exploring Northern California in Google Street View, then here's the game for you. I was somewhat reminded of Deadly Premonition of all things, as that too had a lot of driving through mostly empty scenery, a weird fixation on the main character's diet, and rather tedious side quests mainly based around fetching stuff because the only core gameplay mechanic besides driving about is the combat, and the combat, as Wellington once said on the eve of the Battle of Vitoria, is a bit of a pisser. Not that I want to discourage Final Fantasy, for years I've been saying to JRPGs, look, make the combat either turn-based or real-time, every time you go somewhere in between it's like watching the mutant offspring of a clam and a racehorse attempting to drag itself into a furnace to end its misery, and Final Fantasy XV said, fine, it's real-time combat now, kiss my ass," Which is good. And the switching between holding attack to attack and holding dodge to dodge is straightforward enough, but it all hinges on being able to tell which section of the unfolding carnage is actually you, and not, say, a brooding androgynously handsome bramble patch. And having your three helpers around doesn't help the confusion any. Why did we all dress in black today? And couldn't at least one of us have combed their hair with an actual comb and not an electrified sawfish? This is probably why the game gives you the ability to teleport out of the fight and survey the thrashing cloud of limbs and teeth from afar, but I'm confused as to why magic attacks do friendly fire and have a huge blast radius, and consequently why the game suggests I equip my NPC pals with a sub, when it feels safer to entrust my kids to a chainsaw juggler as they picnic in the shade of Godzilla's swaying bollocks. I definitely played 15 for longer than most modern Final Fantasies, but in the end just as decisively drew a line under playing any further because the combat had shifted from fun size annoyance to medium and was showing no sign of reversing that trend, but what really clinched it was a side quest introduced some ways into the game when the girl, who had muscled her way into a vague love interest position with no input or encouragement from me whatsoever, suggested I use a nearby plot to grow carrots. And all at once the spell broke. I realised if the game was throwing inane bullshit like carrot farming at me 20 hours in, then it was probably going to be inane bullshit all the way down. This is of course assuming she was being literal and wasn't making some subtle come on along the lines of plant your big root vegetable all up in my window box. 
Oh man, this is the end of an era. It's only Half-Life 3 left in the infinitely prolonged sense of vague disappointment bucket, and after that the industry is gonna have to mishandle a whole batch of new long-term projects to tease us with, and that's just not gonna happen until hype for AAA games becomes worth giving much of a shit about again. The Last Guardian was announced nine tongue-spunking years ago. An entire tonsil-jizzing generation of consoles has passed between it and its predecessor Shadow of the Colossus, and I'm pleased to report that The Last Guardian is disappointing right out of the gate as it turns out that the title doesn't mean anything. It's a game about two pals and neither of them are the last of anything, or strictly speaking, Guardians. The boy isn't a Guardian, although he may need one, as he can't seem to get through one minute of his life without braining himself on a bit of old wall. And the monster isn't a guardian either, it's a sort of puppy-kitten-baby-goat-budgerigar thing, like a merging together of all your deceased childhood pets. But I suppose Shadow of the Colossus didn't mean anything either. Yeah, the Colossi had shadows, but then so does Peter Weller, and it wasn't called Shadow of Robocop. If you're familiar with Fumito Ueda's previous works, Ico and Something of the Colossus, then you should already know what to expect. A young boy getting concussions left and right, like a blue bottle trying to navigate a drummer's convention, ancient ruins, lonely atmosphere, a yellowish-green filter on everything, every Everyone talks a vaguely Japanese-sounding made-up language, and the camera refuses to behave itself. Seriously, if Fumito Ueda made a VR game, then the player's body would spontaneously generate new orifices just to vomit out of. And that isn't helped by the way the slightest touch of the stick makes the main character fucking sprint in the given direction, waving their arms. Although that is, admittedly, a fairly understandable response to having spent three hours trying to teach a giant muskrat eagle vol thing how to shit on the paper. But we get ahead of ourselves. The setup is, we are a small boy who wakes up in a gigantic ruined castle, covered in strange tattoos, and lying next to a colossal hairy monster. Yeah, I've had mornings like that. Joke. Your objective is to escape from the castle while a bunch of resident scary dudes with glowing eyes would rather you didn't. You may have already noticed that this setting and premise is pretty much identical to Ico's, which may explain why this game took so long, they were waiting for the last few Ico fans to die of old age. The only difference is that the princess you were rescuing in Ico has been replaced with a giant winged coyote lamb thing. Which might sound like a not insignificant difference, but there's about the same amount of brain power on display. While Yorda was a rather oblivious little moo, who seemed like she needed a few good firm slaps before she could register the time of day, you could at least grab her by the hand, pull her over to the ledge and keep rubbing her face across the brickwork until she figured out she was supposed to climb it. Meanwhile, you grab onto Mr. Woofy's back chicken leg and at best you'll get whiplash as he absentmindedly scratches his ear, and the dynamic has changed in that you're sort of the one being escorted this time. You need Captain Whiskers to get you up to high places and to beat up the schoolyard bullies, but it's uphill work when he seems less interested in your goals than he is in finding a nice giant toilet to drink out of. I must say at this point that the developers should be congratulated on what a superb job they did at making the giant sparrow hamster act convincingly like a real animal. It moves exactly like a cat, and it stares blankly at you like a family dog trying to passive-aggressively protest the amount of Christmas dinner going into you and not him. But I'd say the emphasis is on cat, because you have about as much direct control over Fuzzy Chops as you do on a bar of soap in the bath. You start the game with the ability to call him to your location, which is slightly redundant since he usually follows you anyway because he's still mulling over whether to play along or bite your chitlins off. Later on your relationship improves and you can actually start giving him commands, such as jump or go vaguely in that direction, or look around at precisely the moment I attempt to leap off your head onto a ledge. Oh sorry, my mistake, that's not a command, he does that one for free. And Jump seems to be quite an interpretive command that can equally mean jump up to the next ledge or jump down the seven or eight ledges I just spent the last half hour trying to get you to climb. So what you're saying is that the gameplay mechanic of directing your huge ferret osprey around is quite challenging, almost like it's some kind of, say, video game. I see your point, Josef Mengele, but a challenge isn't fair if the elements don't act consistently. For example, our furry friend is supposed to catch things that fly towards his mouth, but about half the time the neuron apparently doesn't fire and he just zones out like he's thinking about Jaffa Cakes. This is very hilarious when you're trying to chuck him a treat and it bounces off his head with a hollow clonk. Not so funny when the thing he's supposed to be catching is you, in what is probably supposed to be a heartwarming moment of relationship building at the climax of a platforming puzzle, as you leap desperately away from a collapsing ledge and fall towards the adorable Mr. Touchy Face with arms outstretched. The cinematic slow motion activates as he cranes his neck forwards and proceeds to heroically, gormlessly stare at you, confused that you didn't bring him a biscuit as you plummet past his nose to your death. I was this close to quitting in frustration after I lost half an hour trying to figure out how to make Bonzo dive into a pool and swim through an underwater tunnel. I'm sorry, game, I can't seem to 
find the button for the dive down and swim through tunnel command. Perhaps it lies between the buttons for WAP with rolled up newspaper and administer worming tablet on the controller that doesn't exist. But I did push through and was eventually able to enjoy the inevitable heartstring tugging ending, although the effectiveness was somewhat lessened by it, like the ending of Ico, hinging on us having grown invested in the relationship between boy and non-boy entity. While that was easier in Ico because Yorda was about as helpless as the last chicken nugget on a popular buffet table and we'd spent the last eight hours trying to keep her from skipping nonchalantly into the mouths of passing tigers, Fluffy Wuff Barkington III felt more like part of the hazards, something we needed to work around rather than with. It'd be like getting invested in the relationship between the bloke from Shenmue and the bloke from Shenmue's forklift. Imagine that, the storybook romance between a cold piece of emotionless machinery and a forklift.